Have you called in your backup e-coms now? See if we can get some more brain power in this we thing. We got one here. Roger. Fly it in, go. Go and go. Uh, he's never mind. He's straightening up a little bit. Okay. Okay. Now let's everybody keep cool. We got the uh, limb still attached. The limb spacecraft's good. So if we need uh, to get back home, we got a limb to do a good portion of it with. Okay. Let's make sure that we don't do anything that's going to blow our CSM electrical power with the batteries or that will cause us to lose the main or the uh, fuel cell number two. Okay, we want to keep the O2 and that kind of stuff working. We'd like to have RCS, but we got the command module system, so we're in good shape if we need to get home. Let's solve the problem, but let's not make it any worse by guessing. You're listening to the David Feldman Radio Program, you sad, pathetic hump. Let's go to North Carolina, where Pastor Jonathan Conrad is standing by. Pastor Jonathan Conrad is senior pastor at St. Paul's Lutheran Church in Wilmington, North Carolina. He's a friend of our shows. We've been in contact over the years, and I thought it would be a good idea to talk with Pastor Jonathan Conrad during this moment in history. Thank you, Pastor, for joining us. It's my pleasure, sir. Yes. I should mention to my listeners that Pastor Conrad is a listener, and uh, he has quite a sense of humor. <laughs> yes, I do. In fact, uh, I have to share with you, and please tell Jackie this. A couple weeks ago, I was at a spiritual retreat, and all our meals they volunteered to have people to tell jokes and all the jokes i could think of was from jackie and so i just had to sit there and bite my tongue like you know i know about three really good jokes i could tell you right now <laughs> what you have uh, small kids yes what do you tell your kids about jokes or are they too young uh, my kids are learning to tell jokes. Uh, my my son, I still remember the first joke he said was, why did the chicken cross the road? And I said, why? And he goes, well, they get to the drugstore. <laughs> and I'm like, mm -hmm. okay, well, that <laughs> I guess that's called goal setting for the for the little uh, the chicken. But he's learning to laugh. Um, I've I've shown him like when I'm allowed to for my wife, show him like parts of the Marx Brothers and Three Stooges, and mm -hmm. he. He gets laughs out of that physical comedy. Uh, anywhere that his son and his dad, excuse me, gets hit in the head or right. falls down, he laughs. And uh, right. my daughter too is uh, she tried to give a joke, uh, kind of like the chicken joke, and then about three minutes later she got to the punchline. So right. I'm like, well, uh, she should start her own podcast, I guess. So right. she, <laughs> she'd be really good. So they're getting it. Uh, they love to laugh. Um, I think kids that age really go for the physical kind of humor, the right. slapstick, which I grew up on. Right. People in pain. It, it, there's something it's, funny it's like, about people it, suffering, right? Especially when it's their dad. <laughs> <laughs> so it's problematic because I don't even know why I'm asking you this. I, I, I've discussed Jackie the Joke Man 
with a lot of my listeners, a lot of my guests. He's a, a compendium. He is the most thorough compendium of jokes that will be lost if the PC culture has its way. And these are pieces of history. And comedy comes from pain. And I should move on and talk about the real pain that's going on. And that is the crisis we find ourselves in. What is going on in Wilmington, North Carolina? What what are you sensing from your parishioners? Well, I'm, I'm sensing a lot of Actually, it's, it's just sensing a lot of silence, a lot of people waiting for the shoe to drop and waiting for that first uh, confirmed case in our county, which is New Hanover County. Mm-hmm. So we have a lot of people who are just staying in, inside, people who have to go to work, they do, trying to keep all the contact down. But it's been really painful because as a pastor, you, one of your calls is to go and see people and meet people and and speak with, and, and talk to people and be with them in their times of distress or, or joy and to not be able to do that. That's a, that's a really hard thing for pastors to do and rabbis and imams and those who are religious leaders to do uh, because we were taught to be in community. Right. And so this has really been learning on a fly of what do you, what does community look like in an online world? And so, I've suddenly learned what Zoom is and how to do it and trying to do that on a regular basis. Yeah, yeah. So Sunday was declared a national day of prayer, but Mm -hmm. I know that most churches were empty, most mosques were empty, temples were empty on Saturday. I would assume the St. Paul's Lutheran Church in Wilmington, North Carolina was empty? It was empty. I and me and about four others got together so we could do our first live stream using mm-hmm. Facebook, and we streamed a, a service uh, at ten. Very easy liturgy, like to be read by the people, and then I did a sermon, right. and that was it. And so we uh, we we tried to get the word out as as best as we could since it was so. Not last minute, but like, you know, we were waiting to the last second to say, okay, we're gone and we're canceled. Mm-hmm. And it was hard. I mean, it was just such an empty feeling to be in such an empty space, but we had some really good response saying thank you for being there. And I know that a lot of my friends who are pastors and, and rabbis and imams, that they, they're learning ways to do this so that people have something to go to because you can only take so much news. Right. And you can only take so much lack of sports and, and so much lacking right now that right. it's nice to know that we can offer them something. Yeah, yeah. Zoom is purely video. Do they also have audio? Yes. Uh, I subscribed to it uh, just this morning, actually, officially, and I did uh, a Zoom conference, and I recorded it, and it provides an audio version, too. And I wonder... So we can make that available. Yeah, and, and I wonder... What would be more effective, video or just audio, when it comes to a religious service? There's something, I was talking to a friend, uh, actually it was Helene Olin, uh, before the show started, and she was telling me about Neil Postman, who wrote a book, I think it was called Entertaining Ourselves to Death, Mm -hmm. 
And Helene told me that in the book, Postman writes that a visual medium makes logic impossible. That when you're looking at something and watching something, your brain misfires in a way that you're not receptive to logic. And that writing, radio, and podcasting, as long as it's audio, is much more effective than than the visuals that come with television. I wonder, did, did you wrestle with that, whether or not to do video or just audio? No, not really. We feel like uh, we have a large number in our congregation who do social media. Mm-hmm. So we thought that that would be the best way then to reach them was to use those platforms. And uh, I, I grew up, uh, I worked in radio before I went into ministry. I, it's amazing. I had a face for radio and or ministry, so uh, there wasn't much else going for mm-hmm. me there. So, I uh, I was in the radio world for about ten years before really? going into ministry. Yeah, really? uh, and it was I enjoyed it. Uh, the the power of the voice, taking voice lessons and learning to inflect, which is really important, especially for someone who's preaching or in, in your field telling a joke. I mean, the way you tell a joke is almost as important as the joke itself. Right. And, uh, for me, I, you know, I use my hands. I like to, I like to preach without my manuscript. So kind of people are watching and I'm watching them. So we have better eye contact. Um, but I think the way you say it adds to it. I, I, I agree that on audio, I think I've retained more things by just audio than if I'm doing video, but I, it never really came to my mind just to do the audio version. Although, we do make audio versions of our sermons available, so uh, we think this is just like an added bonus now, so people can choose to listen or to watch. Right. And um, especially we, we have people, because we are a community of faith, we want to be together and see one another. So to sit, let them see me or see my associate pastor or you know, somebody in our staff doing something makes it important at this time. Right. During the pandemic. But it, it's no replacement for actual physical contact. Absolutely not. No, I, I wish I wish we could all be together again. Right. Uh, just for the sense that you could hold their hand and say, you know, we're going to get through this together. And that's hard to do. I mean, my mom is in uh, North Carolina, but she's about three and a half, four hours away. And it's hard to not be closer to go and check on her. She's She's in good health. She's doing okay. My sister's check on her too. It's just hard to be away from people you love, and not, not you can't really do anything about it. And um, you just have to you know, try to stay strong for one another. And uh, you know, I'm very grateful that my kids are healthy. My wife is healthy. We're uh, we're kind of it's like a staycation mm-hmm. for the next four or five years. It seems. Yeah. Well, I, maybe not four to five years. Maybe not. Maybe by the end of the week, you'll feel uh, feel a little bit shorter. But we, um, I think that's what also it's just that whole unknown. Yeah. Like we really do not know, and that that's what has always stressed me out the most um, when it came to like a call or when my wife was going on internship. They had this really sick way of saying one day, "Okay, we've got a place for you, but we're not going to tell you until two days later." 
Right. So you have this whole thing going on. So I think for a lot of people, it's just they'd love to know when it will end so that they can then deal with it. Right. Better. I think that's a really that's an interesting point. I, I think the people who are most relaxed are Tom and Rita Hanks, uh, right. Idris Elba. I think they're fine because they 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 are not living in fear of contracting it. I, you know, one of the things as a stand-up comic, when you do a high-pressure gig that you, you know you're really nervous about, you relax the minute they introduce you. It's it's the lead up to the performance. It's not knowing what the future is. Faith is really important because anxiety is trying to control the future. Often you don't know what's in the future and anxiety and your amygdala starts misfiring all these hormones. I think I'm getting this biologically correct. I'm probably not, but in anticipation of something horrible that you don't know what is the horror that's about to hit you, your fight or flight responses juice you up and you have anxiety in preparation for something that you don't know where the attack is coming from. And faith in many ways is a great antidote to anxiety because you should live in uncertainty that part of the price you pay for life is uncertainty and you have to have faith because otherwise you will freak out life is uncertain yes, did i put you to I sleep agree. reverend did i call you reverend or pastor uh, you can call me whatever you like sir can i call you rabbi it would be a lot easier for me. Can I call you Rabbi? Rabbi just well, means I mean, teacher. Know, it just means Reverend teacher. Barry Lynn, yeah, uh, the Reverend Barry Lynn. So you know, you can call me uh, uh, Pastor Jonathan, or you know, Your Honor, or yeah. Lynch, what you know, whatever you feel yeah. compelled to do. But it's um, it's it's the it, that faith. It doesn't have to be faith in Jesus, faith in God. You just have to have faith in yourself and in others. And that it'll it'll work out, and there's not too much in your control. There's some things you can control. Your you can control your behavior and how you treat others, but the rest is reactive. And if you can learn to live with uncertainty and and be sober minded and react accordingly you'll be fine yeah and, and that's very hard for this our, our culture to do uh mm -hmm. to it's, sometimes people will ask me well how do you know there's a god and i'm like well i don't know for a hundred percent but i feel it mm -hmm. and I, I i choose to believe that there is a god and so sometimes when people say well how do you know it's going to end good or if, or end well or we're going to get through this. And he's like, well, it's better than thinking that we're not. Right. And that, you know, it's so, and being fatalistic about it, uh, you know, it's not like I'm trying to be positive. I'm trying to be certain and strong for people who need to hear that it's going to be okay. Right. And um, I think that that's one of the biggest things that a faith can give people is uh, 
not just for myself, but to be there for those who, who need it. Right. Uh, and to be a presence. I mean, some of my good best friends are not believers and, you know, I love them to death and, you know, but they, they will turn to me if they need something and they want to talk or just have someone to hear them. And because they know that we're friends and they know that that's one of the things I like to do is to just be there. Right. And it's, it's really hard when all you see around, I mean, that's why I tell people, I mean, I try to encourage people, you know, you can watch news, but, Put it down for like an hour. I mean, it, you know, twenty four seven cycle. It's just, it's, it's they're getting, they're selling you something. Yep. And it's not positivity. Nope. And um, it, it's hard for people to understand that and get that through their head. Like, you, know, you can actually help yourself by finding more positive things to go to. Yeah, I mean, the, the positive thing to go to is something like the New York Times, which is giving you the coronavirus update, or AP, or Vox. Most importantly, go to the CDC. You want to know how the coronavirus is doing? I'm going there right now, and it's been updated, and I can tell you that there's a coronavirus dashboard, ncov2019.live. This is all you need to know. As of uh, uh, what we're recording, we're not recording it Thursday. We're doing this on Wednesday, but as of Wednesday... There are 218,918 total confirmed cases. A total of 8,910 people around the world have died. 83,575 have recovered so far. And I'm just going to say this, you know, and then uh, we'll move on. I don't want to bore you. China has 80,894 confirmed cases, 3,237 are deceased, 69,601 have recovered. Wuhan is coming back to life. Uh, and it seems to be, you know, it's state-controlled media for the most part, and they haven't cooperated entirely with America, but they have 1.3 billion people in China, roughly, and there are 80,894 confirmed cases. 3,237 have, have passed away. In the United States, there are 8,827 confirmed cases. So far, we've lost, as of, let's say, late Wednesday night when we're doing this, 136 people have passed away. There are comorbidities involved. There, there are stories of people who were dying of leukemia and, you know, they tack on the coronavirus and suddenly they've died from the coronavirus. I'm not downplaying this by any stretch. and I don't want to come across as callous. Uh, the point I'm making is don't watch TV. Go to ncov2019.live. Get your numbers there. And... Uh, do what the CDC tells you to do. Take care of yourself and then take care of others. Right. And that's what we, uh, we're trying to do, like with our kids. They're, they're really too young to understand what's going on. So we just put, make it down to, you know, we just don't want to get sick or there's a flu going around because it, you don't want to get all heavy on them. But they, they understand things like that. Mm -hmm. And, um, 
they don't understand why they're not at school and seeing their friends, which is really hard. Uh, but we're trying to, we're trying to break the monotony of, of not what, like you said, you know, getting the statistics. And then for me, it's, it's continuing to plan on how to get and find out more from our community. And I really can't do that by watching Fox News or MSNBC 24 hours a day. No. You, you just can't. And um, it, it's something that you just have to continue to tell people, like, get your facts, uh, do everything you can to be preventable, uh, but try to live your life. And, you know, if you've got a, a chance to relax, uh, not relax, but just work this through, uh, you're not alone. There are a lot of people going through it which is kind of very, it's rare that we can really say that this is a worldwide thing. It, we're not being hyperbolic. It's almost, it, except for the people who are suffering, you can look at it as a gift the same way the Sabbath is a gift. What is the Sabbath? Why is the Sabbath important? Well, for me, it's the, the day that God rested. And if God decided, if chose to be there a day to not do anything, then I think that that's something that's very important for us to realize that we, we don't have to work seven days a week or we don't have to be on seven days a week. I know there are people who do work seven days a week. And I don't want to discount that, but that because they have to, to because they have to. Right. Right. So they finding ways to rest. Uh, you can't always be on and you're not giving your, you're not getting your body to have any, give, I'm sorry, doing any favors for yourself if you're just on all the time and you're not resting, you're not working out or you're not doing any kind of time with family or uh, reading or just away time. And to me, Sabbath is a, a true gift. I mean, it's important that God made it one of the commandments to honor the Sabbath and I think that honoring the Sabbath is also honoring what's going to be best to recharge your body, recharge your brain. Um, for me, Friday's my usual Sabbath day, and over the last year, I've just started watching movies mm-hmm. and uh, sitting on the couch and not moving for a few hours. And I feel recharged after that just because for once I can just be and not be somewhere. Right. They say one of the ways to maintain your immunity is to get sleep. That when you don't get enough sleep, you're susceptible to viruses. You get sick. So there's a reason the goes all the way back to the Old Testament. Obey the Sabbath. Don't work yourself to death. And uh, you gave up, I think this is kind of interesting, you contacted me a month ago to tell me that you would not be available throughout Lent via social media. You did a digital purge, a, dirt, a digital cleanse? Just, yeah, just about. I, I did it last year uh, to much more success, but then this year with the pandemic, I thought, well, I need to keep some lines of communication open. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, but for a while, it, it was pretty easy for me not to go and check on the Twitter account or Facebook um, I think uh, what I did for Facebook is I had a email alert. So one of the groups that I follow, if somebody posted something in that group, I could just email them. Right. But um, it, it, it's always good for me to kind of 
realize that Twitter is not my world. Right. And um, there were times I felt like I was going into the hole, you know, mm-hmm. like, oh, I got to see how they responded to this Twitter. Right. Twit- Twitter. And um, and it, what was interesting is usually it wasn't even me. It could be like maybe you had tweeted something or, you know, I remember Aaron Berg, <laughs> some, some, some wonderful, <laughs> some wonderful Twitter fights. And so you just like, oh, this is good. Look at this. This is great. <laughs> and next thing you know, four hours just slipped away. And uh-huh. your wife's like, why aren't you in bed? And you're like, I'm, I'm just following Aaron Berg, which, you know, I think is normal for most men. You know, it's interesting. The Civil War gave us surgery. It's the worst thing that ever, one of the worst things that's ever happened to this country. But from the Civil War flowed surgery and great medical advances. And from this pandemic will flow greater knowledge about medicine and about ourselves and about social media. We've been told that social media is really bad for ourselves and that we should stay off it. I I find my one vice uh, that I will admit to is coffee and it's my drug. I if I don't have coffee after, say, 3 p.m. and I wake up at 8 in the morning and have my first cup of coffee and I've gone more than 12 hours with that cup of coffee, it is fantastic. It is a cup of optimism. It's a jolt. It's fantastic. And if I go 12, 15 hours without social media, it's just like coffee. That first jolt from checking Twitter and Facebook and my emails my the neurons just start firing but like coffee after about a half hour to an hour i keep hitting that button waiting for the sugar high and it don't come and then suddenly it becomes really toxic and it's not making me feel good but i keep going back to this and looking and looking i want that the dopamine rush that you get, they've, they've MRI'd the brain and social media does to you the same exact thing that opiates do and dopamine do. And if you can learn to limit your exposure to this stuff, it's much better for you. That's one of the downfalls of social media is that I think as a culture, we're addicted to the like button. Mm-hmm. And so we, we put something out there just to see if somebody will like it. And mm-hmm. we've associated, they like that tweet or they like that Facebook post or Instagram. So thus they must like me. And we have this need to be liked. And that's also dangerous because, and you know this, that not everybody's going to comment is going to agree with you. And so... Right. You can have that high, but all, almost immediately you can also go to that very low. Right. And it goes back to if someone disagrees with you, you suddenly think, well, why don't you like me? And, mm-hmm. and it didn't used to be that way. Like, I think it's hard now to make friends with people because I could have buddies and we could oppose one another from a theological standpoint, political standpoint. But because we knew each other, we loved each other like friends and brothers, 
that other stuff didn't matter. But now it seems like it's all of these prerequisites before we even spend time with one another. Right. And uh, that's that's not good. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's not good for a society that we just all want to be around people who are just like us. I, that's why at, at my church we have people all over the spectrum when it comes to theology and political, because I, if I'm in a room with everybody who agrees with me, we never get anything done. Mm-hmm. You, know, you need to have those voices. You need to have the stories that people bring. Right. And um, I think that that's where social media and I don't know if you can really change that on social media. I think that something like this, we can see maybe more of the beauty of what it can do, right? which hopefully will heighten it. Right. We, we have to wrap it up, and you'll be coming back, I hope. Well, I hope you'll let me. Yeah. I, it's, a, it's a privilege to have you on. Vanessa Hudgens well, has 7 million followers on Twitter. I don't know how many followers she has on Instagram. I have no idea who she is other than she posted something that said uh, people are going to die, which is terrible, but like inevitable, completely tone deaf. Uh, And she had to apologize for offending people. She has 7 million followers on Twitter, and she was just trivializing the pandemic and she said, I'm sorry if I offended anybody. How about uh, giving wrong information out to your 7 million? How about just being irresponsible? And if this does, in fact, turn out to be the pandemic that we're being told it's going to be, that you may actually be responsible for one of your 7 million followers getting the coronavirus or, or, or trivializing it which leads to more people dying. I mean, you're spreading an epidemic of people not taking it seriously. Do we learn? Are we capable of learning? Are, are, are we capable of realizing that Vanessa Hudgens is not to be listened to when it comes to current events? Are we capable of doing a reset after something like this, changing our lives changing where we get our information from or are there powers that are beyond our control and by that i mean the corporate media that won't allow us to to reset and and seriously consider who we listen to for guidance well i think being human people i'm human human people boy that's a i did it last week i said i said human people last week and I caught myself saying it. Well, Listen, uh, you can edit that out. Uh, no, nah, like sound a lot, nah. a lot more smarter. <laughs> a lot more smarter. But uh, I, I think for us, we're so, we are so human in that we grew up idolizing people like football players, entertainment entertainers, and I think ever when I was young, I just thought, well, these people I look up up to, they've got to be the character that they portray. Mm-hmm. Or they got to be the characters that they write about. And so I don't think, I mean, I do think corporate media has a, a place in that. I mean, like, for instance, like the whole Tom Brady thing. Um, I mean, I wish him well if, if he wants to continue his career and it's not with New England Patriots. I'm talking football here, just in case you yeah. Uh, yeah. weren't following. And, but it's like, it feels like it's all kind of a work 
like all kind of like, are we in the middle of a drama, a reality TV show here? Uh, and it feels that way. I think we just get sucked into this whole fame idea. But I mean, I know there are people who follow preachers and, and, and famous religious people thinking that we're going to have all the answers. And, and Lord knows, I, if, if I actually sent out some of the thoughts I had, uh, that would not, I, I would be in a lot of trouble. Mm-hmm. Not the Hesse, not Vanessa Hudgens, uh, level of trouble, but I mean, you know, people are like, wow, uh, you might not want to say that ever again. Right. And, um, so, but I think just as, as human creatures, we, we are drawn to fame as one of those outputs. Like, well, if David Feldman thinks this, then obviously it's wrong. So, you know, we right. have to go this way. So, um, right. Um, I, I think it, I, th- I think that's just in us. I don't think that's going to change. I really don't. Uh, but I do think that something like this time where we have to social distance, it may get us to appreciate the real people in our lives and not, not the people that we think we know online. Yeah, but be careful around real people because they may not be as informed as Pastor Jonathan Conrad, senior pastor at St. Paul's Lutheran Church in Wilmington, North Carolina. And how do people contact you, sir? Well, they can reach me on Twitter at PJ Conrad. Mm-hmm. And uh, I've got a website, pjconrad.com. Right. And um, that's, I can, I usually put my sermons there. So for those of you who have trouble sleeping, just reach, <laughs> go on over there and Read and listen to your heart's content, and you will be asleep in no time. Great. Let's end with your having the last word. What advice would you give to my listeners during the next week? Because I happen to think, before you know, we're doing this on a Wednesday night, and the information that I'm getting is that this weekend will tell the tale of the tape, whether or not we in fact, dodged a bullet, whether or not we were able to flatten the curve. I have faith, not in Donald Trump. I have faith in this country. I think people are going to be suffering. I think people are going to be dying, and we have to help them. And the best way we can help them is by flattening the curve, staying home. But I have faith that if you're listening to this in five days, and I hope I'm right that we will say that that spike that we were expecting didn't materialize. That's I have faith that this country sometimes gets lucky that you could either respond to that. But I want to give you the last word. Well, I would tell all your listeners out there that we can get through this and we will get through this. Because thinking we won't, I don't think that's the an alternative. We have to be positive, but we also have to be there for one another and to help one another in this time through either prayer or support or jokes or just a phone call uh, from people or just letting people know, hey, you are not alone. I'm scared too, but together we'll get through this. We will. I know we will. Well, you've earned this, sir. 
That's how you get, that's how you get uh, anointed on the David Feldman show. We don't use the Crisco oil. But by the way, what is that? Well, we'll talk about Crisco oil and on the hands and all that kind of stuff. That's an actual thing, right? Oh, okay. I, I was thinking the Crisco was going to be used for something else. <laughs> <laughs> no. <laughs> you may want to say that for the Reverend Barry Lynn. He may yeah, know. Yeah, he may know. yeah, He's, yeah. Uh, yeah, well, I'll ask you about the, the the anointing that goes on. Well, Pastor Jonathan Conrad, thank you very much for coming on the show, and uh, we'll talk to you uh, probably next week. And stand the line for one second. Okay, all flight controllers, go to go for landing. Retro, go. Fido, go. Guidance, go. Control, go. Telcom, go. GNC, go. Ecom, go. Surgeon, go. Capcom, we're go for landing. Eagle, Houston, you're a go for landing. Over. Roger, understand. Go for landing. Three thousand feet. You're listening to the David Feldman Radio Program, you sad, pathetic hump. For more on this, we're joined by epidemiologist Dr. Machef Boney, professor of biology, Pennsylvania State University. I'll link to his writings over at our website. Welcome, Professor. Thank you for coming back. David, thank you very much for having me on again. Thank you. I know this is... uh, your busy season, as they say, in the schmata business. We've never been as busy as we yeah. are now. Yeah. Okay. I'm going to just set the ground rules here. I, I'm going to play the, the part of Mayor Larry Vaughn from Jaws, who doesn't want to close the beaches. I am the eternal optimist. I believe that America, as flawed, deeply flawed as it is, happens to be a lucky country for some, not everybody. I think sometimes we get lucky. I have to be optimistic. And so please take this in the spirit to which it's intended. And that is, uh, I want to push back on some of the hysteria because I'm having mild panic attacks and I'm trying to get my, uh, bearings here. And so are my listeners. So, uh, let me start off with this. Bloomberg, reliable news source. This is the headline. 99% of those who died from the virus had other illnesses. More than 99% of Italy's coronavirus fatalities were people who suffered from previous medical conditions, according to a new study. So we're hearing a lot about Italy. You were on the show last week. We talked about comorbidity. Talk to me again about comorbidity. And what this article in Bloomberg tells you, because isn't it conceivable that old people have leukemia, they contract the coronavirus, and the the coronavirus accelerates the death? But this person, I'm not trying to be insensitive, I'm just trying to figure out how much of my hair to pull out here. It is conceivable that you have the coronavirus, you're told you have the coronavirus, and you have a heart attack and die. 
yes, the coronavirus contributed to your death, but what did you die from, the coronavirus or a heart attack? What are the people in Italy dying from? Are they dying from the coronavirus, or were they old, sick, and this was inevitable? And I'm sorry for this question. So we did talk about some of this last week, about comorbidities. And let's talk about a few different perspectives that we can take on it. Okay. First, if um, if somebody uh, dies as a result of a coronavirus infection, but they had a comorbidity like uh, heart disease, lung disease, diabetes, it's still true that uh, they would not have died that week had it not been for their coronavirus infection. So in these cases, I think it's fair uh, to list coronavirus as a cause of death for these individuals. Okay. Now, you're right uh, in saying that individuals with comorbidities are more predisposed to dying, to progressing to something very severe and critical, not only with a coronavirus infection, but for infections with many infectious diseases. So influenza virus infection, a malaria infection if you live in the developing world, um, many types of infections interact with comorbidities to lower your chances of survival and essentially to increase the likelihood that you'll progress to something for which you need hospitalization or critical care. So th- this is true. This is all true. Okay. I don't think it means that we should view these groups of individuals any differently. Um, it is true that when we look at the overall death rate, we should account for comorbidities because the overall death rate is different for a 40-year-old, depending whether they do or don't have diabetes or depending on whether they are a smoker or not. And it's also true for a 70-year-old and an 80-year-old. So it is good to talk about it in categories. uh, But broadly speaking, uh, we should count these individuals in sort of our overall tally of the the risk that this virus poses to all of us. Okay, and, and thank you for this. And, uh, well, so when you see a study like this, I want to learn how to parse the numbers. Uh, you know, I lived in San Francisco in 1982 at the height of the outbreak of AIDS. Actually, it wasn't the height. They were calling it, uh, I think it was GRID, uh, Gay Immunity a grid, gay-related immune deficiency. First they called it gay plague, then they call it gay-related immune deficiency. Within a year or two, they started calling it AIDS, and we were told a lot of things back in San Francisco in 1982, that AIDS was airborne, that you could get it from kissing, from shaking hands, and then uh, there's no question that it's a disgrace it is a disgrace the way Reagan responded to the, uh, the the outbreak. However, we were told uh, that that it could be passed through types of sex that really it wasn't true. There were specific types of sex that it's passed. By And uh, so there was a lot of misinformation, and a lot of that misinformation was to scare us into funding research for AIDS, which we should have been doing, absolutely. 
but there was a lot of information that seeped out that was inaccurate. And uh, there are some people who thought we were being scared into funding research for AIDS. And again, we, we certainly dropped the ball on AIDS and we're certainly dropping the ball on the coronavirus. But what is true? What isn't? How do we parse the numbers? That's all I'm asking is like, how terrified should we be? China is the tale of the tape. Three months ago, China gets its first outbreak of the coronavirus. On Wednesday of this week, China reported no new cases of home transmission. In other words, all new cases from China are coming from people returning from overseas travel. We're getting reports that Wuhan is slowly coming back to life. The restaurants are open. Does this give you optimism? Before we compare China's response to this crisis with America's response, we'll get to that. But is there a built-in crest to a virus such as this? Or, or do, do we have to depend entirely on science to stop its spread? David, we've got a couple questions here. We've got um, the question of overreacting, underreacting, and misinformation during right. epidemics. And then we've got the question of the epidemic cresting or not. Which one of these do you want to cover first? Uh, well, let's... Uh, okay, overreacting. So your analogy to the 1981-1982 outbreak of HIV and AIDS in San Francisco, Los Angeles, New York, is a very good one. And I was not a scientist in 1981 or 1982, uh, but I've read about this enough to know that there was an underreaction by the general uh, community of people in the United States who should have been worrying about this new virus that had just uh, arrived in the U.S. Absolutely. And, and some of the overreactions that people will label overreactions right now were warranted. And in an emergency like this, it's much better to 10% overreact. It's much better to move with speed and get something done and to later be called out on your overreaction than to sit back and do nothing. So right. this is similar between the 1981-82 outbreak of HIV in the U.S. and what's happening right now with coronavirus. Uh, just so I'm clear here, I'm going to interrupt you if you don't mind. I, again, I think Reagan should have been locked up for his slow response. I saw what happened. I lived in the Castro district. I saw what happened. Uh, it's a disgrace the way this... Uh, that being said, there was a lot of misinformation that was spread. Uh, is that fair to say that we that a lot of people said things that weren't true to wake the American people up? That's right. The, the federal government's response in 1981-82 and going all the way up to 85-86 when Reagan wouldn't address the issue was a disgrace. And by the time Reagan addressed it, 25,000 individuals had died of AIDS. Mm. However, in the NIH, in the National Institutes of Health in the U.S., the National Cancer Institute, on their own, began doing research on HIV and AIDS. They would later discover that it was caused by a virus called the HIV virus. They began doing this research anyway. They didn't need direction and they didn't want input from politicians. They knew that it was important. And these lifelong, dedicated public health officials began doing the research that was necessary 
to develop a test, to develop a test to see if you were protected at all. Eventually, to start looking at a vaccine, which failed, but also this research led to the discovery of drugs by the late 1980s, which is now the only way that we manage HIV cases. And we should mention that there are three people on this planet who have been reportedly cured of AIDS. So there is some... That's that- right. I thought it was two, but if you say it's three, I believe you. This is, we don't yet fully know why, but this has happened uh, a, a small number of times. Cured. There was also N- not of- naturally, but, but, but cured through science. That's right. As far as I know, yes. I'll just tell your listeners that I'm, I'm not an expert on these two okay. or three cases. All right. So, as far as missing, yeah. sorry, go ahead. No, you go ahead. I'm sorry. As far as misinformation goes, we do have better information in 2020 than we did in 1981. And it was hard for people to get good information out of the National Cancer Institute in 1981 because who would have thought, what journalist in some part of America would have thought to call the National Cancer Institute and ask them how their research was going and how concerned they were about the incipient HIV epidemic? Today, it's different. Today, uh, you still have to sort of judge whether you trust a particular news outlet or not. But you can connect yourself to epidemiologists who are interviewed by these news outlets, who uh, express their own opinions on Twitter. And if you search some of the bigger universities in the U.S., I'm at Penn State University. And if you look at uh, Harvard, Yale, Hopkins, University of Toronto, and a handful of others, there are people that are posting, tweeting, and uh, giving their most up-to-date analyses on a daily or weekly basis. Mm-hmm. So we do have access to better information if people know who to follow on these different uh, social networks uh, where, where these results are being posted. Okay, and maybe too much information. There may be too That's much. Right. It, That's right. It may be too much information. I appreciate that for the average person it's not easy uh, to know who to trust in this type of environment. I'll give your listeners two other universities in the UK, Imperial College London and the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine. And if you go to any of these institutions and go to their Twitter accounts, you'll find the investigators and the epidemiologists who are giving you the best opinions and the best analyses to date. Okay. And that's why I'm having you on the show. And again, I'm playing the part of Larry Vaughn, the mayor in Jaws, who wants to keep the the uh, the beach open. Uh, is there a built-in crest to a virus like this? Yes. Epidemics have built-in crests. So an epidemic uh, begins by infecting a small number of people, and it uh, begins in an exponential growth phase. So you'll see three cases one week, nine the next week, and then all of a sudden it's 27 and 100 and 500 before you know it. That initial phase is very fast. Mm-hmm. But it does not grow exponentially forever. That growth begins to slow down when the virus begins to run out of susceptible individuals because the virus is infecting people, and as a result of these infections, individuals become immune, and normally they cannot become infected again. So these crests or these peaks of epidemics in in this situation uh, an epidemic like this would peak after two or three months and then the major epidemic wave would begin to wane and recede now the downside of just waiting for this crest to arrive 
is that during this time, a lot of people will get infected, and that means that a lot of people will die. And because the case fatality rate is sort of in this 0.5% to 1% range, and I'm sorry, I should tell your listeners that that's the infection fatality rate, not the case fatality rate. But because the infection fatality rate is in the 0.5% to 1% range, 1% of 100 million people is a million people, and that is a lot of potential deaths for a society to suffer. Right, right. Uh, so the difference between those two rates is one is case rate that's a, that we know of, and then this the infection rate among the general population. Where not that's everybody exactly is. right. Okay, a, a, a case is somebody who is detected, uh, and an infection is somebody who just gets infected, and then they may or may not be detected by the health system. I see, and we do need. Unfortunately, people contracting the virus in order to build up antibodies. Is that correct? That's right. I don't know if I would use the verb need because this is a really hard process for a population to go through. Yeah. We are, we are already here. The epidemic has infected 10,000 Americans. That's confirmed number of infections. So yeah. there's probably 20, 30, 40,000 others that have not been confirmed. And Slowly, these we are going to build up the number of immune individuals, but this is not an ideal way to cope with this epidemic. A much better way, as we talked to your listeners last time, a much better way is to flatten the curve and to make this epidemic as slow and as mild as possible so that many of us or most of us get it, but in a way that doesn't stress the health system, doesn't cause additional deaths, and at the end of the day, in a way, so we infect or have infected as few people as possible. And so the antibodies, it is conceivable that a healthy person gets the virus, the antibodies kick in and beat the virus. Is that fair to say? Is that how it works? You that beat, is accurate. And, and, you, yep. and you don't show signs of the virus? You, you, you. Well, that, that, that depends. There's a spectrum. So 99% of people will survive. And these people, some of them will have a very mild infection with a little bit of a dry cough. Some people will have a dry cough and a fever. Some people may be bedridden for three days. And some people may have no symptoms at all. And but it, 99%. And the antibodies are the. Do we take those antibodies from the people who beat the virus and use those antibodies to make the vaccine? Or how does that work? Vaccination works a, a little bit differently. When you develop a vaccine, you, you have to isolate the virus. Viruses are very, very small things. And you have to take some of the proteins off of the surface of the virus. These are the proteins that our immune system recognizes. And essentially, you have to put those proteins into some type of injectable formulation that you can inject into somebody's arm. What happens is you inject this vaccine into somebody's arm. It's got little bits of virus protein in it, or sometimes it even has the whole virus in it, but it's an inactivated version. And then your immune system is essentially fooled into reacting to this uh, protein or this dead virus and creating antibodies. So this is the, the magic of vaccination. This is a, a technology that has saved tens of millions of lives, maybe hundreds of millions of lives over the last hundred years. 
Just a slight detour. I read 20 years ago that we learned how to inoculate against smallpox from the slaves that were brought over from Africa. Did you ever hear anything about that, that they that, that they would take the sores and, and remove the pus and then give it to other slaves? And it was observed, and then people said, this is how we can kill smallpox. Have you ever heard that? I I have heard this. I'll, I'll tell you what I know about the, the most commonly discussed story of how smallpox vaccination was developed. And it, it was in England, and it was um, a physician who was doing exactly what you just described, uh, taking the pus um, from the pustules of smallpox patients and uh, essentially making an incision in the arm of a healthy person, putting that pus inside their blood, and then waiting and hoping that that person would later be immune to smallpox. Mm. So this was done uh, on uh, British people, not on slaves. It was done both with cowpox and with smallpox, and it was done with different varieties of smallpox. So the clinicians could distinguish the more virulent and the less virulent types of smallpox to see which ones would be better candidates at trying to uh, inoculate people. Right. I, I've heard about the slave story, but I can't give you uh, any other descriptions of it. Right. This isn't. I'm not. Uh, what I've read is that the the slaves brought the cure with them. That they knew to do this. They had learned that from their their traditions in Africa. That's what I had read. But let's move on. That's for another show. I read that epidemiologists needed the very least fourteen consecutive days without any new infections. Uh, and, and once you get 14 consecutive days without any infections, the, the outbreak can be reclassified as either contained or over. Uh, why 14 days? And if China goes 14 days without any new infections, let's hope that this is what the trend is. What does that mean? Will there be second waves in China of the infection? What, what, why 14 days? And then what could we expect once it's called contained? Here's where the 14-day number comes from. You have a 95% chance of developing symptoms within the first 14 days of infection. So if you touch a doorknob on a Monday... Then you and then you touch your face. Uh, there's a 95% chance that within the next 14 days to the following Monday and to the Monday after that, that you'll develop symptoms at that point. And after that, it's now unlikely that you'll develop symptoms. So this is why 14 days is used as the quarantine period, and it's also used as this um, um, safety period for a community. So if a community hasn't seen new cases in 14 days, that's pretty good news. Maybe mm -hmm. transmission has stopped completely. If that community is small, if it's a, a town of several thousand people and you can be fairly sure that you've tested almost everybody and you've looked at everybody that's had symptoms, then this is a good sign that transmission has stopped. But if you're looking at Hubei province or the city of Wuhan, places that have you know 10 million people or 60 million people, you are still at risk of having a lot of undetected cases. So you may have had no cases in the last 14 days, but you don't know, as you mentioned before, if there are some 
asymptomatic people or some mildly symptomatic people that have been circulating in the population and perhaps spreading the virus. What is this second wave? We read about the flu, the Spanish flu, that there was a, a second wave to it. Why is there a second wave? This is a very important conversation, so let's spend a little bit of time okay. on this second wave and what it is and whether it's coming and, and how. In China, they have managed to suppress the epidemic so that um, it's not creating new infections. Um, in the spring of 1918, we had a situation where we had a minor outbreak of Spanish flu, and then the Spanish flu was suppressed in the summer of 1918, and we didn't seem to have a lot of new infections. But in both of these situations, the virus is still there and people are still susceptible. You have a situation where maybe 1% or 2% of the population is immune because they've had it, but that's not nearly enough immunity in the population to prevent the virus from spreading again. So what will happen in these situations is the virus will come back again when conditions are favorable. And what are favorable conditions? Well, for influenza, favorable conditions are uh, winter and uh, low humidity. For this new coronavirus, favorable conditions might be when schools reopen or when a society decides to relax its social distancing measures. And now the virus will be primed and ready to reignite a second epidemic wave that we would then have to be ready for and we would have to respond to. And hopefully by then there's a vaccine. Hopefully by then there is either a vaccine or improved hospital capacity or improved testing capacity or all of them if we're lucky and we really manage to get our act together. So what makes this coronavirus so lethal? Is it because it's so contagious? It's easier to catch than, say, other viruses? Or is it because it's so dangerous once you have it? I'm not sure we know why it's deadly. And for your listeners, there's two characteristics of a virus that are important to understand. One is how contagious is it, and the other is how deadly is it. And in principle, these two things can be totally independent. You can have viruses that are not contagious and not deadly. You can have viruses that are both very contagious and very deadly, and some that are deadly but not contagious and contagious but not deadly. So you can have sort of any combination of these two things. And this virus appears to be uh, contagious enough, let's say, or we could just simply say that it's very contagious. It's clearly spread all over the world. The proof is in the pudding. It's infected 220,000 people so far. Mm -hmm. And uh, we do know how deadly it is because we've been able to measure the infection fatality ratio at about 1% and the case fatality ratio at about 3%. But do we know why? Well, we know that it leads to pneumonia, and we know that pneumonia is very dangerous and it can lead to death. But anything more specific, I, I'm not sure if we know why. Right, right. And, it again, it, it's tending to be a respiratory illness. It manifests itself in the lungs. Is that what we're concluding? That's right. It replicates in cells that you have in your lungs, in your throat, and I think in your nose. I don't know how successful the virus is at a being sneezed out, but I, I wouldn't be surprised. But yeah, the main replication is in your lungs, both in your upper respiratory tract and then and also deeper in your lung, which is called the lower respiratory tract. All right. Uh, a lot of younger people are referring to the virus as boomer 
removal. Uh, I, I want to learn how to parse numbers here. You're an epidemiologist. And what I'm trying to teach myself and the listeners is how to read the news properly. So young people are calling it boomer removal. Uh, kind of funny, older people preferred Biden, younger people prefer Bernie, younger, I hear younger people saying things like, uh, you know, the boomers left us broke, in debt, no jobs, no health care, an unwillingness to address climate change. So let's pay a visit to grandma, make sure she can't vote in November. Uh, so let's look at these numbers. The CDC said this week, 38% of Americans with the virus who had to be hospitalized were between the ages of 20 to 54. 38% of Americans. I want to learn how to parse statistics and numbers here. 38% of Americans with the virus who had to be hospitalized were between the ages of 20 to 54. 20% of the hospitalized patients were between the ages of 20 and 44. 12% of the intensive care patients were between the ages of 20 and 44. Uh, So that there are two ways to read this, as I see it, doctor. One is young people think they're immune to this, but 38% of Americans with the virus who had to be hospitalized were between the ages of 20 to 54. That's one way to look at it. But 12% of intensive care patients are between the ages of 20 and 44. Could an argument be made if you're a boomer? Hey, only 12% of the ICU patients are between the ages of 20 and 44. Sure, you get hospitalized, but uh you don't end up in the ICU. Is that one way to read this and, and, and for you to conclude, yeah, it, it, the young people aren't as susceptible to the virus as older people are? So let's spend a little bit of time on these age-specific risks. And this yeah. CDC report that you're referring to, this is from yesterday. This is a March 18th report Yes, from the CDC on the first group of hospitalizations in the U.S. Yeah. First, I just want to say, again, for your listeners, I think uh, the phrase boomer removal is a really ugly term. Yes. As an epidemiologist, I would never use this. Yes. And as somebody who works in public health, we try to improve the lives and the health of populations and individuals as best we can. Yes. I completely understand the some of the grievances that uh, millennials and even my generation have towards the boomer generation, but these are separate issues that can can be discussed after this epidemic is over. Yep. I have nephews who have OK Boomer t-shirts, and yep. uh, they think it's funny, but this is for a later time. We yes. can retake yes. this discussion in a year. Yes. So the age-specific risks. Um, this CDC report was a little surprising. As you said, the 20 to 44, the 45 to 54 age groups have hospitalization rates that were higher than I expected. So uh, something like uh, 20 to 30 percent for 45 to 54, that's your risk of uh, of being hospitalized. It's in the 15 to 20 percent range for 20 to 44s. And if these numbers hold up, if um, we get other data supporting that it, these really are the hospitalization rates, 
then the summary is that this virus really is dangerous to younger people, and they shouldn't be going out to bars. They shouldn't be congregating in large groups. They are putting themselves at risk, and they're putting their parents and their grandparents at risk if they contract something and then go spend time with them. If you look in the CDC report, the last thing they have is the death rate or the case fatality. And the case fatality in this report is similar uh, to case fatality rates that have been computed for other countries. So the case fatalities are still in the 10 to 20 percent range for the over 70, uh, over 75 age group. They are in the 2 to 5 percent range for the over 65 age group. And they're quite low. The case fatality rates are quite low for the individuals in their 20s and 30s. Okay, and let's make sure we understand what a case fatality rate is. The case fatality rate is the probability that you will die if you get the disease and then become symptomatic or sufficiently symptomatic that you would want to visit a health system. Okay. So it's like the top... 60% or the top 50% of severe infections. Right. Again, this is because we lack critical thinking in America and don't know how to parse data. That doesn't mean that 2.5% of people over the age of 65 are going to die from the virus or 2.5% of people over the age of 65 who get the virus are going to die. 2.5% who end up as a case inside a hospital or being monitored by a doctor that is a case that's the case fatality rate correct that's right a case is anybody who is symptomatic enough to go to a doctor to seek care you don't have to be hospitalized or anything like that you just have to feel bad enough that you're going to report to a health system that makes you a case suppose you're over the age of 65 and you test positive for the coronavirus but you're showing no symptoms are you considered a case yes you are considered a case if you test positive for the coronavirus and you're 65 and you're showing no symptoms you should call your doctor because it's entirely possible that in the next two or three days you will progress to more severe symptoms and it's better to get that care early It's not a good idea to go into the hospital late when your symptoms are already severe. Right. I'm just learning how to parse numbers here. So if you're if you're uh, if you're 20 years old and you test for the virus and you test positive, but you're showing no symptoms, 14 days pass and you had it. Are you considered a case even if you tested positive, but you're fine? Oh, I I would say no in that case. If you had no symptoms and you were tested, that means that you volunteered to be tested even though you had no symptoms. Mm -hmm. So that person is not a case. That person is someone who uh, is infected with the virus asymptomatically. And if you're 20 and you have no symptoms and you get tested as positive, stay home. And as long as you don't have symptoms, stay home, get lots of sleep. Right. Uh, drink lots of fluids, and you'll recover. Okay. We've been talking with epidemiologist Dr. Macek F. Boney, professor of biology at Pennsylvania State University. I will link to his writings over at our website. Uh, Deborah Bricks, Burks, Dr. Deborah Burks, she's one of Donald Trump's top coronavirus advisors. You see her on the stage with him during the press conferences. She says, as testing becomes more 
widespread and we hope it becomes more widespread, we should expect the numbers to spike, kind of like uh, a national election. You know, uh, California and Texas haven't voted yet. Once we count those votes, there'll be a spike in numbers. Uh, I want to ask you, you're an epidemiologist, uh, how do you know when the curve has flattened? You know, if everybody's testing, then we're going to see horrible numbers. I mean, I've been told this weekend is crucial that that we should see people showing up in emergency rooms right about now. Uh, how do you read the numbers? How do you know when when the curve has finally flattened? In elections, they rely on exit polls, samplings, and then they're able to project how the rest of America voted. We're going to be inundated as Americans. You know, we're going to go to the CDC and see this enormous spike, but that's because of the, the test numbers are coming in. The curve may it's be very fl- difficult. Yeah, the curve may yeah. be flattening, even though it's spiking. Yeah, it's, it's very difficult, as you pointed out, for two reasons. One, we are going to have an increase in testing, we're all assuming, over the coming months, and then it's difficult to compare the current month to the previous month when individuals weren't tested. And two, a lot of the uh, the behavior, the, the trajectory of the epidemic depends our, on our own behavior. So if we relax and start going to bars again, then the epidemic will begin to spike again. And if we all stay home, the curve will flatten. And when the curve is flat or flattening, it's a little difficult to detect the peak. So in general, in this situation, I'm not sure when we'll be able to say if we are at peak coronavirus and if we may be declining. But there's going to be another method in a few months that we'll be able to use to make this assessment. And um, let's spend a minute telling your listeners what this is going to be. When we have a good test to measure antibodies in people, and let's say that by June we have something developed and a study in place where we can sample a lot of people efficiently, we'll be able to go out to the general population, ask for some small blood draws from thousands of people, and we'll be able to say that 20% of the population has antibodies, 5% of the population has antibodies, 50% has antibodies. If we can do that, then we'll really know if we're past the peak and if the epidemic is going to start uh, receding and waning. In terms of samplings, we need to keep an eye on emergency rooms. That would tell us how bad this pandemic is. Is that a fair statement? Yes, that's right. So both uh, emergency room visits and admissions to the intensive care units of hospitals, these have already begun to spike. And these are some of the early signals that we have to be looking for because they do tell us there are a lot of cases. And they also tell us that the ICUs, for example, are approaching capacity and we need to do something quickly. The ICUs are approaching capacity. They are, and I haven't followed all of them. I'm in touch with the Rhode Island Department of Health to see what their capacity and testing situation is. Um, they are not yet at capacity or in a critical situation, but I, but I think in Washington and New York, there are places that are approaching this capacity. Okay. Let's end on an upbeat note. Thank you so much for doing this. I, I, I cannot thank you enough. And again, I, was playing the part of Mayor Larry Vaughn from Jaws uh, 
you know, don't panic, you know, that kind of stuff. Uh, sure. I, I, you know, I just want to, uh, uh, you know, I always play on this show the exchange between Mission Control and Apollo 13. That's my mm-hmm. mantra. I, I listen to the, the court, the, the conversations between James Lovell, I think it was Gene Kranz, uh, and they just remained calm. I mean, the, the Apollo 13 was losing oxygen and these guys were going to die. And I, I always play Gene, I think it's Gene Kranz. I'm embarrassed to say that. I'm not sure, but, uh, you know, let's remain calm here. Don't guess. And that's always the best way to, uh, live your life. The Civil War, horrible, no question. But from the Civil War, a new generation of surgeons emerged, and the world was better off. Uh, what is the positive from this pandemic? What are what are, what are epidemiologists going to get from this to make this world better and safer? Well, the positive may be that in 2021 or 2022, we can persuade Congress to create uh, a nationally functioning public health system that can respond to an emergency. I mean, this may be a positive. Everybody will see that it's not uh, a waste of money, that it's not a hypothetical. It's something that's already happened, and it could certainly happen again. That's one positive. I mean, I, I hate to be the pessimist on your show, David, but before we get to that positive, there's going to be pain and suffering and people are going to die. Um, the Apollo 13 analogy is a really good one. Remain calm because you have to remain calm to manage an emergency. But those people managing the crisis on Apollo 13, they knew that it was a crisis. So we all have to acknowledge that this is a crisis for the next 12 months. We have to remain calm, manage it as best we can. And then by next summer or the following summer, I hope we can get to some of these positives. Uh, a nationalized public health system or health system or both. Something where every American, every state, every city, every town can get rapid, immediate access to care in an emergency like this one. Any governors impressing you? Well, Jay Inslee in Washington um has impressed me. I haven't followed everything in Washington state for the last week or two, but in the initial uh, spike of cases, he understood how serious it was. And he, I believe declared an emergency earlier than uh, the federal government and helped the state of Washington get uh, testing rolled out, get contact tracing done, which is identifying individuals that are at risk. So I was very impressed with his response. And then in California, Gavin Newsom, uh, a week or more ago, uh, asked that hotels be made available for the, the coming surge of patients. And I think that was uh, also a very good idea. Okay. Last question. What is the most important thing you would like to tell my listeners? I am very sorry to be repetitive, but flatten the curve. This is a real thing. This is something that we can do and we have control over. Just by minimizing your contacts, not going to large dinner parties, skipping spring break, not going to bars, you will remove yourself as a link in the transmission chain of this infection. You'll slow down the epidemic. Fewer people will get infected and fewer people will die. And there'll be time to discuss conspiracy theories in a year. 
now is exactly not- in a in a year we'll worry about conspiracies, the economy, and everything else. All that stuff we're going to get back. All the economic productivity that we've lost this year, we're going to get back in 2021 and 2022. But our loved ones that pass away, we're not going to get them back. Right. We can talk about the the Davos and the Trilateral Commission and all that stuff. That's uh, going to be dessert. But first, let's flatten the curve. We have been talking with epidemiologist Dr. Machef Boney, professor of biology, Pennsylvania State University. I'll link to his writings over at my website. How do people follow you on Twitter? So it's at Machef Boney, M-A-C-I-E-K-B-O-N-I. And I think last time you tweeted out my Twitter handle along with your podcast. Yes, yes, and I'll do that again. Thank you, doctor. Can you stand the line for one quick second? Yes, thank you very much for having me on, oh, David. Thank it's. Believe me, <laughs> thank you. I was going to say the pleasure is mine, but to be honest with you, this hasn't been a pleasure. But yeah. <laughs> David, do you have a? Do you have a? Are we off? Uh, oh, hang on. Are yeah. we off? Let, let me let me stop yeah. one second. Hang on for one second. You're listening to the David Feldman Radio Program, you sad, pathetic hump. Let us now go to Washington, D.C., where the Reverend Barry W. Lynn is standing by. He was the executive director of Americans United for Separation of Church and State from 1992 to November of 2017. Besides being a, a lawyer, he is also an ordained minister in the United Church of... Let me see if I got this right. Christ? Perfect. That is so perfect. Thank you. That is just wonderful. Let me ask you a question. Yes. Please. We're going to, we're going to talk about the, everything, the Corona task force, Elizabeth Warren, the bailouts, Dick Burr, and, uh, we'll do our religious nut of the week. Let me, let me just throw this out there. I'm the eternal optimist. Okay. Do you really think it's going to be that bad? I'm talking about this segment, not the coronavirus. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the segment won't be as bad as the coronavirus. The coronavirus is terrible. I mean, it's much worse than a lot of people think. And I fully expect, you know, I'm not a doctor, but I am married to one. And she used to do public health in the District of Columbia. So I do take a a lot of information from her. But I believe that we will see one million deaths from this and that two-thirds of the American people, roughly 200 million of us, will become infected by the time this plays out six to eight months from now. And that's pretty serious. And then of the million people that die, uh, two-thirds of them will be people 60 and above. And uh, that puts me, I don't know how old you are, but it puts a lot of people I know in the highly vulnerable position and we have never planned for this we haven't done the right thing we haven't done the right thing for a long time we have all of the health disparities that you and i talk about a lot and um, we have uh, frankly uh, 
a collection of idiots, with the exception of Dr. Anthony Fauci, who are supposed to be guiding the policy to make sure that this doesn't put us weeks from now into the position where Italy is in as you and I speak. China. China has gone a couple of days without any confirmed cases. If we believe them. Okay. China, 80,928 confirmed cases out of 1.3 billion people, 3,245 have died. We lose 50,000 people each year to the influenza. In a bad year. Yeah. Yeah, but this one, um, this is a much more lethal virus. This is not run-of-the-mill influenza. You have to, to, to find this kind of, of toxicity. You have to go back to the 1918 so-called Spanish flu that desolated whole sections of the entire world and did, of course, hundreds of thousands of deaths right here in the United States in 1918. So this is much worse, and we are, if anything, less prepared than we were in 1918. We shouldn't be. We're a wealthy country. We have all kinds of knowledge, money, but we haven't used it right and that's why I think we're seeing this astronomical increase. It shouldn't surprise anyone. If you, if you have six people and you're doubling the rate of infection, the second day you have 12 people and then you have 24 people and then you have 48 people. And this is why these astonishing numbers come out of places like New York City, where every morning you wake up, you turn on the television and you realize Within the city of New York, they've doubled the number of infections. And, of course, a lot of people are infected, but we don't know that because we don't have enough test kits. Right. Right. So I think it's really, I don't think it's end of the world, cataclysmic, but I think if you lose, if I'm right, I hope I'm not right, but if you lose a million people because of this, then I think you have to wonder who's responsible. And the president, of course, says it's China because China didn't tell us enough. But, of course, we increasingly know that they told us a lot, but that Donald Trump and the administration decided not to listen to them. Okay. I'm not trying to be irresponsible here, and I'm just... Let me read you this number. Pretend Barack Obama is president. And I tell you that China had 80,928 confirmed cases. It's now somewhat contained, they say. We can expect a second wave. And 3,245 people in China died from it. And it seems to be at this point somewhat under control. We can expect a second wave, but... 3,245. One death is too many. Out of 1.3 billion people, 3,245 citizens of China have died. And it seems to have crested. (laughs) Um, But your point is 
what? I don't know. Well, a lot of people in China don't live. I mean, there's a huge number of people in these very crowded cities, but there's also an enormous rural population in China. And to the extent that uh, they uh, are, by default, social distancing, that is, they don't live that terribly close to the people in the village or out in the farms, they're not likely to spread the virus or get the virus. But I'm very skeptical of these numbers in China. I mean, I I don't want to, uh, this is not a, a criticism of the Chinese people, but it certainly uh, appears to me that the Chinese government is uh, often acts in a reprehensible way. And I just am not convinced that these numbers that we're getting are honest numbers from honest brokers, because I'm not sure the government of China has such people. Okay. Let us now, t- uh, I hope I'm right. Yeah, I do too. I hope I'm right. Let us now talk about the Corona Task Force. Are you impressed at all with Donald Trump lately? <laughs> no, I mean, I, I find myself, um, I find myself, I'm sorry, I just hit something here, but, um, every day since I'm in place here, my wife is working from home. We don't go out of the house except to take a two mile walk every afternoon. And, but at, at 1130 or 12 o'clock when the Corona, virus task force meets i'm glued to the television set to watch these people function or in a sense dysfunction what i don't understand whenever the president stands up there he has notes and uh he he looks at those notes but he he babbles he doesn't he can't put sentences together in a way that makes Anyone, and that it doesn't make me feel confident that he even knows what he's talking about. But if his numbers had have not gone down, something like thirty-five to thirty-eight percent of America believes what he says, and also thinks he's doing a wonderful job. And of course, even the there are people on MSNBC, there are people on CNN who say, "Well, in relatively speaking, Donald Trump really sounds good now because he doesn't lie constantly, or he's not lying obviously." Occupy Democrats, one of the more you know progressive uh, Democratic Party offshoots, has a marvelous uh, three-minute video that juxtaposes both Donald Trump's statements about this being a hoax with what he says now about how dangerous it is, and then shifts to Fox News characters, including Tucker Carlson, uh, Trish Regan, who's, I think, been fired by Fox, and also everyone's least favorite commentator, Laura Ingram, talking about how this is a hoax, how this is just another effort to impeach the president. But now in the last roughly 48 hours, the Fox people have been told, um, treat this a little seriously. And so now they have. But I mean, it's astonishing. And I think it's, it's important that people take a listen to what was said 
a week ago, two weeks ago, what's being said now, and realize that these people are full of crap, that they are talking now about this as a serious matter, when they helped to contribute to the idea that it was not serious as, as recently as 10 days ago. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the, the media in this country is doing a pretty pathetic job, I think, of covering all of this. And there are huge issues that nobody talks about. They don't talk about what do you do, for example. They have these heart-wrenching, and they are heart-wrenching pictures of children, adult children, looking at their at their even more aged parents in nursing homes. They can't go into the nursing homes, so they look through the windows and try to communicate with people, frankly, many of whom appear to have dementia. They don't know what's going on. All they can do is see somebody who they may or may not recognize, their child, outside a window trying to wave to them. Right. But where where is the consideration of what you do with these people in serious uh, problems in, in nursing homes? We don't have enough protective gear we don't have enough masks we don't have enough tests one of the things we need to do is we need to test people do blood tests to determine whether someone had the virus because that's the only way you determine whether someone is in theory immune from getting the virus it, there's not much evidence. There's a couple of individual cases, but there's not much evidence that if you get the virus, uh, you're going to be able, you're going to get it again because you're probably immune in the same way that most viruses. You get something and then you get over it, and then you don't get it a second time. So how how are that. we? Let me let me. You've been doing this for a while. Uh, living in Washington, people have agendas, don't they? Of course they do. And people bring their expertise to any conversation. So if you ask a reverend about the coronavirus, he's going to filter it through, not necessarily you, but you're going to filter it through your knowledge of the scripture and if you ask a lawyer, he should filter it through his knowledge of our legal system. If you ask a journalist or a podcast host or MSNBC, they filter it through the prism of Trump drop the ball. You turn on MSNBC and their go to is Trump dropped the ball. Uh, yeah, I know he did. Of course he did. He's Donald Trump. Uh, I can't, I just wonder about our critical thinking right now. Are we able to consider the source of all our information? Who is telling us this stuff and why? What is their agenda? Well, yeah, we, we can and we should do that, but there is a tendency, um, these days and for the last many days, many years, uh, to focus on one of our favored 
commentators. If you like Fox News, then you're going to believe Laura Ingram. You're going to believe Tucker Carlson. You're going to believe Sean Hannity. If you like MSNBC, um, then you think, i got to listen to Rachel tonight. Oh, what does Chris Hayes think? Because we, we've segregated ourselves into those. And then, of course, the old... The thought was, well, at least CNN is kind of the go-to neutral observer. But I think that that's not true either. I think, if anything, uh, CNN these days cares too much about getting these comments from the administration. I don't think, I literally don't think Kellyanne Conway has anything to contribute to any conversation if what you're looking for is substance. She's told what to say. She says it. People either like it or hate it. Right. I, I think the point, people I, I, I think substance. The, yeah, I think the question that we should ask ourselves is, what is your job? What is it that you Want. So I would think if you live in a small town in Northern California and you're the fire chief of a, a small town in Northern California and you're halfway competent, every city council meeting, you're going to warn of a forest fire. You're going to constantly scream that we don't have enough firefighters. We don't have the equipment we need. There's this bad thing coming. And I'm telling you, we don't want to be unprepared. Uh, and then, well, they, they did have <laughs> some pretty bad fires and they, they were. That's right. Yeah. Uh, and <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But this, we, we know this happened. We, we, there were forest fires and I know what you're, you're getting at. It's the job of people look- who we, we, we trust certain people to protect us. And, right. and since they're entrusted with this sacred duty, they feel and rightfully so obligated to, to turkey lurkey things. <laughs> yeah, but you see, if you're using critical thinking, one of the things you look at is the data. And you look at this data and you look at this uh, geometric growth in the number of cases and you look at how many hospitals do exist, how many ICU beds, intensive care beds do exist, and you look at how many are filled already. I mean, a lot of people are in the hospitals in intensive care because of either the regular flu, which, as you point out, can be really deadly also, or their heart attack their cancers, their, it's not like everything is empty and then this coronavirus comes along and you say, well, well let's put this person in bed one, this person in bed two, because maybe those are already filled. And what about these masks? You know, people were buying masks because they thought if you wore them outside, you wouldn't get the virus. And that's, of course, there's very little evidence that that does you any good at all. If you're coughing, you want to have one of these masks on because then you don't want the droplets, which is the easiest and most obvious way that this spreads, to go from your mouth or nose into somebody else's face. But we don't have enough. 
Okay, so I mean, so how do we? How are we supposed? I'm just asking. Sure. Let me read you a couple of headlines. Okay. Sure. Yep. Newly unemployed grapple with fallout. U.S. jobless claims could top record 1.5 million next week. Half of patients have digestive symptoms. Uh, outbreaks spreading in nursing homes. ER doctor said, like this one, ER doctor says hospital supplies already being rationed. Well, I clicked on that and they're already being rationed in preparation for the spike. But it sounds like they're already overflowing with patients and they have to ration out of necessity. No, it's being rationed in Denver because they're preparing for the spike. Um yeah, but again, they these are people, unlike you and I, who um, who don't just think about these issues and have opinions about it, but these are based on predictions of epidemiologists here in the United States, coast to coast, the world-class people, which occasionally, all right, these people are occasionally even allowed to come on CNN and say something that's based on actual information. Right. And I do think that we have to believe them. And we it's not just because of their position. It's not because they're a professor of epidemiology or a virologist or in one case, a guy is both of those things, but it's because they actually have data. And if you don't drive an issue like what do you do with this crisis or potential crisis, if you don't think it's a crisis yet, you, you need data. You need to look at it. You can have no filter, no political agenda. So you can't be a Democrat just trying to make Donald Trump look bad. And you can't be a sycophant for Donald Trump and just hope this doesn't undermine his reelection chances. There is data. It's good data. And it's, you know, one or two anecdotes do not prove a point. That's not enough. But you start to accumulate this data. And I think the data is overwhelmingly negative. It is we have not prepared and arguably, not even we weren't prepared for this before Donald Trump even became the president. Okay, well, let's turn to the religious nut of the week. And before yes, before you talk about Perry Stone, yes. Again, I I'm telling people stay home, flatten the curve, obey the CDC. Uh, yep. Uh, but. You know, we noticed that CO2 levels in Wuhan are down. The smog is disappearing. The environment is getting better because of people staying home. That resetting right. our economy, resetting our values, taking a Sabbath and figuring out what we really need and what we want is a healthy thing to do. It's a necessity. We've been going at this pace that's destroying the planet. So I, there's a part of me, because I do have an agenda to get rid of fossil fuels, to get rid of Donald sure. Trump, to, sure. to, to, to put an end to these wars and, and to cut Pentagon funding in half and and spend the money on something like a pandemic to change our 
public health infrastructure. So it's equipped to deal not just with a pandemic, but the epidemic of millions of people who are uninsured or underinsured. So I have an agenda to look at this pandemic and say, you see, we had it coming and and this is it. This is going to be the proof that we have to change our ways. I'm going to. And so Jerry Falwell used 9-11, his infamous speech where he blamed the gays, the sodomites. That's the, right. The, the secular atheists, they they caused the towers to come down. People use events like this to push people towards their agenda. Tell me about uh, Perry Stone. Well, Perry Stone is um, a, lives in Tennessee, has a ministry down there. He's not as well known as some of the people, including the uh, gentleman uh, whose uh, office you uh, you spoke to last uh, week on, on this broadcast. But Perry Stone is kind of obsessed these days with the coronavirus. And three times in the last week, he's done sermons about it. In one, he explained that uh, the reason that this is worst in, in three states, the three heaviest hit states at the moment, Washington State, California, New York, is it because they're blue states, because they're states that do not support the efforts of, of his uh, chosen leader, Donald Trump. Then he went on and did what Jerry Falwell uh, did, as you pointed out, after 9-11. He said, uh, Perry Stone said that this is an example of a curse from God. God because of abortion and gays. Mm-hmm. So he kind of repeated that. Right. And then finally has a theory that the reason that old people, older people, are, are dying at a higher clip than younger people is because this is an effort by Satan uh, to get rid of people who are conservative, morally conservative people, and as he put it a few days ago, will not accept the mark of the beast. This, of course, is a a kind of a fringe theory in Christianity that the beast is coming and uh, it will mark people. And if you have a mark of the beast, and he said a lot of young, young people have it because of their profligacy and their their gayness and their sex and their everything, those people they're going to accept the mark of the beast but the older people won't accept it so they have to be killed right now and when you look at these uh, scenes of beaches in Florida um, you know it's hard not to disagree with him I mean here there were five people young people interviewed on CBS Evening News just a day or so ago. And these were all people who were saying things like, hey, I mean, I, I might have the corona, but I mean, I, I don't if I get the corona. I mean, I paid a lot of money to come down here and party. One woman said, you know, it's my 21st birthday. What am I supposed to do? I want to have a good time. These are people sitting right Lord knows what else they're doing. I'm, I'm sure your listeners can imagine it. But this is this is ridiculous. These are people who do not believe that they are vulnerable to this. And there's a mounting evidence that they are. But let, let's say they're not, they're not going to be as vulnerable as I would be. 
They're doing. They're not changing any of their behavior. They're putting themselves at risk, and they're putting people like me at greater risk because, to the extent that they are carriers of this, remember, one of the things we don't know is how many people are infected because we don't test enough people, and then even if we had enough test kits. We don't have enough blood tests to determine whether someone's actually over the virus. So these these kids, I mean, I, those five kids, they actually know who they are, mm-hmm. um, and their the names. And I, I was thinking that I would think it would be a public service if someone just uh, wrote the names down, uh, put it on a big internet page, uh, so that any f- future employer could look at them and make sure that they're not thinking of hiring any one of those five people. Yeah. Yeah. Then then again, we have bigger fish to fry. Maybe our news media should just be interviewing more and more epidemiologists and scientists and not focusing on the, the dimwits. Yeah, but here's the problem with that. If you don't focus on the dimwits, it's if you see these people, you go, God, those people are dimwits. But it's not that they're dimwits. It's that they're causing a danger. The reason you want to flatten out this curve, the phrase everybody uses, is so that you don't overwhelm the system. If, if in fact, you're more right than I am, it's because enough people have said, I'm not going to go and contract this because it's the contracting of the virus right now when we are underprepared for it, that's when it reaches that point of not just thinking about how you uh, parcel uh, parcel out uh, uh, whatever you're trying to distribute in the hospital because you don't have as many people getting sick at the same time. That's why it's important to flatten the curve so that you give this a chance to go on its pace for months and months and months and not overwhelm hospitals in two weeks. Okay. That's why you have to show the, you know, if you don't show these dimwits, um, people, they don't even want to believe it. So if an epidemiologist says, um, you know, there are a lot of young people, uh, they're, they're partying a lot on the beaches and uh, they shouldn't do that. That's not quite, doesn't have the impact of seeing these idiots talk to a correspondent on CBS a day ago. Because then you go, I, I hope my own kid is not thinking the same way. Very quickly, we have to wrap it up. Dick yeah. Burr, Senate Intelligence, yeah. Chairman of the Senate Intelligence Committee. What did he do? Well, according to uh, tape released uh, earlier today by National Public Radio, they have a tape of him telling a bunch of wealthy donors on the 27th of February that what is about to happen with the coronavirus is, in his words, akin to the 1918 pandemic. And now while Trump was still saying that uh, all this would disappear, Richard Burr, who's not the wealthiest member of of the Senate by any means, but he sold close to a million dollars of stock on February the 13th, just as he was receiving these classified briefings where at least some people in the administration said, we are looking at a 
coming disaster. So he talks to the public. We were looking into this. He's looking into his stock portfolio and selling many of his holdings all on the same day. Now, normally you'd call that insider trading, but uh, technically it isn't. Yeah, yeah. But it's dishonest. It's immoral. Now, the standard... Um, the standard is not what you can get away with. The standard is what is right to do. And these people who are seeking the bailouts now, and I would uh, hope that uh, this in one second here, you know, Elizabeth Warren has a plan for everything, and she has a plan for any potential bailouts. And there are four or five things she wants to insist upon if any airlines uh, industries, any cruise line companies get any of this government funds. And one of the things that just got to one of them, there's this phenomenon called, called stock buybacks. If you have cash, one of the things that a lot of companies do now to change the law to permit them to do this is to buy back their own stock. That means if they have cash, they're buying back their own stock. It's so it looks good on paper, but now they don't have cash and they can't do the things that are necessary, like hiring more people or preparing for the potential of some kind of a, uh, a calamity. So the airlines uh, after 9-11 have talked about this many times. Um, they say, bail us out. We bail them out. They say, yeah, all that cash. But then they use it to buy their own stock instead of preparing some kind of a cushion for the next time, this time, today. Yeah, corporations can't be trusted with a no. surplus. It's, of course it, not. Yeah. They, they, they rather create <laughs> a, a demand for their stock because if you were to have $15 billion in cash, that's an uh, invitation for mischief. <laughs> exactly. Because they wouldn't want to commit any mischief themselves. No, it's, 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 it, you know, what you said a few minutes ago was absolutely right. This is a time when if there's ever been a time in my lifetime when we could look at what's going on and say, you know, we've screwed this up. We don't, we, we are not functioning the way a country of this size and of this power and of this wealth should function. And I think this really is a potential tipping point where we start to look at the policies of Bernie Sanders and the policies of Elizabeth Warren and the most progressive people in the Democratic Party and say, you know, maybe these people are onto something. And this is, if anything, that has a shred of uh, a brightness uh, in, in the way I look at what's going on in these last couple of weeks. It's that I do think a large number of people are saying, you know what, we have been screwed. And who's screwed us? Big companies yeah. that don't have our best interest in mind. The end, end the end is near. Is as <laughs> old as the Old Testament, right? The prophets of doom. That's right. Right. The prophets of doom and repent or God's repent. wrath will fall upon you. That is hardwired into our DNA. There is this 
by our very own nature, we are scolds. And seeing mm. those kids, these young, virile children parting <laughs> uh, during spring break, it brings out our Jeremiah, doesn't it? And yes, we want to launch, you know, and scold them. And don't you see the, the, these transgressions will lead to the death of all of us? And we're prone to warning that the end is near. It, repent, change your ways, or pay the consequences. All of us hate Trump. All of us are dissatisfied with capitalism. Washington, the way this country is responding to climate change, aren't we perhaps relying on this pandemic to to say to the Israelites, <laughs> look, look what you have, look what you hath wrought. Isn't that a, a human trait that may not be... Uh, Based in any reality, I mean, the great awakenings in this country always stemmed from some natural calamity. There, there were these fires, I believe, in sure in New England, and the skies were dark, and all the the religious leaders came out of the woodwork and repent, and we all had to change our ways. Uh, we need to change our ways. There's no question about that. I just can't help but wonder if people are using this pandemic, which is dangerous, and and I hope I'm right. I can't help but wonder if the pandemic is being used the same way eclipses of the sun were used 4,000 years ago. Well, you know, it's an interesting analogy, David, but I think it's... Not quite on target, because I think that here you see this awakening. You know, we, we've getting ready for the awakening. When you look at Bernie, I've given up on Bernie, I want to tell you. I'm sorry to say that. But, but what he's done to move the country, and yes, even the Democratic Party, further and further to the left, means that we're ripe to think, to put this virus in context and say what have we learned and where were we going if we were going in the more progressive direction and then this hits us and kicks us in the behind to go faster in that direction well i think that's a better description of it than thinking this is like the eclipse that's going to convince people that uh you know you pray more or uh, the sun will never come back the sun could come back, but it's not going to come back with the happy talk of Donald Trump saying, as soon as this is over, <laughs> the market will pop up. Okay. It's going to become because you work at it, because you take the values that have been a part of the Bernie Sanders campaign, a part of what AOC and those younger members of the House are supporting, and say, this is another wake-up call. I don't know if it's so much of a scold, although I do understand there's a bit of a scold to yeah. it. But it's more than that. It's coming out the other end, not just with, thank God we got over this, but 
with a new way to look at the economy and a new way to look at the politics of America. And I think we're heading in that right direction. And that's the most affirmative thing I can say uh, after this conversation. But Again, I I just, I, we one. have to wrap it up. Sure. Again, I am telling people, stay indoors. Do not spread. Don't go to the beach. Stay indoors. Stay indoors. Stay indoors. Don't shake hands. Keep six feet away from everybody. I'm not minimizing any of this. We have to flatten the curve. I'm just asking questions and of course. thinking positively. And I'm trying to uh, calm everybody down because right now I'm not so sure it's healthy to be locked in your cabin terrified. That's how you end up with Ted Kaczynski. The Reverend Barry W. Lynn <laughs> was the executive director of Americans United for Separation of Church and State from 1992 to November of 2017. Besides being a lawyer, he is also an ordained minister in the United Church of Christ. Exactly. It's only been 40 minutes, I'm, but you're on it. You've Good. remembered it for that long. Thank you. Be Thank well, you. sir. Follow the Thank Reverend you. Barry W. Lynn over Twitter. It's Barry W. Lynn. Stand on the line for That's one right. quick second, sir. Reverend. Sure. Thank you. You're listening to The David Feldman Show, you happy, self-actualized hump. Helene Olin is back. She's a columnist for The Washington Post, and she's the author of two books you should pick up as soon as possible, Pound Foolish and The Index Card. I want to talk to you about your latest column in The Washington Post entitled Coronavirus is an Indictment of Our Way of Life. A lot to, as they say, unpack there. But first, how are you? I'm fine. I'm going a bit stir crazy, but basically fine. Okay. And thank you for having me on, by the way. Oh, you've been, well, you've been sorely missed, and uh, I wish it was every week, but uh, we'll talk about that later. So let's talk about the stock market. It's had some wild swings. It is now, I believe, close to where it was when Donald Trump first took office. They've erased all his gains. This is now Trump's economy. Is that fair to say he now owns this economy? I think that's completely fair to say. He's, you know, first of all, people always believe the president is responsible for the economy and the stock market. You don't get to say, ooh, that guy three years ago, it's all his fault. At a certain point, you're in charge. And if after three and a quarter years, you're not in charge, it begs the question of what you've been doing for the past three and a quarter years. Uh, that, excuse me. Um, that being said, of course, To some extent, no, it's not any president's fault when such things happen. But there's no question in this case that Donald Trump tried to take credit for the stock market when the going was good, repeatedly and frequently. Best stock market ever, record highs, you know, biggest gain. It's all me. Uh, And at the same time, of course, 
his, you know, response to the coronavirus pandemic has made the situation in the stock market, which probably would not have been good regardless, much, much worse. I mean, it's kind of a joke that most of the time when he speaks, it, I mean, it like falls, which probably mm-hmm. says everything you need to know about just how reassuring the guy is at this point. And the the stock market is down. People have seen, I, I, I would assume, more than a 20% decline in their 401ks, if they have any. You write... Right. Half the population doesn't have one at all. Half but the po- I mean, the issue is, of course, much bigger than the stock market. I mean, the stock market is reacting to the fact that the economy itself is in a free fall. Um, we believe unemployment numbers are going to be devastating when they come out next month. We don't really quite know what they will be. Steve Mnuchin predicted it could be up to 20%, which would be staggering. It's just really, really hard to know. We know that hundreds of thousands of people have tried to apply in New York. So it seems like the numbers are going to be like stuff we've never seen in our lifetime. I mean, within a very short period of time. Um, The Metropolitan Opera here in New York um, laid off its entire staff today. Marriott Hotels furloughed huge numbers of its workers a few days ago. I mean, this is, you know, going to just be devastating. There's no question about it. And the bailouts, uh, a lot of people think there should be strings attached to the bailouts. You shouldn't be allowed to pay yourself an exorbitant bonus if you're the owner of a cruise ship line. How many bailouts can we afford and where does it stop? I mean, at some point, it, it... I'm I'm thinking back to the financial crisis. At some point, instead of bailing out American Airlines, another way to go is to let it go out of business. And then the United States government could buy the airline at rock bottom prices and then hire everybody back. But that's not the way we... That seems insane. That's actually quite insane. I mean... You need you need to bail these industries out. I I, I would say the airline industry. I, I'm not going to the cruise ship industry. It's not clear to me that those people need to be bailed out, or they simply the employees need to be helped. Um, it's worth noting that the cruise ship industry is generally registered in the Bahamas, right? So that they can avoid everything from American taxes to American safety regulations. So there's a good part a good part of me that thinks that the cruise ship industry should go hit up the government of the Bahamas for a bailout right. um, and leave the United States alone, and we will help their workers, many of whom live in the United States. And if anybody should know citizens. how to bail themselves out, it should be the cruise ship industry. I mean, that's... <laughs> All right, sorry. Is there a drum roll somewhere? Hang on, hang on. You get. I'm going to treat you to this. <laughs> so what other industries are are threatened? I mean, airline industry. I mean, how do you help restaurants? I, I mean, there's enormous, enormous impacts going on. A, a restaurant, you know, the restaurant industry is in terrible, terrible shape. How do you do that? How do you help, you know, how do you reach out to small business owners who might own one or two restaurants? I mean, when Trump talks, he would think the restaurant industry is McDonald's because mm-hmm. that's what it seems like he's talking about all the time. But in fact, the restaurant industry is it, mostly little small mom and pop shops. And it, this is 
a really difficult question to answer is how do you structure a bailout so that it gets the money gets to people in need and doesn't get hijacked in some way. And there seems to be enormous pushback at the notion of, say, giving money to the airlines and then not being able to hand out bonuses or pay dividends on stock with it and whatnot. At the same time, there seems to be a lot of arguing going on about whether you give Americans money and how much you give them and whether you means test it or not. And, you know, because the number that's getting tossed around a lot right now is a check for $1,000. And while that does sound lovely, I mean, that's not going to really cover very many people's mortgage payment, rent payment, never mind all their other living expenses. Most people pay more than that in mortgage or rent. So, you know, how you do that is an open question. And it's being done on the fly, as it needs to be done on the fly, but it's being done with an administration that, you know, puts new meaning, gives new meanings to the word incompetent and, you know, malicious every single day. Mm -hmm. I mean, Mm -hmm. keep in mind, this is an administration, once again, I can't say this enough, that dismantled, all but dismantled the United States pandemic response team, refused to take any advanced planning like this seriously, to the point that when they were warned about it in January, February, they still ignored it. I, I mean, it's just astonishing what occurred. And that Trump, who has gone from last Friday saying, I don't take responsibility for this, to now believing he is the savior of all of us, is absurd. Right, right. Well, I watch some of his press conferences. And And we shouldn't be watching them, by the way. Can I just get that off my chest for one minute? Sure. He should not be broadcast live. He is spewing misinformation. I, I mean, not just occasionally misspeaking, spewing it. He is turning them into mini campaign rallies every single day. It is infuriating that these things are being broadcast live on television, and it needs to stop immediately. I mean, I realize I can't stop Fox from doing it. That's, you know, Fox is going to be, you know, Fox is going to UBU sort of Fox. But there's no reason MSNBC or CNN or anyone else should be covering these things on live. I mean, it's, it's absurd. What little I saw of these press conferences, I watched them on C-SPAN. Obviously, he should be either put in an insane asylum or Rikers Island, uh, which (laughs) some would say is both. Uh, Another discussion. But I have to admit, he's not senile. He's sharper than Biden, in my estimation. I'm amazed at what he's able to process, that he's able to take in a lot of information. And he does. I granted, he makes up most of it, but it is. <laughs> yeah, he's not taking in any information whatsoever. <laughs> what he is doing is performing at his usual fairly high standards. I mean, I don't like the guy, but he is a performer and he's still performing fairly well. Um, where he is on the continuum, I have no idea at this point. Um, and I would say the same is true for Biden. The only thing I would say about Biden is that Biden seems to do better when he rests. So yeah. when he wasn't active campaigning, he was quite good in the debate with Sanders Sunday night, for instance. Right. Uh, you know, when he was campaigning every day, you could see his performance in the debates with, with the other candidates, you know, was much more mid Um, How's that for being polite about it? Yeah. And, 
you know, and I would say that's a concern. And I think anyone who isn't concerned about that is, you know, is telling themselves what they want to hear. We're digressing slightly. From that's what okay. I want to ask you. Important point. Yeah. If somehow, and, I, and again, I, I know I, I keep saying I sound like Mayor Larry Vaughn from the jaw, the, the movie Jaws, wanting to keep the beaches open. Again, I, you know, I look at China and. I think they've gone two days, maybe three, without any new cases. It seems to be under control in China. Pollution is coming back. Uh, is, you know, if, let's just say, we don't see this spike in the emergency rooms over the weekend, just wishful thinking, and we don't see the spike... In the emergency. I'm not an expert on this, and I'm, I, I don't have an opinion on it. No, I'm, so, I'm gonna. I'm, 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 that's not what I'm asking you. Okay, I, I just don't. I, I know. You know, I, know. I, I can't. Okay. But let, let's I, say ma you know magical. I can't. No. Okay, I don't want to talk about this. I, I, I just think we're going to see some more people getting sick by the day, and I don't. You know how many is is open to debate, but I don't. I think we should be talking about the situation as it is now. Okay, I, I, w I was just going to say that I think he'd get reelected if this isn't as bad as. Oh, that I completely agree. I, I think, yeah. I mean, I if you would ask me what I partly think is going on is I think Trump is gambling that this will clear up by the summer. Um, I think he's, I mean, I think when he says August, I mean, it's always hard to know if it's the last person he spoke to, if he doesn't remember what they said, or if he's just trying to make it, oh, and it's solved by Jude and I look like a hero, right? Mm -hmm. So, I mean, you know, it's like, reading, it's worse than reading tea leaves half the time. Right. But there's no question. I mean, you know, should this clear up within the next six weeks and, or, you know, or significantly mitigate or not be as bad as we think, in some way, you know, he'll look like a hero. There's no question. And I think if I had to make guess, that's what he's going for. Right. But that being said, you know, is that going to happen? You know, if he, you know, the, the, the best experts say, no, it's not. So where does that leave us after that? And I don't know the answer to that. Right. I so mean, you could make the argument that the economy is going to be in free fall, that you know, that we're going to have a raging epidemic and everybody's going to turn on the guy in the White House. That's one fairly common sense, you know, conclusion to come to. On the other hand, you could also come to the conclusion that he's going to seize control in some way or look like he's in control in some way. People don't want to rock the boat when there's an epidemic out going on and then he'll get reelected. Let's talk about... Pound Foolish and the Index Card, and what psychological studies you've looked at? Because I noticed after 9-11, you know, we let our guard down, let's just say, when it came to 9-11, but I immediately said, oh, fearless leader, save us. And his popularity surged after 9-11. Mm -hmm. Donald Trump, no question, let his guard down, let the country's guard down with this epidemic. But I noticed I watched a couple of these press conferences and I'm rooting for him. I'm, you know, I'm going to come on, man, step up, you know, save us. Well, yeah, you've got to, right? I yeah. mean, 
I, I mean, you've got to root for him because the, the, the alternative is so, at the moment, is so ghastly that, of course, you're going to root for him. Like, please, you know, make this into the, you know, that season of Dallas, which turned out to be somebody's nightmare. You right. remember whose nightmare it was? You know, and we can all pretend this didn't happen. Um, so, of course, you're rooting for Donald Trump to succeed, which is really crazy on one basic level because he's the, you know, if there's, um, you know, he's like the least last person you want to succeed at anything. But no question, you're definitely rooting for him. The issue we have, I, I mean, to me, the, there's a broader issue here. And this is, you know, crisis like this always bring it home, is that it, people like to present the stock market as a sure thing. And it just isn't. I, I mean, I have no kind way to say that. There's this sort of idea that you'll put your money in and you can leave it and everything will be fine because it all averages out in the end. And we don't really know that that's true. We know it's been true for about 100 years in the United States. That doesn't totally make it true. Um, and that's, you know, and there are people who studied that. You know, there are other stock markets that have had ter- horrific performances in this, over the course of the 20th century, um, mostly because of a thing called World War II. Mm-hmm. which we were mostly spared from because it did not take place on American soil. And that is probably what accounted for ours for, you know, for our, you know, fairly healthy economic growth over the past century, century and a half. Um, the other issue with that idea that the Dow is always going to you'll always be fine is, of course, that there's a certain amount of self-selection bias going on. So it's not such a big deal if you're, you know, investing via an index fund, but if you're investing in individual stocks, there's obviously, you know, your chances of picking the wrong one are fairly not are fairly decent, right? We all have this idea we're going to be the pe- person to pick Amazon in 1999 when, in fact, we are the person who probably would have picked AOL in 1999. Mm-hmm. Um, the people who study this stuff will tell you that investors – you know, have a black thumb, the likes of which, you know, makes people who have black thumbs with plants look like they can keep plants alive. Right. And, you know, we do everything wrong. We pick the wrong stocks, we sell at the wrong time, we buy at the wrong time, et cetera, et cetera. So that's always an issue as well. We tend to panic, we momentum, you buy, you know, you name it. And I, I think the bigger issue is that... People were told that this was a safe, stable way to save for the long run. It does work for some people. There's no question it does. But the idea that it's going to work for everyone has always been much more of a crapshoot than anybody has ever cared to admit. And so to give a perfect example right now is there's probably going to be a lot of people who are going to need to grab money out of their 401k in the next few months. I, I mean, I don't think that being panicky to discuss that. Most Americans don't have a lot of savings outside their retirement account. It's generally their largest pot of money after their house, which is illiquid. Um, So where are you going to get money from, right? And the answer is probably, if you have one, a retirement account, which means you're going to be pulling money out, not just pulling it out and potentially paying the 10% penalty on it, or you are will be paying a 10% penalty on it, but you're pulling it out at the exact wrong time. So your, our emergencies tend to coincide with when the stock market is troubled. So it's a twofold process that you get screwed on here. Um, and that's going to be a tremendous issue for people. And 
you know, this is something we talked about a lot, 2008, 2009, 2010, really up to, say, 2013, 2014. And then as the stock market you know, his gains, you know, solidified and it was clearly in a very good bull market. This sort of the talk went away and you didn't hear about it so much. And you had the rise of all these people who, once again, were just, you know, convinced that they had somehow stumbled into this surefire scheme. And I mean, the, the most obvious uh, group of these people were the fire people, you know, the uh, the financial independence retire early crowd. Yes. You know, the people who are, you know, and they were just convinced that they were all going to be fine if they were, you know, living very cheaply and putting all their money into the markets. And God knows they're living very cheaply. Strategy is probably helping them right now. But <laughs> you know, whether they're going to be as fine as they think is another, again, an open question. We just don't know. And by the way, it could all recover tomorrow, too. I'm not making predictions at all. Right. And I think that's the other part of this. Is there are no predictions. And anybody who gives you a production is, by definition, you know, trying to sell you something because there's just no way to know this. And, you know, there and if they do, by some fluke, actually have the answer to this, why on earth would they be telling you? Right. Right. And there are forces that make it impossible for you to save money. Uh, the Federal Reserve keeps lowering interest rates. So if you want to be like your grandmother and just put your money in the bank, you are actually warned that you're going to lose money by saving it. If you put it in the bank, right. you you're, you're, can't keep up with inflation, and there's the possibility of negative interest rates. So it's almost as though the Federal Reserve is propping up the stock market by keeping interest rates low. You need credit, your your credit score is diminished if you don't have enough credit cards. If you haven't, if you don't service debt, you're considered a credit risk. If, if you pay, if you pay off everything, nobody wants to lend to you. So the whole system seems to be designed for you not to save money and to rack up debt. It, it, uh, you write in the Washington Post. Let me read you what you, you wrote over the Washington Post mm -hmm. in a great piece. Coronavirus is an indictment of our way of life. And it's just, you know, I, it's like it's like wasabi uh, that you, it's uh, you say that Donald Trump is the culmination of, I would say, 40 years of our country before I read this. The, the, the essence is between 40 and 50 years. Yeah. Of what? 40 to 50 years. Of, of, of prioritizing business over people, of prioritizing, you know, this idea that we could all get ahead one by one. But most important, prioritizing money over anything else. So the result is, is there was ultimately this massive wave of disinvestment. Mm hmm. We are and so, you know, you know, you get this idea. One of the reasons there's not enough ventilators or not enough in the United States right now, it's not fully Donald Trump's fault. I mean, it's very easy to blame him because he's obviously made a bad situation about 100 times worse. 
But, you know, hospital beds, for instance, have been shrinking for 20 years, even as the population has surged in the United States. And the reason for that is because hospitals, you know, we are the only first world country that allows the medical industry to be, you know, this, you know, completely uncontrolled for profit business. Hospitals are in the business of making money in many cases for their shareholders. Um, even nonprofit hospitals, frankly, act often like money-making enterprises. And so they've cut back on hospital beds dramatically. They've cut back on, you know, keeping things in reserve for emergencies like extra ventilators, because that's expensive. You know, ventilators cost between $25,000 and $50,000 each. They need to be maintained. You can't just shove them in a storage unit and forget that they're there. Uh, they need to be updated. They go out of date. New generations come along. So, you know, this is something that you're supposed to prepare for, but we did not. At the same time, of course, for all the claims that, oh, we have to pay these insanely high medical costs because, you know, we have pharmaceuticals won't do research otherwise. In fact, you know, they've let go all sorts of stuff, you know, basic health, you know, research in so that they can research stuff that makes the money like stuff for like example male pattern baldness is a big one mm-hmm. um you know viagra i mean worthwhile sure i'm not knocking it it's important stuff but it's not a new generation of antibiotics either right and you know these are and a lot of this is just coming home to roost for us that this sort of idea that you can just go away and live you know fecklessly over and over again, it's just not true. We we live in this country that kind of, in a lot of ways, doesn't function the way it should. And we often talk about it in terms of infrastructure. Our infrastructure is, you know, I think it's a D plus. It's been rated by the society by an engineering society plus D plus for over a decade now. And, you know, it's kind of a joke on one level, you know, until somebody gets killed by it. You know, I remember my son when we were in Barcelona a few years ago, you know, just we're standing, we're on the subway and out of nowhere, he looks at me and says, their subway is our is better than our cella. Yeah. And I'm like, yeah, you're right. It is. Right. You know, they have those partitions so that people can't fall on the tracks there, which we still don't have here. And these are really important things. And, you know, so this is, you know, coming back to haunt us in this terrible, terrible way as a result of this epidemic. And it's obviously not anything that's going to get solved in the next three weeks or next six weeks or even next six months. How could it be, right? I mean, you can't just fix decades of refusing to invest in the infrastructure, um, you know, in a week or even a year. I mean, it's decades in the making, and I and I don't, I, I don't even begin to know what to say to people to make it sound good in that way. Yeah, it, it's it's in my mind, it's become a nation of grifters, and I, you know, I remember we sent kids off to war in Iraq without body armor. You know, right. I mean, we, we've always been a nation of grifters. I mean, this is something sociologists. And historians will point out Americans have always had a fatal weakness for grifters. Uh, and it, it's really fascinating stuff to read about, by the way. I mean, if you ever, are, and you probably will be really bored the next few weeks, okay? So you can go look all this stuff up. It's really fascinating. Um, there's books on how in the United States, we historians have really studied why we venerate sales and grifters in a way many other cultures do not. And, and the best 
guess that anyone has ever come up with is that we don't have an, an aristocracy here. You know, we don't have, you know, we have celebrity, but we don't have aristocracy. So our aristocracy is already based kind of on a grift and on sales. And then it's to, we get there by somehow selling you on ourselves. That's how you move up here and how you gain prominence to an extent. So we've had this sort of culture that goes hand in hand with venerating the grift. We sort of admire the grift in a way that other cultures do not. Have you ever bought something just because the salesman or saleswoman was really good and you knew it and you wanted to reward that person just for their pitch? I have. Sometimes I'm more likely to like feel sort of bad for them, frankly, and I'll buy something because they just they're good at what they're doing. And I just sort of feel awful because I know that they're on commission. So I'm kind of like, OK, I'll buy this. Um, All right. I think I'm not going to be able to afford to do. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> um, I'm fine. Who, who should um, we who should we trust before you go? You write about this in Pound Foolish and the index card. Who do we trust with what <laughs> what money we have left? Well, I mean, that's a good question, right? Um, Dave Ramsey? Dave Ramsey? Oh, my God. Can we talk about Dave Ramsey for yeah. a second? Yeah. Are you, are you going to cut me off? No. He this week, he this week went on this five-minute, no, this 10, 15-minute rant. I'm under-exaggerating it. This, like, 10 to 15-minute rant where he talked about how, you know, it was really terrible and sad that people were losing their jobs because of coronavirus. And of course, you could stop the baby steps if you've lost your job. But, you know, you should immediately go out and get another part-time job to replace it. Mm-hmm. And we're like, where exactly are you to get that part-time job? Right? Like, what part-time job is this man talking about? The economy is shedding potentially millions of jobs. This is absurd, right? And then he, for a kicker, said something along the lines of, you know, and don't go quit your job because some coworker of yours didn't wash their hands properly. Mm. Um, as if there's some epidemic of people quitting their jobs because a coworker didn't wash their hands properly. Right. And most offices were not going in at all. So right. it would be very odd for me to quit a job over um, somebody not washing their hands properly. Though I suppose I could kick a child out of the apartment. But <laughs> that, I mean, it's just like absurd. Like, where, where is he getting this from? I mean, this level of blaming people in the United States is still very strong. And, in fact, the head of uh, the former head of FEMA under Trump, um, his first appointee, first awful appointee, Brock Long, was on Fox the other night and was telling people that it was partly their own fault because they didn't have insurance. You know, if you have if you have a small business had insurance, they'd be fine, which on top of everything else is flat out ignorant. Most many insurance policies will not cover such things like this. And it doesn't matter whether you had insurance or not. I mean, it's just not you, know, you frequently see writers saying this is not covered. Um, sometimes you don't. But, you know, it's not simply that. And second, most small businesses are operating with intensely small margins. So insurance is, in many cases, actually a luxury for them. As you- horrible as that sounds. I mean, this is what the government is there for, though. That's my bigger point, okay? Well, I don't want to get lost in my furious rant about this. That's what the government is there for. That's what it's supposed to do. It's supposed to step in and help people. And, you know, and it's more than just offering small businesses, you know, loan guarantees, zero interest loans. That money still needs to be paid back. 
which is just going to still stress these businesses out. You know, they, in many cases, they need the, you know, the several thousand dollars as much as you or I potentially do. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. At Pound Foolish, you write part of the grift is blame the victim, blame, blame mm-hmm. poor people for the, the mess they find themselves in. Right. And I think, I think if this crisis, if anything good comes out of this crisis, if, if, if. Yeah, I, I think the the it's probably going to end this kind of myth that you can overcome this stuff by yourself because you simply can't. I mean, most people simply don't have the resources to survive prolonged bouts of unemployment. Not like this. I mm. mean, there's it's, it, you know the advice of oh take a gig job. What gig job? No one's going anywhere. No one needs dog walkers. They're all home. Mm-hmm. You know? So what gig job? You know, nobody needs to, you know, to make a birthday cake. Uh, the L.A. Times had this article today about some birthday cake business that's on the ropes, right? Nobody wants a birthday cake because they came. This woman was making birthday cakes in her home. You know, nobody's ordering a birthday cake because they're not having a party because you can't have people over. I mean, so, I mean, you know, it's just kind of astonishing that this stuff has been allowed to fester in our culture for so, so long. But, you know, clearly it's at some form of end game. I mean, if you're going to see even really upper middle class people hurt very badly by this, and there's no question in my mind that's going to happen, you know, at a certain point, you've got to say, we need Medicare for all. This is crazy. Right. You know, we can't have people afraid to go get tested for coronavirus. They need to pass a law so that people can get tested and not worry about copays. But nobody is saying, oh, you know, if you get stuck on a hospital and get stuck on a ventilator for three weeks in a hospital, you know, you're not going to get stuck with copays and surprise bills mm-hmm. and whatnot. In fact, mm-hmm. when Trump tried to say that at a press conference, you know, he said, oh, the insurance company said they'd cover everything. That turned out to be absolutely untrue. To go back to my other rant about why is this man allowed to spew <laughs> on live television? <laughs> Do you want me to keep ranting? I can keep going. It's yeah. great. Yeah. Um, well, I've been alone. In, I've been in my apartment. Please <laughs> help. Last question. Last question. Uh, catastrophizing. There's a tendency for humans to uh, you've talked about this on the show when looking at the economy when looking at the 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 stock market when looking at our own financial fate we tend to overblow the 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 downside and minimize the upside am i getting that right Did right you? i i've talked about this we do both i mean we you know we overestimate the upside then we minimize it we do it at the exact wrong times I mean, uh, let me put it to you this way. I truly believe at this point, if you're going to sell your stock portfolio now, you missed the boat, okay? Could I be wrong? Sure. During the Great Depression, the stock market declined by 90%. Do I think that's likely to happen? No, okay? Um, I think you missed the boat. You had to sell, you know, at most, you know, several, you know, at the latest several weeks ago, right? Mm-hmm. At this point, you might as well ride it out unless you have an emergency. Um, is it easy to do that? No, which is one of my reasons why I think people need more Social Security and retirement and pensions. Um, which would then be good for the so, stock market. That's the right, stupidity of right. Wall Street. People right. will and hold I mean, 
Yeah. Oh, I'm sorry. You could talk. I'm sorry. No, no, no. Um, I was just saying, but like, it makes sense yeah. if you if you increase Social Security, people won't panic sell, and the stock market will be more stable. Although I often wonder. Eh, I think they'll panic sell anyway. Because humans be humans, right? The right. difference is it would cause them less long term damage to do that. And the. But the bigger point is that, and I now lost my train of thought. I'm sorry. What were we talking about? <laughs> I'm getting Cata- old. No, I'm not. No, I'm not. not. I'm you're 27, not. audience. I'm 27. <laughs> catastrophizing um, the way we... Right. Oh, catastrophizing. Yeah, I mean, what I was going to say was, thank you, is that I think this will be worse in ways that we can't predict and better in others. I think, you know, it's very easy at 6 in the morning to lay in bed shaking, convinced everything is ending. Um it's probably not. That doesn't mean it's going to be great. Um, and it's, it doesn't mean that awful things won't happen. And I think, as I said, I think it'll be worse in some ways and better in others. And I don't know what those ways will be. Right. So, but th- that's just the reality of it. And we're not very good at predicting the future as humans. It's uh, not really in our skill set. It's, we like to think it is, but it's it's simply not. Um, you know, you you tell me who predicted this, and you know, last year, right? I mean, I know you could say, oh well, we have to pre- you know prepare for a pandemic. What will eventually happen? And that's true, but um, I don't think anybody thought it was going to be, say, you know, March of two thousand twenty. Um, and this you know, is I've not- actually been telling a story this the past couple of weeks where I was at a. The one Christmas party I managed to get myself to last year, somebody <laughs> asked me about the Affordable Care Act and how this was all going to shake, and Medicare for All, and how this was all going to shake out. And I said, well, there's a good scenario and there's a bad scenario. And I said, okay, get started. I said, okay, the Supreme Court overturns the, um, you know, the Affordable Care Act. And I explained how the Affordable Care Act is really interwoven into, with, you know, that ongoing case that Trump is still pursuing, by the way. Um, you know, it's interwoven into the health insurance system and what a catastrophe this would be to un- unwind it. And they said, okay, so why don't you tell us uh, what the good scenario is now? And I said, oh, that is the good scenario. And, they, and the person said, well, what was the bad scenario? And I said, oh, I said, an epidemic that just crashes the healthcare system. Um, I did not have any foreshadowing that this was going to happen. Right. I swear right. to God. Um, what has influenced my thinking on that, and uh, should you wonder, because I've said this for a long time, is that I have a grandmother, or did have a grandmother, she died a couple of years ago, whose first childhood memories were of coffins being carried out of houses during the Spanish flu. So I've always perhaps had more of an awareness of epidemics and what they can do than a lot of other people, because my grandmother is apparently one of the few people who ever really would talk about the Spanish flu. And this is something I did not realize till very recently, how so many people who went through it would never talk about it, Hmm. Uh, which is a really fascinating thing to know that it simply is almost gone from our history books and whatnot. Um, And this was not not true in my family at all. My grandmother talked about it pretty much till the end of her life, which was a long life. She lived to be 96. So she would always talk about it and how awful it was. Um, So, but that had always been part of my thinking about why we so desperately need health insurance reform or health care reform, I should say. Do you say health insurance reform is to give in to the industry, for God's sake? Right. Uh, is because 
in this situation, our healthcare system makes things much worse. And it makes things much worse because it's for profit. It makes things much worse because people aren't sure what's going to get paid and how. And it makes things worse because it led to massive disinvestment over a period of decades and so on down the line. Right. Let me read what you wrote and then we'll end. We are all connected. We all need to take on the task of rebuilding our society and putting protections in place so that when the next crisis comes, we are ready to take it on. That looks like Medicare for all. Paid sick leave. That looks like. Right. It looks like paid sick leave. It looks like a lot of things that we don't have right now. Extended, uh, you know, much more generous unemployment, unemployment that covers gig workers, which it does not right now. So think about all those people, because gig workers as a whole are already not earning a very good living. Um, You know, what's going to happen to all these people in Hollywood who own their own small businesses that and comedians, I'm sure you know a bunch who are not performing right now. I mean, what is going to happen to all these people? And it's not clear to me that that many of them are going to be even eligible for unemployment benefits. If you don't work for somebody, you usually don't get unemployment. What are you reading? I am reading The Mirror and the Light, the Hillary Mantle, the third in the Wolf Hall trilogy. And I think it's extraordinary, though I would not say it's as good as Wolf Hall, which is the first book in the series, which is about, you know, her novelization of the life of Thomas Cromwell, who was, you know, sort of Henry VIII's consigliere and sort of the power behind the throne for many years, um, you know, during all the various marriages and the Reformation and, you know, pulling out of the Catholic Church in England. Um, And it's kind of fascinating. Have you read any of it? You know, I started it and I I couldn't my own character flaw prevented me from finishing it. So no. Was that Wolf Hall or the first yeah, one? Yeah, Wolf Hall. One? Yeah, my sister gave it. What to was me. your own? What was your character flaw? Uh, my inability to get lost in a book like that. I anyway. I I, what, what I have right but now. Because, no, I will give you my pitch and why I beg people to read Wolf Hall. I mean, the, the whole trilogy is fantastic, but I would say Wolf Hall is a is spectacular on a whole other level. And it's because, in part, it is a novel about middle age disguised as a historical novel. And it is simply extraordinary in how she does that. And, you know, how you make your peace with your parents and how you, how in middle age the past often seems as real as the present and the mistakes you make, and, and it's just kind of a fascinating novel in and of itself for that alone. Um, okay. You know, the acceptance of tragedy in your life. Um, I, I, it's just an extraordinary novel, Wolf Hall. Um, and then the rest of the series as well, Bring Up the Bodies and Now the Mirror and the Light. Um, and, and it's also about power and how it plays out in our lives. So it, it has all sorts of, you know, things that are going on that are just fascinating. Well, a sign of mental health for me is being able to lay on the couch and read for long stretches of time. Not happening. I, you know, that, that, that to me is a sign. I know when I'm okay, it's when I lose myself in a book. Not lately, but uh, hats off to anybody who can read and not watch TV. Oh, and I should, oh, oh, and I should pitch one other that I actually read just before all this started, 
um, because I have an interview with her coming out in a couple of days, is um, on Tuesday, a anthology of Barbara Ehrenreich's collected works will be coming out. Wow. Called Had I Known. And um, it's the, the original essay that was nickel and dimed is in there. The original essay that is bright-sided called Cancerland is in there. Um, some amazing works going back to the 1980s are in there. So um, if you want to get a new book that will be at, you can get it on Tuesday, I would suggest that as well. How big an influence was Barbara Ehrenreich on you? Oh, huge. Huge, huge, huge. Um, I find, you know, the honesty with which she approaches things and the unsentimental way she looks at things is, is I consider, one of the biggest influences on me um, and my work um, that I can imagine um, and who she considers the enemy, so to speak, right? And who you're supposed to be helping. I, I, I just, but always unsentimental. I admire the, you know, the humor, the warmth, the rigorous honesty of what she does. I, you know, I just, I, you know, in awe of what she does. Frequently. Yeah. Yeah. Helene Owen, author of Pound Foolish, the index card reader over at the Washington Post. Follow her on Twitter at Helene Olin. Stand the line for one quick second, please. Okay. We believe in democracy, not oligarchy. <laughs> Today, we say to the private health insurance companies, whether you like it or not, the United States will join every other major country on earth and guarantee health care to all people as a right. is a human right, not a privilege. And together, we will pass a Medicare for all single-payer program. You're listening to the David Feldman Radio Program, you sad, pathetic hump. Let's go to Washington, D.C., where the 45th president of the United States is standing by, President Donald J. Trump. Hello, David. Honored to have you on, Mr. President. I'm a big fan of your show as well. Really? Doing very important work. Hmm. Believe me, believe me. Very important. Your, Your radio show is so important. Thank you. I'd like to give you the Presidential Medal of Freedom. May I do that? Would you like one? Sure. They're free. They're absolutely free. I know how you people like free stuff. Yeah. David, you're doing a great job. Oh. Great job. Getting the word out on staying away from people. Very, very important. 
for the six people who are listening, I want to say it's very important to stay six feet away from people. Mm-hmm. That's white people. Anyone else, 10 feet away. You're under a lot of pressure, Mr. President. You're getting it um, from all sides. They tried to impeach you last great. month. How are you holding up? It's very grave what's going on, the way I'm being attacked. It's a real crisis that we're all facing, Mm -hmm. the attacks that are coming my way. But we're doing an amazing job fighting off the attacks and also uh, fighting off this uh, horrible Chinaman virus. Did you say Chinaman virus? That's that's who created it, David, the Chinaman. You know, David, new cases are pretty much down. We've gotten them way, way down. Pretty much down to negative zero. That's what I heard. That's the latest. That's not what I'm hearing. No, that's right. Negative zero. That's not what is being reported that's by your own CDC. What was there a leak? If somebody's leaking the truth, that is a real problem. We're gonna we're gonna deal with those people. Well, what should we do? What are you advising right people? Now you're talking to me, and and I'm the bottom line, and I can tell you that we are at negative zero cases. That's how good a jab. I am doing. What should we do? What advice are you giving to the American people? You have an opportunity now to reach my listeners. What do you want to tell my listeners? Thank you for asking because, uh, you know, everybody's been uh, Fauci this, Fauci that. Mm -hmm. Who is this guy? I can barely even see him. He's he's a he's a tiny one. You know, Anthony, what what kind of a name is Fauci? And is that Asian? I, I don't know. I don't know. I don't think it matters. But what uh, what what are you telling people us? People should, David, since you're asking, people should wash their hands. It's very important because people get the Chinaman virus <laughs> on their hands, and then they touch their face with the Chinaman virus, <laughs> and then the Chinaman virus joins a migrant caravan and crosses the border into your nose where they're funded by George Soros to humiliate me by going into your lungs. And that's when the pneumonia kicks in, uh, David. Oh. And that's not good. Not not good. You're Do you know sure. about pneumonia? Pneumonia, you have a, it's a term. Have you, have you, these, it's one of those new terms flying around, pneumonia. It's yeah. fluid in your lungs. I know things like that. I, I'm just naturally brilliant. Well, Did you know that pneumonia is really just fluid in your lungs? Uh, I knew that, and not just recently. I knew it for a long, long time before this ever happened. I'm actually very, 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 very smart with these medical things. What, very what? smart. Did you know that the P is silent in pneumonia? Uh, I, I, the P I, is silent. You know whose P isn't silent? Whose? <laughs> Rosie O'Donnell's. Okay, I don't think this is... These are just facts, okay? The fake news will tell you her pee is quiet. <laughs> My dressing room was right next to Rosie's when I did the view. <laughs> and I heard the whole thing. It was disgusting. Really, really disgusting. Okay. Like a fire hose. All right, we don't need this. Is... To use an old expression, huge. I'm sorry, you said... What did you O'Donnell say you broke up? What did you say? Huge. Rosie O'Donnell is huge. Okay. You know what? I don't have time to argue. Yeah, I know. You don't have time. Why are you talking about Rosie O'Donnell? There's a pandemic going on, Mr. President. I'm aware of it, and I'm very, very busy, okay? So let me get out my point. People all over the world 
are asking me for advice on how to defeat the Chinaman virus. So I'm very busy. But as you know, a lot of people need to wash their hands for 20 seconds. Mm-hmm. By a lot of people, I mean people who are white. Mm-hmm. Other people, even longer. Because they have a natural okay. thing about them. Okay, <laughs> Mr. President, that's just not true. I mean, this is... Are you Anthony Fauci? No. Are you four feet tall? <laughs> are you a lawn gnome who thinks he knows everything and gets all the attention from CNN? I don't think you are. No, no I'm not. I'm Let me not. tell you something else people say. The Fauci will tell you. He says you're supposed to sing happy birthday twice to make sure you clean long enough. Mm-hmm. David, people are sick of it. People are sick of happy birthday. You know who's really sick of happy birthday? Who? You want to know who? Who? You want to know who's really sick of yeah. happy birthday? You want to know? Yes, I would. I would like to okay, know. Okay, I'm, I'm going to tell you. Ask me who's sick of happy birthday. Who's sick of happy birthday, Mr. President? Okay, you ready? Yes, Because you have the answer. Okay. Joe Biden. Joe Biden. Joe Biden, because, he, because he's old. Uh-huh. Joe Biden is so old. Ask me how old he is. How, how, how old Joe Biden is. How old is he? How old is Joe Biden? Ask how, me. How old is Joe Biden? Joe Biden is so old. <laughs> he's so old that he might die before Rosie O'Donnell dies from being so fat from all her eating. That's unnecessary. That's how old he is. Oh, can we, can he's we? old. I, I call him Sleepy Joe. <laughs> Sleepy Joe. I came up with that. Congratulations. Sleepy Joe. <laughs> Just like that midget who lives. <laughs> Sorry. Just, just like that midget who lived with Snow White, Sleepy. She was a hot piece of ass, that Snow White. Okay. Right? Can we, can right? we, did you do her? Can we talk about the pandemic? 150 grand for shutting the fuck up? Mr. President, can we please? I wouldn't kick her out of bed. For eating crackers and signing an NDA. I wrote a book for children. You did? Oh. Yeah. You know, I've had a lot of spare time. Yeah. I mean, I do these press conferences and then I really basically just go home and what are you going to do? So I, I wrote a children's book. Yeah. Sleepy Joe and the Seven Losers. <laughs> Sleepy Joe and Crazy Bernie met Micro Mike and Pocahontas. Yeah. And they said, <laughs> and they said, hey, Alfred E. New Woman, Jesus. tell, <laughs> tell Howard <laughs> Corey and Kamalama Lama Ding Dong, <laughs> jump on the sleepy train. Jump on the sleepy train. Get on board. We're all going to tell Trump he's wrong for closing the borders to China. And they live loserly ever after. Okay. By the way, Snow White. Yeah. Speaking of. Yeah. How about Mike Pence's hair? Do you know Mike Pence isn't even 60 yet? Talking about white. Have you seen his hair? Yeah. Have you seen David? Have you seen Mike Pence's hair? Yeah. Ask me how white Mike Pence's hair is, David. Ask me. Go ahead. Go ahead. Uh, uh, how Ask white? Me how white 
Go ahead. Okay. How white? Go ahead. How white? How white is my grand? Okay. How white? I said, go ahead, David. <laughs> I'm, I'm uh, Mr. President. How white is Mike Pence's hair? Go ahead, ask me. Okay, how white, Mr. President, is Mike, Mike Pence's Pence. hair is, is so white, it's starting to look like Trump Village back in the 60s before the New York City Commission on Human Rights reported my father Fred to the Justice Department, which fined him for not renting to the blacks. Hmm. But he never paid the fine. He won. That's how white Mike Pence's hair is. Hmm. It's all yours. You can have that one, David. Gratis. Thank you. That makes great. (laughs) (laughs) Make America gratis again. Keep America gratis. Keep America gratis. Get with it, David. It's keep, keep America gratis. You're telling everybody to wash their hands and sing the happy birthday song, even though we're sick of it, right? We should still sing... The happy birthday song. As a scientist, as the nephew of a genius, I, yes, absolutely wash your hands. Okay. My grandkids, I have a lot of grandkids. I tell them to wash their hands. Mm-hmm. Ivanka has some of my grandkids. Don Jr., he's got some mm-hmm. with that Kimberly Guifoil, you know. That's, they're thinking of having more grandkids for me. And I said, you know. I told John he could have Kimberly. I, you know, I said it was good. I didn't want her. I didn't want her. She's fine for him, though. Yeah. You know why Kimberly Guilfoil was on the five? Why is that? Because that's what she is. She's a five. Oh, that's not nice. It's nice enough for Don Jr. Okay. I need a 10. (laughs) I need a 10. (laughs) I need a 10. I need a 10. (laughs) Melania. Melania also has uh, one of my grandkids. That's a joke that CNN will say. CNN will say that. But you know what? What? They're garbage because my son is off limits. He's off limits, yeah. He's off limits. You know who else is off limits supposedly for everyone? Who? Tom Hanks. Yeah. Everyone says Tom Hanks, he's a saint. He was quarantined in Australia. He did that to humiliate me. I don't. He did that to make me look bad. I don't. Yep. He's don't. he's a horrible actor. You know, notice how James Woods didn't get the Chinaman virus. No. He didn't get the Kung flu. No. James Woods didn't, didn't get the Mushu flu. No, he didn't. But no, Tom Hanks is waving it around. General Chow's plague. I don't, I don't think that's... Waving General Chow's plague in my that... face. James Woods didn't get General Chow's plague. It's not called General Chow's plague. It's just, <laughs> it's just Who not. created it? Who created it? That's General Chow is, is out there saying that I created it, that, that, that the American military created it. That's a lie. It's, it's and, a- and as long as General Chow keeps saying that, I'm going to throw it right back in his face. Okay. He and his buddy Tom Hanks. <laughs> <laughs> this is the American people are terrified, and and you're using this as as a way they to get. Should, they should be when Tom Hanks and General Chow and Bernie Sanders are all getting together playing Chinese checkers. This is not true. In Australian hospital, that's where Bernie is. You notice he's been quiet since uh, Super Tuesday three. Where's Bernie? Mr. Where's where's the where's Bernie hashtag on Twitter? That's what I want to know. 
Mr. President, we need He's in China. We, He's in China. We need leadership, Mr. President. I'm leading all the way. I wrote a hand-washing song. I wrote my own hand-washing song because, as I said, we're sick of happy birthday. Joe Biden's sick of happy birthday. I'm a pretty great songwriter. Did you know that? Yeah, People you wrote the shocked. children's book. The children's book I, was pretty great. And so you well, wrote. I'm also, I, I, I write songs. I, I have like a natural gift for it. Mm. Natural gift. Yeah. You know, I had an uncle, Hoagie Trump. He's <laughs> also something of a songwriter. He made up a great genius song. Yeah. He's a super genius songwriter. Really? Made a great song about the black kids in the neighborhood. <laughs> mm-hmm. Hoagie, Hoagie, Hoagie Trump. <laughs> yeah. Here's how the song went. Okay. Get off. <laughs> get off my street. I'm warning you. Ah. I'm warning you. It's very catchy. Big hit. It was a big hit. It spread all the way to Howard Beach. <laughs> all the way from Queens through Brooklyn to Howard Beach. He was a super duper scooper genius. I guess I got it from him. Hoagie Trump. Uncle Hoagie. Uh-huh. Yeah, but he's not the only. Sammy Khan once told me I was a genius. The songwriter, Sammy Khan. The famous legendary. He wrote The Tender Trap. Yeah. The Tender Trap. Sammy once Sammy Khan told me I was a genius and not because I was about to evict him and he was in his 90s and terrified. He meant it. Is that the first dog in the background? That's Nancy Pelosi. <laughs> Nancy Pelosi. Apparently she wants to tinker with the bill again. All she wants to do is get in the way, get in the way. It's like a clock. You can count on her. Nancy in the way. Anyway. So you wrote a song, Mr. President? Yeah. All right. I guess Nancy quieted down. Maybe they put her to sleep. <laughs> anyway, here's the song. So this is a song that you're, you're, you're telling us, instead of singing happy birthday, this is a song yep. for our kids to sing. Takes 20 seconds. Takes 20 seconds. Yeah. Wash your hands, wash your hands, do it all the time. Wash your hands if you want to touch your face or pick your nose. Make sure <laughs> to wash your hands. Wash your hands, wash your hands. I love the blacks, but wash your hands. Really safe. Unlike Rosie's heart attack, I love the blacks. I love the blacks' heart attack because she's fat. Rosie's fat. She eats. <laughs> she eats. Do you like the song so it's, far? It's beautiful. I'm, I'm actually washing my. So in 20 seconds, keep yeah. washing. Yeah, I'm washing. She eats too much food. Rosie's fat and her heart went spat. She eats too much food. Oh, it's a beautiful song. Wash your hands. Oh, wash your hands. Oh, there's if more. There's more. Twenty seconds. I told you. Yeah. Right. Okay. Have to take twenty seconds. Uh-huh. Otherwise, you're not cleaning properly. I see. Oh, wash your hands if you want to touch your face. Wash your gross, disgusting hands. Wash your hands, Rosie's. <laughs> 
<laughs> Wash your hands. Rosie's fat, and it's not because of her glands. She eats too much. She eats too much. Don't ever touch your face. Her weight gain's not glandular. She eats too much. She eats too much. Don't ever touch your face. Ah, oh, wash your hands. Wash your hands. Stick them up a stripper's ass and wash your hands. <laughs> and never touch your face. Hmm. Never pick your nose. Rosie's too fat to see her disgusting toes. Wow. Thank you, Mr. President. I hope all our kids out there learn to sing that song and, and keep themselves clean and safe. Thank you, Mr. President. Rosie's fat. <laughs> Rosie's fat. Okay. Let us now go to Tucson, Arizona, where Dr. Jennifer Vertolin is standing by. She is an internationally recognized animal behavior expert. She teaches animal conservation at the University of Arizona, and she's got two books that everybody should go by, Wild Connection, What Animal Courtship and Mating Tell Us About Human Relationships. I think we're going to talk about that today, something along those lines. Raised by Animals, the surprising new science of animal family dynamics. Subscribe to Dr. Jennifer's newsletter. Go to jenniferverdelin.com. Subscribe. I'm looking at a cute little, is that a mountain lion on your YouTube channel? It's a cute little <laughs> wild connection. Yeah, wild connection TV. I'm looking at a tortoise and now you're out in the Sonora desert. Wild connection TV. We'll talk about that later and follow you on Twitter, real Dr. Jen. So, I just did an interview with an epidemiologist who, when we wrapped up, he said to me, this is something that our generation, that nobody understands, that, that only the greatest generation understands. This is the first time since World War II that Americans will have to make a shared sacrifice. And, of course... You know, the shared sacrifices, stay home and binge watch the Shahs of Sunset. He didn't say that, but, you know, my father went off to liberate the Pacific. I'm binge watching Jeopardy. I am trying to remain optimistic. I'm getting a lot of negativity from this coronavirus. Damn it. Right. And I refuse to... I am in denial about the severity of this. So talk me off the ledge. <laughs> well, you know, look, I, I mean, I, I get it, right? When it's I mean really... off the ledge, I mean, tell me why I should just jump to my... Oh, <laughs> no. There's a lot of reasons to be optimistic. And, okay. you know, I think that, that um, regardless of the bumpy start, there were pockets and there are growing pockets of people that are 
are cooperating, are um, really trying to maintain some, uh, you know, there's been competition, which we see with hoarding behavior, mm-hmm. but then there's been the, the opposite, the cooperation. So more stores reserving hours for the elderly, um, people donating to food banks. And, and that's the sort of tension that comes with being a social animal is, mm-hmm. you know, there's the, the need to cooperate to sort of maintain social unity. And then there's the competitiveness, which is where you're scrambling for potentially shortfalls in resources. And so I think that what we're seeing emerge is a really huge potential for global cooperation. If we could all get kind of on the same page and coordinate some of these efforts and, and there's potentially hope for that. There's also some worrying signs when the disease is labeled in a racist way and when, you know, uh, certain government officials are trying to secure sole access to potential treatments. I think that, you know, um, goes against the idea of, of really um, cooperating, cooperating and engaging mutually for the global good. Mm-hmm. But, you know, at the local level, there's tons that we can do. And I think um, there's also treatments that are kind of emerging. They're still in question, but there's additional trials, you know, so that could help stem this this wave before, uh, you know, to buy time for uh, a, um, a vaccine to be developed. So I think there's lots of, and we're learning a lot about each other. The environment is cleaning up. I mean, dolphin returned to Venice canals in a matter of days when the pollution cleared. Now, whether or not we use that information to modify our behavior and have a better appreciation uh, for outdoors and clean air, which even in the 1918 pandemic, open air uh, hospitals and open air therapy you know, shows some uh, real benefit. So being outside um, is is helpful. And, of course, you don't want to crowd in areas where other people are, but find a, a less traveled path and go for a walk. Uh, try not to fall and break your legs so we don't inundate the hospitals. Right. But, you know, I took a tumble and ended up um, in a, a cactus uh <laughs> Aisle, so mm. that was fun and use duct tape <laughs> duct tape has all kinds of uses right and it works really great for taking out cactus spines <laughs> oh i didn't know that yeah ripped them right out that was you know even those tiny little ones so that's interesting uh, I, I, I have a you. i have a lot of duct tape but i don't want to go into my dating life um <laughs> co2 is disappearing or coming back i think in wuhan they 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 did satellite surveillance of china and for the first time in a generation smog was clearing up yeah so the planet you know the planet cleans itself in many ways doesn't it the virus is i i don't want to well let, let me i don't want to go there there is here's here's the thing about the reaction to this virus. Everybody has an agenda, and now is the time for critical thinking. Right. That is what I'm asking of myself. We have to think critically, 
and everybody is suspect. Everybody has an agenda. Everybody is pushing either a product or an ideology or a, a political agenda. So I try to be careful here. One yeah. of the things that that I'm not thinking, that I was thinking up until this pandemic was this country needs something to wake it up. You know, we, 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 we have a, a public health infrastructure that is crumbling. That before the pandemic, we were willing to live with 60,000 Americans each year dying because they don't have health insurance. That's acceptable. We're willing to live with uh, an epidemic of suicides from guns. Something like 35,000 Americans die every year from gun violence. We're willing to live with that. We're willing to live with the fact that about 50,000, 56,000 people die every year from the flu. We're willing to live with traffic fatalities. We're willing to live with... Uh, greenhouse gas related deaths, the cancers that come from fracking. We're willing to live with all this risk. And the pandemic, all of a sudden, we're not willing to, to live with this risk. We're being told that it, it's going to be much larger than all these things combined. And I, I have to believe in order for to keep my sanity, that it's not going to be as bad as people say it is. It's the uncertainty that's driving us nuts. Well, so, okay, a couple of things to unpack there. The first is that I, I think you're right. One in critical thinking is necessary, and it's it's unfortunately not a skill that has necessarily been reinforced in our educational system mm -hmm. uh, for, you know, a while, which we see the consequences of that. The other thing is that I think the reason why people are willing to live with those lists of risks that you mentioned or why, um, you know, there hasn't been a consensus of, of real uh, action by everybody is because that doesn't really impact you. Right? right. So, but this is one thing that transcends Everything from whatever your religious affiliation, whatever your political affiliation, whether you have insurance or don't have insurance, because now it's not going to matter. You could have all the insurance in the world, but if there are no beds in the hospital, doesn't matter. So so I think that this situation is transcending the boundaries of all those other risks that normally keep people feeling pretty comfortable, pretty safe, unless, of course, they're the one being impacted. And and so it makes it much easier to ignore. It's sort of like, well, the prairie dog isn't worried for, you know, the other colony on the other side of the hill and, you know, far away where it can't see it about coyotes attacking them. Right. Mm -hmm. They only care about coyotes that might come in their space. Right. And so I think that, again, we have an opportunity in this situation to recognize that that we are in fact globally connected and that things that impact others impact us and maybe we can carry that forward and hold on to it although you know sort of historically what happens is 
unlike in ecosystems where you you get where I mentioned this last time where you get a disturbance and then you get to resilience uh, where it, it functions in a different but successful way we we might try to be return turning to baseline and and that may be connected to how bad it gets i don't know i think day to day the average person is experiencing a situation where they they've never experienced before where they may live alone or they may live with uh, family members but they can't connect with their friends and they can't physically connect with anybody outside of their their sphere however big or small that sphere is and maybe from there can recognize how important it is to comfort each other to be empathetic with each other yeah. to let's talk to, about that yeah i mean we're you know it's it's critical for social animals and and we're strongly motivated to seek the company of others whether it's relatives or non-relatives and this is especially true after isolation. So, so what we might see and what I know people are worrying about is we, ha- we impose these really, you know, intense social, physical distancing and, and reduction of social interactions. Uh, and, and people might start feeling lonely. And then as soon as you lift the, you know, if you lift a hundred percent, then you might, people are going to naturally gravitate back to large groups and, and, and diverse groups and hugging and, and touching. (laughs) And, and so, because that's going to give you a hormone boost. This is what happens for social animals, whether it's people or prairie voles or, 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 or rats or parrots, frankly, Mm -hmm. we, we look for ways to help and comfort each other during times of physical isolation. Yeah. So let's talk about the, the peril of physical isolation. Uh, solitary confinement is considered torture. You take a a prisoner and you put him in solitary. You limit his exposure to other prisoners to one hour a day. And even in prison, a prisoner wants to be around other prisoners. With all that comes with being around other prisoners, it's considered torture to deprive a prisoner of being around other prisoners. That, that speaks yeah. volumes to how how social we are as animals because, you know, being in prison, especially here in the United States, I, I would assume I'd want to be left alone. I, I'm, I would be afraid to be around other prisoners. But solitary is punishment, is torture, drives you nuts. We yeah, need other people. This- yeah, we've known this for a while and, and with some unfortunate experiment, experiments done on other social animals. It leads to neurotic behavior, chronic stress, um, physical illness, um, even at the level of your, your chromosomes, there are these little, um, extensions called telomeres and, and they're sort of like, uh, you know, like a, uh, an eraser cap <laughs> mm-hmm. on a, on a long pencil. And, um, and they basically are involved in stabilizing chromosomes and how fast your cells die. And, um, and, and as you age, they naturally get shorter. 
right? So this mm-hmm. sort of happens. Uh, as you age, they just get shorter. And that's why older people have, you know, um, you know, uh, there's this sort of catalytic effect of, of aging that happens, not just with the immune systems, but cells and so forth. What do you mean? Well, catalyt- what, do you- what does catalytic mean? Well, so you get this combination of cell death that happens much faster, chromosomal instability and, uh, you know, reduced immune function. So that just happens naturally with age. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. now if you have uh, if you're not old, uh, but you're relatively young and healthy and, and have, you know, all your telomeres in place, uh, chronic stress can cause uh, premature shortening. Of these telomeres, and there's a preliminary study in African gray parrots. So, African grays are really social, and they will bond with a one, generally one human. Uh, keeping a, an African parrot in uh, African gray parrot in isolation would be the equivalent of putting a human in solitary confinement. Right. And you know we've we've so we know that other social animals, the experiments that have been done, which are terrible, but have uh, you know, basically confirmed how detrimental physical isolation, like babies, uh, baby macaques, which is a primate, when they're taken from their mother, they would prefer a fluffy object that simulates their mother over with no food available over a wired, uh, a wire kind of, um, you know, mesh construction of an object with, that has food. So we will right. even forego food. Uh, for for a, a hug, essentially. Right. Yeah. How important are <laughs> hugs? They're huge. In fact, twenty second hugs, which is not advised with anybody that's not in your household who is you know mm-hmm. uh, right now. Uh, but they are so important because they release all kinds of hormones. They're in fact they are crucial to the production of certain hormones. One that people might have heard about is oxytocin, and that hormone reinforces. Uh, emotions, uh, and, and it's often been called sort of the feel good hormone. So it nurtures attachment and bonding, not just between parent and offspring, but non relatives or social group members. And, and it re- helps resolve conflict. So, so because affection helps, um, modulate that tension I mentioned between cooperation and competition. Mm hmm. So there's a, you know, a slight concern that if we can't get hugs and we can't reinforce our social bonds, do we, do we pull more onto the side of competition instead of cooperation? It really, it also helps resolve conflicts quickly. So many species, uh, if after a fight, it's not that social animals don't fight. (laughs) Of course they do. They have little spats. Uh, but. Other social species resolve conflicts very quickly. Like it's intolerable to have that tension. Right. And if anybody's lived in a household with someone who gives you the silent treatment for days or weeks, this is also torture and it's very unhealthy on, for both sides. And so other animals resolve conflicts much faster so that they reduce the tension that comes with living in a group and dealing with that kind of competition. And, and so that's usually done by physical touch in some way or physical proximity. So there's either a hug given or, you know, quick groom, or if you're not ready to, you know, maybe couples have experienced this. You're not ready to talk or hug, but you'll sit on the couch together, right. feet apart. Right. Like vervet monkeys have that uh, in their 
back pocket, like, okay, I'm still mad at you. I know I got to make this better. I'm not ready for you to touch me. So like, we're just going to sit next to each other at some distance that lets us know our relationship is still okay, even though I'm still mad at you. Right, right. So the silent treatment is a form of torture. Theoretically, when I'm performing stand-up, I could sue my audience. <laughs> I could. All right. That's good to know. Well, well we're becoming would... increasingly isolated already. Right. Well, so I would say, right, that's already a problem, and we see that manifest in lots of different ways in social dysfunction, right? We've already been seeing that happen. And so the question is, will this situation make people realize how fundamental to our existence, physical contact and comfort and, and, and eye contact and body language is to, to, you know, our phys- our well-being, our mm-hmm. actual well-being. And so I know that there are many people at home with kids and, 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 and the kids are anxious and the parents are anxious. And I would say if you guys are all in the same family household, there should be lots of positive, uh, you know, physical contact, lots of hugs, lots of, of, of empathetic contact. For those of us that are alone and, but have pets, we know that, you know, dogs and cats, people who have pets, that physical contact is, it functions in similar ways. It is a stress reducer. But for those of us that live alone, I mean, one thing that we we can try to do, it's not the same, but there are webcams of, of, of animals and, um, you know, you can do birding by webcam. You can do uh, watch wild animal cams and, and seeing other um, animals connect and raise their offspring can reduce your stress, raise your own hormone levels. It's not quite the same as a hug. A hug is like 20 seconds. You get that oxytocin, you know, jolt like a, like a a Red Bull, you know, Mm -hmm. into your system. (laughs) And, um, and, and so I know many people are doing pop-up like coffee breaks and I would say keeping it positive and send and and doing the motion of a hug or hugging yourself and saying, I'm sending you a hug. Right. Could potentially, you know, I have no idea of, of the physiological mechanism and whether it works or not. It's not the same, but, you know, it's something to try. Right. We have a lot of listeners who have insomnia. Uh, We have a lot of listeners who are alone. My advice is your TV is not your friend. It may be your enemy. I've been watching TV. I I want human Mm -hmm. connection. And I turn on the TV and they're selling me stuff. They can't help it. Rachel Maddow cannot help it. Lawrence O'Donnell cannot help it. They are selling me antipathy towards the Republican Party. This is Donald Trump's fault. They're not giving me information. They're giving me slant. And then they sell me pharmaceutical products. And they're not selling me what I really need, which is human contact, contact, authenticity, a real human being talking uh, to me. I do think audio is a much more powerful medium when people are alone because uh, it 
it's, as Marshall McLuhan said, it's hot. It, it, it fires up your brain and your imagination. And television uh, is, it just sedates you. You surrender to it, and it makes you feel frightened and inadequate. I mean, if you turn on the TV, you're going to be agitated and uh, really feel more alone. It's not, it's not comforting. It's not designed right. to comfort you. It's designed to excite you, make you feel uh, less than, inadequate, and buy something to correct whatever it is that's making you feel you're lacking. So yeah. turn your yeah. F, turn your TV off. I doubt people are <laughs> capable of doing that, I, including I me. Well, I disagree. I mean, I think, look, this is going to take a lot of cooperation, things we are actually built to do, right? <laughs> so we have a choice. Do And this is what, you know, um, and, and in some sense, we don't have a choice. We're driven by if we feel resources are scarce, we will scramble and compete. This is what happens in all social species. So the distribution and availability of resources, the more stable and evenly distributed that can be, the better it is for fostering cooperation. If you're currently among one of the privileged and lucky ones who is still able to work remotely can still, uh, and, and you have an extra, whatever, $15, you know, $20, uh, either buy a gift certificate for a restaurant or get some extra food if you're doing the, the pickup or delivery and, and drop it off at a church or a food bank somewhere so that we can keep that supply chain, which is also one of the problems we've had prior to this. Mm-hmm. Okay. But this is now amplified, it's like big time. And so I think the more we can make sure everybody has what they basically need, the more we can reveal our cooperative natures, our ability to band together. We have a common enemy. This is the thing that's needed for coming together. The interesting thing is this is a global common enemy. Right. So so what 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 I'm just going to pick a random country, what Spain does ultimately is going to impact the United States. What the United States does is going to ultimately impact, uh, I, I don't know, uh, you know, Portugal, Germany or Portugal. Right. So so and that's not just limited to right now. It will continue for as long as this is a, a threat that is not um, able to be silenced. So so. We by by understanding that and by embracing that and by coordinating our actions and globally cooperating, we have an opportunity to have a real shift happen. Starting in your local community is a is a great way. I think that if some people rely simply on television, you're absolutely right. It's much more isolationist, uh, just as it would be under normal circumstances. So maybe doing something different. There's museums that have opened virtual tours. There's 3 million or 300, I don't know how many hundreds of million or hundreds of thousands of books that have been made available. If you, if reading is your jam, start a little book club. 
right. in your community, right? We all have these sort of neighborhood apps. So use that to say, hey, anybody else interested in a in a book club? And if you're fortunate enough to have internet, uh, then you could do some kind of audio or visual little discussion group. Make it not about this virus other than do you need something? I have extra of this. Let's trade, yeah. right? Yeah. Uh, we can we can trade what we've got uh, instead of sell what you've got. Just say, hey, I've got extra of this. Does anybody need that? Because I need some of this. And 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 that's sort of going back to the old days of your neighbor's got extra sugar and you've got extra milk and you just oh hey hey can I borrow a cup of sugar? Yeah, all right. Hey, can I have some milk? Sure. Right. Okay. Right. Right. And, and so it's biblical. Scarcity is biblical. And there is self-imposed scarcity. There's Lent. You give up something for Lent. There's Yom Kippur, where you uh, fast for a day. There's Ramadan, where you're supposed to fast throughout the day. Uh, scarcity is is a lesson, a divine lesson. And you can use this, I believe, as an opportunity to explore what you really need and this this could be a reset i doubt americans are capable of this i doubt americans are capable of using this as an opportunity to go through their credit card statements and say do i really need hulu netflix and amazon prime do i really need uh to buy this to buy that and what what do I really need to survive? Right. I think most of us are not up to that task. I think most of us will not come out of this realizing that people are more important than things. You know, that hug, that hug is free. Mm -hmm. That hug from your friend or your partner is free. So nobody is going to remind you Nobody's going to pay $50,000 to advertise on NBC in prime time to remind you to hug because nobody gets rich off, you know, they'll, they'll pay money to make you more huggable. But there are things <laughs> that there are things that are totally free, like taking a deep breath, meditating, reading, relaxing, being around people, spending extra time to cook your food, to pay attention to the, the food, to practice mindfulness, to say, wow, this food that I take for granted is scarce. I, it's hard to, it's actually a lot harder to get. Maybe, I, maybe I shouldn't eat as much. Maybe I should only eat when I'm hungry. Exercise, right. exercise turns out it's kind of precious to be able to go for a walk. All the things that are tr like fresh water, all the things that we take for granted are the things we really need. And you look at what's on, look at your credit card statement. If you're brave enough, how much of that stuff do you need or even want? I doubt most of us are capable of. You know, I see it with myself. I, I'm trying to clean out closets mm -hmm. and just throwing out crap soaps from, you know, from the Ramada Inn that I stayed in in, in, <laughs> in Texas two years ago. Why am I saving this soap? Uh, so. Yeah, well, I, I mean, I, I will say that 
I got to tell you, there have been professional cuddlers as a business. So people do pay for hugs. Yeah. Which is, is really sad, actually, that, that you, you have to pay someone to hug you. Right. So hugs aren't always free, apparently, in yeah. a capitalistic society. <laughs> right. Um, we, we did so, a, We did a segment on, on the Raffinator Radio Hour about skin to skin contact and professional hugging and cuddling, that it is a serious problem for adults. Yeah. That they don't have skin on skin contact before you go. Cabin yeah. fever. If you're lucky enough to be sharing your space with somebody. Yep. You said to me before we started that Senor Buttons, your cat, was getting sick of you. <laughs> do do pets get sick of their? I don't want to say owners. Uh, I don't want to say companions. Mad. Companions. Yeah. So okay. So I won't. I wouldn't classify it as they're totally sick of you. I would say that recognize that all social animals, including our companion animals still want a little bit of alone time. And so they should have a safe place anyway where they can go and be by themselves. So don't force, forced hugging, forced cuddling is is really as unpleasant as forced tickling, right? Mm-hmm. So, so ro- rats like to be tickled, but if they are not feeling like being tickled, it turns pretty, you know, it, they may not like it so much, just like people. I, I, you know, you can torture somebody by tickling them. So... I think that what I'm saying is that I try to be as uh, attuned to Senor Buttons. And if I'm feeling like I need a hug or want to snuggle with him uh, and he expresses like, nah, I think I want to just go chill out over here. Um, I let him chill out over there, even though I might be in the room and he's got his little spots. So make sure that your companion animals have spaces where they can go and just chill because that's what they also did when you went to work all day. Mm -hmm. So most of them will be thrilled that you're home, but that doesn't mean that 24 seven, you know, think about it like your kids or your spouse. If, if I had another human in my apartment, which is pretty small, I would be in much worse shape than I am right now, despite the fact that I'm really craving wanting a hug. right? Right. So, so I think that there's this balance and recognizing that your companion animals are individuals with their own little quirks and schedule. And so don't throw things off too much for them and, you know, let them move in the space as they also need to. And maybe things are noisier because everybody's home and that's right. stressful for them. Right. So, I, you know, I think just. Now, just it's interesting re- that, that you're so smart and so well-spoken and so well-educated. You're a doctor. You have a PhD. You're an animal behaviorist. And with all the knowledge that you have, you you still decided on a cat instead of a dog. It's like, how could... They don't teach common sense in our universe. Do you, do you think there's actually a dog that you could be sharing your space with who would ever say, back off, I'm not in the mood? Oh my gosh, I had a great Dane. So I didn't, like, in some ways, Buttons, Senor Buttons' mother chose me, right? This happens frequently with cats. They're like, okay, I like your house. I think I'm going to just be part mm-hmm. of your family. And if I have to tolerate you, you know, okay. Um, him and I have a very special bond. 
And even, you know, he's sort of like looks at me like, why are you still here? <laughs> and, and so I go out for a walk and I come back and he doesn't come to the door anymore to greet me. He's like, mm-hmm. I don't really see the point of celebrating yeah. your home because yeah. you're always home. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, you know, I had a great Dane and and he was it was so I could never get any work done. He I couldn't watch TV without him like deciding he was on my lap. Uh-huh. I couldn't go to the restroom alone. I couldn't, um, you know, uh, sleep my bed. He was 185 pounds and he had his side of the bed and I had my <laughs> side of the bed and every, I'm t- but listen, and, and so I used to spoon my Dane. It was great. He was, he was about six feet long, nose to tail. Right. And, but, uh. but every now and then, because he was who he was. I, if I had to get up in the middle of the night, I'd come back and he'd be in my side of the bed. It was mm-hmm. like a statement. And and Buttons is doing the same thing nowadays. But but <laughs> you know, I had a roommate and I would argue with my Dane. I, mm-hmm. I, I would say, "Get out of my spot," and he'd be, and I'm like, "Move!" Or nobody is sleeping. And in the morning, my roommate would say, "What is wrong with you? I heard you arguing with the dog." <laughs> In the middle of the night, I'm like, well, nobody takes my side of the bed. You understand? It's just no. And and but buttons, senior buttons, same thing. I get up in the middle of the night. I got to use the restroom. I come back. I have to feel mm-hmm. my side of the bed because he's moved because it's warmer. And and so I'm like, OK, it's fine. I regularly shift now well, to hey, accommodate. Let, my let me cat. bring he's ben, trained me. <laughs> let me bring Ben Burgess in. He's my next guest. We'll, we'll do a Let's say hello. Hang on. OK, professor. Uh, by the way, do pets uh, have we have we determined whether or not pets do pass on the the virus? Or um, I believe the. Um, <clears throat> the uh, final word from the who was no, they do not. Right. I mean, I think that why are we listening to Daltrey and Peter Townsend on the coronavirus? Hang on for one second. Ben Burgess just joined us. (laughs) Hello, Professor Ben Burgess. We're talking with Dr. Jennifer Vertland and Professor Ben Burgess joins us. Are you there, Professor? I am. I was wrapping up with Dr. Jen and we were talking about isolation and Dr. Jen is saying that we all need hugs and she's isolated in Tucson, Arizona. And it just felt right to bring you on instead of just saying, thank you, Dr. Jen. Uh, <laughs> we'll create a little community here. <laughs> nice to, nice to be on with you, Dr. Burgess. All right. Nice to be on with you. <laughs> Professor Ben Burgess is author of. Give them an argument, logic for the left. He teaches philosophy at Perimeter College, Georgia State University. He's a columnist for Jacobin. You can see him every week on the Michael Brooks Show doing the debunk. Welcome, Dr. Ben Burgess. Thanks, David. How are you holding up? Oh, I'm okay. Uh, a little stir-crazy maybe, but, you know, I'm all right. Now, uh, you have a, a dog, I believe, correct? Uh, I do, yes. Now, isn't it interesting that you, a philosophy professor, knew to get a dog, but <laughs> Dr. Jennifer Vertolin, who has a Ph.D., <laughs> animal behaviorist, who studies animals, 
is with a cat instead of a dog. Would you like to <laughs> explain to the good doctor why she was wrong for getting tell 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 us why a dog makes a much better companion? I I, I know we're piling on Dr. Jennifer Vertolin. I know you feel That's okay, but explain why a dog is so much better in a crisis. <laughs> well, we actually have one of each, so um so <laughs> the dogs this one. Uh, now, Dr. Jennifer Verlin, we did we did agree that a cat would eat you, right? <laughs> well, a dog-, dog would eat you too. Okay, just to be clear, other animals will eat people and see them as food. There was a study that there was a actually there was a, a, a situation not too long ago where some I think it was Great Danes were chowing down on their owner, so. But you know, but, but dogs don't. <laughs> cats plan to eat their own. <laughs> dogs do it out of necessity, right? I mean, that's a fair statement. Well, no, I don't know. I would, I would turn this over to to Ben and say, do you see your cat looking at you differently than your dog these days? <laughs> no, honestly, I think they're both just happy that we're home so much right now. Uh, let, let's try this because I do, I, I do want to ask. Dr. Ben Burgess, some serious questions, but he is the author of Give Them an Argument, Logic for the Left. <laughs> Would you like to moderate a debate between me and Dr. Jennifer Verdelin? Cats, cats v. dogs? Should we do a five-minute debate? And we actually have like a, a, an, an important learning, a teaching moment here where we teach people how to debate properly? <laughs> Are you up for this challenge, Doctor? Doctor Ben Burgess? Well, I, I don't know that your other debater is up for it. I think she's afraid. I think she's part of the expression "chicken." I think she knows that I just resolved. Nope. I'm in. I'm in. Okay, resolved. Right. Resolved. Dogs are better than cats. <laughs> now, what no. do we do? Teach us how to debate. Seriously. All right. Well. Well, you're you're arguing for the affirmative. You should go first. Okay. And what is the format? How does this work? <laughs> well, we've got five minutes, so uh, so let's let's do uh, let's try to keep the opening statements down to a minute. Okay. Okay. Uh, okay. I think dogs are better than cats because dogs have evolved through time to become true companions to human beings. Whereas cats, they've done the DNA check. Cats have not evolved. Cats refuse to change. You cannot alter them. You cannot breed cats to become true companions to humans. The DNA of dogs has changed over time to make them almost our, our lovers. Dogs are better. They're kind. They're gentle. They, if you're, if you're, dead they'll stand by you and guard your body until help comes dogs are just better they're better dr verdolin um okay so i I take issue with several points the first is that cats actually their dna their ancient dna actually has evolved to make them our domestic companions the better thing about dogs than cats is they did this on their own they were smart enough to realize that cats did that on their own 
Yeah, cats domesticated themselves, and they are the original service animal. They uh, basically are agricultural stores clear of rodents, right? So, so they were they they wormed their way into our lives by by giving us something. Dogs did that too. It was protection, so that's helpful. But it's an incorrect to say that cats did not have their DNA changed to become companion animals. It's about 9,000 years ago they, they wisened up to, to how we could all help each other. And I think that uh, cats may not make the greatest protection from intruders for us or alert us to danger, but they keep our houses clean of rodents. And, uh, yeah, so I think that cats are smarter because they domesticated themselves Cats can do everything that dogs can do, only better. And now, what do I? How does this debate go? So I respond <laughs> to her. How does this? Yeah, well, all right. So she uh, it sounds like she really undermined your argument from evolution, but she says the cats can do everything dogs can do, but better. What do you have to say to that? Well, she says that cats are necessary inside the house because they can rid the home of rodents. I say cats are rodents. Maybe they're not. Their taxonomy isn't rodent, but I rather have a, a a rat in my house because at least I don't have to change the rat's box. I mean, this is a, a cat. It, it, I've never had a rat who clawed my furniture, who who <laughs> peed on a rug, and I had to throw the rug out because I couldn't <clears throat> get rid of the smell. A dog has the decency to go outside, do his business outside. A cat. A cat does it in your in your home, and 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 it smells. And even if you do clean up after it and, and clean the box, they go in your bathtub anyway. <laughs> However, I have to say that at least I can use a scooper, and I'm not outside with a little bag in my hand picking up warm dog shit. So we have to clean up after dogs, but. It's kind of grosser. Yes, either in the house, but if you clean your litter box for your cat, pretty they won't go in your bathtub. Nobody stinky toilet. Not people and not cats. So if you do the upkeep, it's wonderful that you don't have to go walk your cat every four hours and then stand there with a bag of poop in your hand and walk around with it so you can find a trash can. I think... Uh, I think they're actually, you know, they groom themselves. They, you know, they, they, they use the, the proper toilet if you keep it clean and have enough of them if you have multiple cats. Uh, as far as destroying furniture and objects, I tell you, a dog that is teething, uh, like I had a Great Dane, he chewed my wall. I've never had a cat chew my wall. And, and chew a hole in it. Okay. And, and just to prove the point of smarter, my dog thought that charcoal, which smelled like the steak that my roommate had cooked on it. This was years ago. He ate the entire thing of charcoal, which people might realize that if you use charcoal and eat it, it causes projectile vomiting. So not only did my, my Dane uh, you know, sometimes have bouts of diarrhea in the house and didn't use a litter box like my cat. Uh, he ate 
a whole bucket full of charcoal and vomited projectile through my entire kitchen. So, okay. are we going to uh, obey that? I'm going to have to. Uh, I'm going to have to declare Dr. Vertle in the winner oh, here. I, no, no, no. I, hang on. I have to I'm, respond. I'm, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. It's been it's been five minutes. Uh, it seems <laughs> like she. Uh, you know, she really, she really addressed, uh, your points about, about evolution and litter boxes. Uh, remember the, the resolution wasn't, um, you know, wasn't cats are better than dogs. She wasn't the one who had to prove, prove her case, right? You know, you, the resolution was dogs are better than cats. And I don't think that's been established. May, may I have a closing statement? May I at least have a closing statement? All right. Sure. Well, well, a brief closing statement. Dogs are better than cats. Because dogs are not a health hazard. Dogs make you go outside to walk them. That's good cardiovascular. Dogs, they clean your house. They eat from the cat box. <laughs> they do. It's a delicacy. They eat from the cat box. That I, I mean, I've eaten from my cat box. I wouldn't call it a delicacy, but my dog thinks it's a delicacy. He, so they they clean the house for you. It's like a Roomba plus taxoplasmosis. Mm. That's my closing argument. Taxoplasmosis. And, okay. and, and, and I think and I, I'm is it I, ad hominem, Ben, I, Professor Ben. I, I don't mean to attack the opposing side, but I think the person I'm debating is suffering from taxoplasmosis. Um, I just want to, I'm sorry to have to say this, but it's toxoplasmosis. So no taxoplasmosis. No. That's a, it's a new thing that you haven't heard of where cats, cats are, 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 they're taxing you. They're taking 15% oh. of your, of your money without you knowing it. I see. Well, I just want to, if I'm allowed just 30 seconds, I will say that, <laughs> that a dog eating from a cat litter box is more of an erotic sign of strength and, and betterment. Um, <laughs> and, you know, one can walk their cat. It might be not as aerobically challenging <laughs> as a dog. But, um, <clears throat> and as for you know, being, uh, you know, succumbing to a parrot, it is known to affect our personalities and our behavior in different ways, especially risk-taking behavior. Uh, so, you know, we're, we're more likely to gamble more and, and take more risks if we've been exposed to toxoplasmosis, but it's gender-specific. So, um, anyway, I don't think you won. I think I still take the win. I'm going to go with that. <laughs> and uh, and I'm happy to leave you guys now to... to for your discussion, I loved the debate. I love winning, and I was on the debate team in high school. So, you know. Fantastic. Dr. Jennifer Vertolin is an animal behaviorist. You can follow her on Twitter by going to Real Dr. Jen. And she is the author of two books that everybody should go out and buy. I don't have them in front of me. Actually, I do, but since I lost the debate, I don't feel like, I don't feel I don't feel like uh, I want to. Yeah, that's okay. That's okay. Uh, I, gonna... I feel I feel you humiliated me, and uh, you took advantage of me because I'm stupid. I'm not, You're not stupid. I'm not as you made me feel stupid. Doctor Jennifer Verlin <laughs> is an internationally recognized animal behavior expert. 
And her two books are Wild Connection, What Animal Courtship and Mating Tell Us About Human Relationships, and Raised by Animals, The Surprising New Science of Animal Family Dynamics. Sign up for her <laughs> newsletter. Go to jenniferverdelin.com. Thank you so much. I would. Thanks so much. And, and it was fun being on with you, uh, Dr. Ben Burgess. <laughs> All right. I appreciate it. Yeah, even though you won the debate, you should still get a dog. All right. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Goodbye. All right. Thank Bye. you, doctor. Thank you. Bye. Well, joining us is a, uh, a traitor to his gender. I think I should have, you should have sided gender? with me. Yes. You're, you're a gender traitor. And, uh, but that's okay. That's okay. I, I understand. Dr. Ben Burgess is author of Give Them an Argument Logic for the Left. And he writes for Jacobin. So I am, starting the show talking to an epidemiologist who says this is it this is the big pandemic we <laughs> everything's going to change and do you get a sense that people are using this for their own agenda and i say that because from the, from hey, the hey david I'm, you're, you're, I'm sorry let's are we breaking up yeah, break. Let me call you back. I'll call you yeah. back. Okay, thank you. You're listening to The David Feldman Show. Follow me on Twitter. Friend me on Facebook. Hello? Oh, I called Dr. Oh, sorry, I was calling Ben Burgess. I'm, oh, sorry. I, goodbye, yeah, I'll, you. I'll I think you. You called me again. Yeah, bye. <laughs> Boo. All right. Ben Burgess. <laughs> okay. All right. I accidentally called Dr. Jennifer Vertolin instead of you. <laughs> uh, okay. Are you there? Can you hear me? Yeah, yeah, I can hear you. Can, can you start from the beginning of the question? The beginning of the question is it, looking at this pandemic from the top down and from the bottom up. From the bottom up, if you're looking at this pandemic, it's an opportunity to change our public health infrastructure, to say, aha, I told you so, Medicare for all, and we need a strong government. From the top down, that's what really scares me, and I, I'd like you to address this. In an yeah. age of nationalism, anti-globalism, isn't this pandemic a godsend to people who want to control the masses? Uh, yeah, perhaps so. Uh, although it's also, um, you know, it's, it, I think it's a very mixed bag for them because it, you know, it makes them look like they're not, they don't know what they're doing. Right. Mm -hmm. uh, and, um, and also of course we need, um, you know, there's really no way to get through it without um, international cooperation and assistance. So, uh, like, one thing that I found very striking uh, this week is if you watched the debate on Sunday, uh, Joe Biden said in the debate that, well, Italy uh, has, you know, has socialized medicine and they were still struggling with it. So that proves that Medicare for all wouldn't and, do anything. And Bernie didn't respond to that. 
Uh, no, no, I think it took him by surprise, um, which uh, which which is unfortunate, right? You know, it should have uh, what he, um, you know, what he what he should have said uh, is is that Italy, because they have uh, because they have socialized healthcare system, they started out in a much better place than they're starting than we're starting out, right? They they had more hospital beds per people, uh, you know, nobody had to like pay for tested, etc. Uh, and actually, it's it stopped it from becoming a much bigger crisis there. But also, it's really it's really one thing that many people pointed out that's really striking is Biden said this on Sunday, uh, and um, on Monday, uh, the United States transported uh, half a million uh, coronavirus tests that were given to us by Italy. Um, so the the fact that they uh, the fact that that they actually have um, have the you know Corona uh, swabs to uh, to spare right you know in in the middle of the crisis you know says something very positive about their healthcare system, uh, but it also says something more generally which is which is that I mean it's it's not um, you know if you're if you're a, a Trump or you know or his equivalents around the world you know you might like the fact that. Uh, uh, you know, you might like the fact that you can exercise certain kinds of social control during the pandemic, but uh, it also makes a mockery of your claim that, you know, um, your country can just go it alone. Mm-hmm. Well, you taught me about accelerationism. Is that how it's pronounced? Yeah. And yep. I ended up talking to Professor Harvey J.K. We were talking about you and accelerationism uh, from the bottom up. A lot of people say things like, well, this now things are going to get worse. And finally, everybody's going to see the light. But you taught me about accelerationism last week. Can you speak about that? Remind us what it means. And does it bode well for seeing the light? Uh, Yeah. So accelerationism um, is, at least in in the sense that I'm using the word, like is is. Uh, as like a sort of position on left-wing strategy uh, is the idea that um, that like we should actually want things to get worse because like they have to get worse before they get better because if things get bad enough everybody will see the light right you know that uh, uh, like for for example in uh, 2016 uh, Susan Sarandon sort of I mean she kind of she kind of said, well, I'm, you know, she, some people are saying this. It wasn't quite clear that she was saying this, but anyway, she, she said like, you know, if, if you know, if, if Trump is elected, things will be so bad that like, then there'll be a revolution and like, that'll be good. Uh, or, and, um, and I think that the, I think that the history of, of accelerationism uh, is not promising uh, that uh, generally you know, because if certainly if you look at classic examples like, uh, you know, there's a point in the in the early, um, you know, the early 30s when like the uh, the Communist Party in Germany thought that like, uh, you know, it was fine, you know, if, mm-hmm. if Hitler came to power because uh, because then, um, you know, because then people would see how bad that was and, you know, and that would lead to uh, and that would lead to communist revolution. Right. Uh, knock Hitler on, you know, after Hitler us. Um, and and it, it never seems to work out that way or it certainly doesn't usually seem to work out that way because 
I think that like in really simple terms, we could see with like the Trump example, um, and it's it's kind of tragic because I'm I'm seeing online at least, um, and <laughs> a couple weeks ago we would have said online isn't the real world, but right now online is pretty much what we got. <laughs> Uh, it's, I used to say the real world is what we got with dis, <laughs> with disdain. Go ahead. Yeah, uh, but like I'm, you know, online I'm seeing a lot of. I think maybe I'm seeing a lot of very enthusiastic leftists who I think might be might be very new to politics. Right? I'm not mm-hmm. saying that as an insult. Everybody has to be. Everybody has to start out being new to it. Right? Mm-hmm. Uh, but. Um, Saying things like, "Well, uh, if if Trump is is reelected, uh, then um, then that'll like actually be good long term because it'll be like the final destruction of you know centrist Democrats, whatever." And and that seems very naive to me because uh, again, people you know saying similar things about electing Trump the first time, but uh, it doesn't the effect of the effect of electing monstrous right-wing Republicans never actually seems to be that it turn you know, that like it just turns everybody uh, into a super leftist. What it means is that um, people are so desperate to to go back to the way things were before that they'll they'll support somebody like Joe Biden, right? You know, uh, mm-hmm. and uh, and I don't see any reason to think it would work out any differently if Trump were reelected. I think that if Trump were reelected, um, which he he might you know he might very well be at this point, right? Like, I think I'm, by I'm, a landslide. I think if this crisis, if the pandemic, if we flatten the curve. Yeah, I get, he gets reelected by a landslide. Yeah, I mean, like I, I've gone, I've gone full circle on this because when uh, when it first started to become clear that Biden was winning, I thought, oh, Trump is going to eat this guy al- alive because you know Trump is an insult comic and and Biden is like hilariously senile and mm-hmm. tragically senile, uh, both of them. Right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's you know, funny in a dark way. Um, and then when this started to happen, I was like, okay, apocalypse, plague, economic downturn, that'll be enough to get Biden in, you know, to stumble in through, you know, through the door. But then when uh, now, when it seems like the Republicans are actually talking about doing some kind of uh, UBI, uh, you know, cutting everybody a check during the crisis and, you um, and, and Trump ordered the uh, housing and urban development to suspend um, uh, evictions. Uh, I am starting to get real worried that Trump is going to win um, because I think that if he can, I think that if he can run as the populist, mm-hmm. uh, then then he wins. I mean, it's, like that's like, yeah, it's Peronism, basically. Yeah, absolutely. Um so so yeah, if, tr- if Trump wins again, which unfortunately right now, I mean, who knows? A lot could change between now and November. But right now, it looks to me like he probably will. Uh, then uh, I don't see that being very helpful to to the left because it seems like, well, what's going to happen? Um, you know, if if Trump gets to um, a point more. You know, Supreme Court justices, for example, if uh, if if Trump, you know, if if more, um, 
you know, if more things that freak out liberals and leftists happen, uh, then by the time it's done, we're going to be, you know, a lot of people are going to be very easy marks for, oh, like the next Obama, right? Like they were after eight years of Bush, right? Like Obama, um, Obama did some like vaguely progressive and peacenicky signaling, but if you if you remember that campaign, I mean, he never really said he was going to do anything that you know that was all that great, right? I mean, it's, he was pretty vague during the election, and you know anybody who's paying attention um, knew that you know or should have known, right, that Obama was a centrist. But um, uh, but people weren't looking very closely because after eight years of Bush. Uh, anybody who looked like a, a sort of shiny, charismatic Democrat who could win, um, you know, was, was going to be very appealing for a lot of people. And I, 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 I wish it were not so, but I don't see I don't see any reason to think that it wouldn't play out in a similar way now. Yeah. Do we have any do we have any vocabulary in America for people to concede to admit they're wrong? Does George W. Bush ever admit he's wrong? <laughs> well, uh, he did at the very end. Do you remember that, that last press conference? Because, uh, like, there had been, uh, as I remember it, there was famously a, a press conference where somebody asked him if he, he could think of any mistakes and he couldn't think of any. Right. Um, and then I think he was widely mocked for that. But that there was a press conference at the very end when uh, he was asked the same question and he was like, well, it was uh, weapons of mass destruction, <sighs> Katrina, that was bad. And it sort of sounded like all of the horrible shit that had happened to him in the last eight, it happened in the last eight years was just now occurring to him. Right. But then they, they come to their senses and kind of uh, renege on their apology. Alan Greenspan, at the height of the financial crisis testified either before a house banking committee or a senate banking committee yeah i think it was the senate but yeah we were talking about he said there's a flaw in his model yeah there was a flaw in his model and uh but then they go back to believing what they believe they don't they don't become alan greenspan doesn't then move to the left he just says, yeah, if capitalism failed, we rescued it, but it's all better now, right? Right. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, I mean look, there's, if somebody, somebody, like, uh, somebody like Greenspan, uh, you know, George W. Bush, like, you know, these people are too um, – I mean, every once in a while, you know, someone does come around, you know, but uh, – uh, but like the, you know, it's not like, it's not like ordinary people changing their mind or not changing their mind. You know, people mm -hmm. who are in these positions, uh, they're too emotionally and professionally invested, uh, in, in their, in their politics to, you know, to be able to afford to admit to themselves, much less anybody else, yeah. you know, yeah. uh, that uh, that they were wrong and, you know, and change uh, and change course. You know, like if, uh, um, you know, it's 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 
like that's why you know when it happens you know that somebody has somebody who's at that level makes some sort of dramatic political conversion you know makes some sort of political conversion it tends to be a very slow process because um you know, even, you know, so much professionally at stake and, you know, you have so much, you know, you have so much ego at stake, you know, like, uh, like Joe Schmo can, can, you know, go from having, you know, having one political position to another and it's not that big a deal. But, um, <coughs> you know, Alan Greenspan, uh, I know I was just coughing. But I, I, I wasn't going to say I, anything. I'm I, just, I, I just had my temperature taken. I'm, I'm, I'm okay. Okay. I'm just going to, I'm just going to wash my, Headset, just to be clear. Sure, sure, sure. Uh, but yeah, no, I mean, you know, Green, you know, Greenspan can't do that. You know, like his, he he knows what side of you know his bread, you know, bread is buttered on. Yeah. So, have you been watching Donald Trump's press conferences on C-SPAN? The entire press conference. Uh, I've, I've seen a couple of them. Um, I, I, I saw, I saw the one, um, that, uh, so. Where he uh, brought out the, 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 the great one was where he brought the guy from Walgreens and Walmart, yeah, yeah, anything yeah. with a wall. He loves anything with a wall. Yeah, Walgreens, Walmart, CVS. I remember he said, you know, we all know CVS, you know, yeah. like he was parading all of the, uh, all the corporate executives out. It, it really reminded me of, um, uh, if you know, any of your listeners have ever read, uh, David Foster Wallace's novel, Infinite Jest, it's, uh, uh, it's said in this like satirical future where um, where instead of having years be like have numbers on them like 2020, mm-hmm. uh, they uh, they sell off the naming rights to, to <laughs> companies. So you know most of the novel is set in the year of the Tux medicated pad. <laughs> you know, and that's all I could think about. When, you know, when I was yeah. watching that press yeah. conference, it's the year of the Tux medicated pad. You oh, know, that's, that's so uh, funny. That's so funny. Uh, I've never read that. So, you know, I have an open mind. I'm terrified. I see our fearless leader introducing the head of Walmart and how they're going to have they're going to open up the parking lots for testing. And I'm thinking, well, maybe there is something to free market solutions. And then you find out, no, Google isn't building that website and Walmart isn't making these parking lots available. He's just an effing liar. And there's no such thing as a free market solution to a pandemic. It's off the, how frightened are you? Uh, pretty frightened. Um, but, but isn't that a form of control? I mean, don't you catch yourself saying, wait a second, they want us to be frightened, right? I don't know that they do because um, because part of the fright is is lack of confidence in them. Yeah. Uh, so I, I I certainly don't think they want that. Um, you know I, I think I think they they want to be uh, they want to be trusted in in a way that they aren't right now. Um, and and on the subject of you know a free market solutions, you know I, I think the most important point. Is is look? I mean, sometimes let's let's say let's say Walmart and Google, you know, were doing all that stuff that Trump said they were going to do. Okay, that's nice. Um, but why should we have to rely on them to just decide to do those things? You know, uh, it's like 
it's like when people talk about, you know, billionaire philanthropy, you know, it's like uh, even, you know, even when um, even when it's going to the right places, which, of course, often it isn't because, you know, billionaires whims often lead them to, you know, support all kinds of, you know, things that, um, you know, that are very bad. Right. Like, you know, charter schools. But like even when it's even when it's going to the right places, it's like, OK, that's nice that that billionaire decided to, to do that. Right. You know, mm-hmm. uh but but why should we have to, in order to accomplish important social priorities, why should we have to rely on the whims of a few individuals? You know, like that's like saying that like if uh, if like so, if you know you know that's like saying that if uh, you know if the creed of this were going on when we still had monarchies, you know, uh, if if some kings were taking good measures. You know, to uh, to get a good like public health measures, then then like that would make it good that we had kings. You know, like I I don't think I don't think we should have to rely on you know kings or uh, or billionaires or you know corporate CEOs to you know to just decide to do the right thing, especially especially when we know that there are so many pressures on them not to do that. Right? You know that they're um, that. Uh, that they, you know, that that wouldn't that wouldn't be particularly, you know, particularly cost effective, you know, for for them. So maybe they'll do some of that for good PR, you know. But um, even if they do a lot of it, right? I mean, like 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 wouldn't wouldn't you sleep easier if we could just decide to do these things because it's important for public health rather than you know rather than hoping that the uh, that the billionaires and the CEOs happen to do what lines up with our interests. Right. So I don't want to traffic in conspiracy theories. I, I, I'm just, but I want to throw this out there. And yeah, a lot of people are saying that Ted Cruz's father killed JFK. Right. I always thought it was suicide, but sure. Uh, so, uh, it seems to me before the pandemic, people were waking up to capitalism. Seems like, you know. The gig was over. I think there was one study that showed Americans under the age of 30 had more trust in socialism than capitalism. Mm-hmm. Uh, Marx says that capitalism will collapse under its own weight. Is it conceivable that these boom and bust cycles are, are baked in to the system to prevent it from collapsing under its own weight, that we saw a collapse of capitalism in 2008 and that the rescue saves capitalism from some other economic system and that, once again, some forces at work, I'm not trafficking in conspiracy theories, but I find it suspect that, Capitalism was just about to collapse under its own weight, and instead a a pandemic conveniently arrived for us to shut the economy down and start it over again. It it does seem like it was incontrovertible. You could not make an argument for the status quo anymore, and the pandemic is pretty convenient to come around at this moment where you can shut the economy down, reset it and not question 
Well, not question I it. I, I mean, I think that that one. Okay, so I mean, obviously, there one point to make about that is that we don't want to, um, uh, you know, we don't want to uh, infer straight from uh, somebody will benefit to from this to uh, to you know to they uh, they did it on purpose because that, no. that's the. That's the uh, express ticket to Cloud Cuckoo Land, but right. um, but also I'm not sure they are going to benefit from it because my understanding is that we are in pretty uncharted territory here, right? Like, let's say, um, you know, let's say nothing comes along to um, to alleviate this until the until the clock runs out for the uh, the uh, you know, people who've already been injected, you know, the um, test cases who've already been injected with the vaccine that uh, that we were just going to have to wait, you know, until the um, the monitoring period ends for them. Right. So um, you know, nothing's going to come along before that, you know, that uh, <laughs> lets us go outside uh, other than to walk our dogs and you know, go get groceries and stuff. Uh, okay, so so then we're we're talking about you know well over a year um, of nobody patronizing any kind of business that you can't patronize um, online or that's not like absolutely necessary. Uh, I don't think we know how how easy it's going to be to restart the economy after that. Right. Like like I, I don't think we I don't think we have a lot of precedents to look, you know, to look to. Um, so so I, I, I think that the I think that the assumption that we're going to be um, we're going to be able to, to get, uh, you know, get through it. And, and as soon as, you know, as soon as it's over, there's like some big Keynesian button that we can push and everything will be fine again, uh, much less that 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 Keynes, big Keynesian button is going to be pushed. Um, strikes me as you know uh, maybe true, right? But but I, I don't I don't know how confident we could possibly be right now. I think the Republicans may embrace modern modern Terry theory. <laughs> yeah, I mean, like, yeah, right. Or uh, I mean, right. I mean, they've always kind of you know they always kind of act as if it's true anyway. But uh, in um, but they might they might do so in some better directions now. Uh, and yeah, we we have gotten some you know we have gotten some signs of that. I mean, like, and that's what and this is the stuff that really worries me as far as the election goes. And of course, that's another thing that's uncharted. I mean, like, I honestly don't understand like if um, if social distancing is still in force in November. I I don't understand how the election even works anyway. Um, you know, like, uh, and and, uh, and personally. Yeah. Would you be okay? Like, were you okay with the president declaring a national emergency? Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, that's that's you know, I mean, like that that seems that seems appropriate. I mean, it's it's it is it is in fact uh, a national emergency. Uh, you know, if anything is, um, and and I, and you know, I mean, I know that word sad that phrase sounds ominous, but. Um, but I, I don't think it comes with, you know, I don't think it necessarily comes with all of the things that we might think, you know, just from like the sound, the sound of the phrase. But uh, but 
obviously, you know, if if we didn't have an election, that'd be way more ominous, right? You know, or, or we put off an election in an unprecedented way. But I actually, I, I mean, like, I, I seriously don't understand what the plan is supposed to be for that, right? Like, uh, or or if anybody really has one yet. Um, I mean, I was joking around with a friend on, you know, I was Skyping with the other day and, uh, you know, saying like, okay, are we just going to have a Facebook poll for president or, you know, uh, what are we going to do? You know, I, I don't know. But um, but assuming that we do figure out a way to have a normal election as scheduled in the fall, um, then um, what really worries me is that right now what I see is Mitt Romney talking about cutting everybody $1,000, you know, and um, and Nancy Pelosi thinking that's too much. Nancy Pelosi said a thousand is too much. No, what she said, uh, what she has apparently said is that uh, is, you know, is that at least because I think there was a similar proposal that was like floated around the Democratic caucus. And my understanding is that she said uh, that uh, that she doesn't like the idea of, of doing that universally. She thinks it should be means tested. Hmm. Um, oh, they, they, uh, it's funny how they can come up with means testing, but they can't test us for the coronavirus. <laughs> sure, right. I don't mean, obviously, it's it's an abs- like you know the the idea that while this is going on, you would ask people to like you know fill out a bunch of forms to prove that they really truly need the money, uh, and and you know if you're a dollar above whatever the threshold is, you don't get it. You know is. Right. Uh, it, you know, is insane, right? Obviously, if you're going to do it, you should just, you know, you should just cut it for everybody. Uh, for one thing that, you know, I mean, above and beyond all the standard lefty arguments gets means testing, all of which are good and, you know, should mm-hmm. be applied here. But even above and beyond all that, right? I mean, like it's, it's, uh, I mean, this, if there's ever an all hands on deck crisis, I mean, this is it. So, you know, do you really want to like have like some big divisive thing about who's getting the help and who's paying for it, or 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 do you want it to do something that's actually going to build social solidarity? You know, and then you know, like we're, you know, not to be too cheesy about this, all in it together. Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, I I'm reminded of nine eleven and the terror that we felt. And what we gave up to stop feeling terrified and where we went after we were terrified. We made big mistakes after 9-11. Patriot Act, yeah. torture, yeah. Iraq, Afghanistan. So. Well, there was also a lot of just there's also just a lot of uh stupid shit for lack of, you know, lack of a better uh, phrase. Like, um, like I, I saw somebody reminiscing about this the other day that they said, um, you know, this person is younger than me. You know, they were in uh, uh, elementary school and like they can't, you know, they didn't have a recess for a long time after 9-11 because I don't even know what, right? The, uh, you know, Al-Qaeda was going to attack, you know, the playground, right. you know, like uh, that's, and, you know, I remember, um uh, my little brother was in high school. There was like a school, you know, like English class, like school trip that was like right across the to like this see this like Shakespeare festival that was like right across the border in Canada. They they like canceled that, like which like things like that that just make no sense, right? 
you know, like, 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 like there's like literally two seconds of thought should tell you that it's, it's totally, that there's no possible rational, um, rational reason to, uh, to do it. Uh, but I also think that one of the dangerous things about stuff like that, um, is that, you know, if, if people can tell that something like that is bullshit, then, you know, it's, it's kind of like crying wolf, right? You know, that you, that like, um, that, you know, like if, uh, like, okay, so like a recent, recent example, right? The TSA since coronavirus started has announced that they, their stupid ounce rule is suspended for hand sanitizer. Mm-hmm. Uh, which of course they can do because it's, uh, it was always meaningless security theater, right? You know, like what's the, uh, there's no, um, you know, like, it's, uh, you know, there was, there was never any good reason to do it. So, you know, so of course you could easily do it and everybody, everybody senses that. Right. So, um, so I think that probably all of that stuff probably feeds into, uh, skepticism by some people right now that's like, Oh, do we really have to do all this? Right. Like, is, you know, come on, like, you know, isn't this really just basically like the flu, you know, like, 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 do we, you know, does everybody really have to, you know, to stay inside for months and, you know, and all that and anything that you do um, and anything, which is why it's, I also think it's really dangerous. Um, like anything, you know, like this is, this is one of the reasons that you shouldn't do like arbitrary things for like the sake of security theater, or you shouldn't lie to people about what we, what you need to do. Because, uh, if you do that, then when something like this comes up, that's, uh, that's, that's actually real that like, you know, like the, it's not like, it's not like the idea that like, you know, Al Qaeda is going to attack, you know, your playground in Minnesota, right? Like we, we actually, we actually could have, um, you know, if we, if we just let it run rampant like the flu, we could have uh, millions of people die just in the United States and, and like 90 million around the world, you know, is the estimate that I saw. Uh, but, you know, but if, if people are used to being lied to, then they don't have trust in public institutions. Uh, and it's going to be really hard to, to tell them, you know, no, 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 this, this time we mean it, right? You know, right. I, I know all the rest of those times were bullshit, but like this time, you know, you really do have to take all these precautions. Yeah, last question. Have you been following Wuhan? Have you been following what's going on in China? Because they're saying that there are no no more cases, at least for two days now. They've had no reported cases. People say, yeah, but it's different because China's an authoritarian regime, to which I respond, you know, we have more prisoners per capita than China does. That's, that's true. Maybe, uh, maybe we're an authoritarian regime that can shut down the virus just as efficiently as China can. Yeah. Um, yeah, absolutely. Um, although, you know, actually on the subject of, of, of prisoners, you know, I mean, that's, uh, you know, like that's terrifying, right? Because I, I think that there's been so little testing that I, uh, I'm, I'm like, once we get to the point where we're actually testing people in in our prisons, um, I, I'm really worried about that. You know, because 
you know, they, these places are overcrowded, hand sanitizer is often contraband, you know, so mm-hmm. uh, uh, the, the intersection of coronavirus and, and the carceral state could be terrible. But um, yeah. but yeah, look, I don't think it's I don't think China, you know, I, I don't think it's so much, um, you know, that that they're they're authoritarian. I mean, obviously, China is very authoritarian, but uh, but like. I, I don't think that they're, for the most part, doing anything that uh, a country like the United States couldn't do, right? I mean, like, I, I think that they, um, you know, I mean, I think that, that they, what they're doing, as far as I know, right, is a lot of social distancing and a lot of monitoring and a lot of testing um, and, you know, and, and if we could do that, right? I mean, like we might actually have a best case scenario here. It's it like the, it's worrying because uh, because a lot of uh, because the to the extent that we're successful, a lot of people are going to take that as a sign that all of this is unnecessary, and and then you know that might really backfire. But uh, but there's there's no there's no reason that that we couldn't. Um, like that, that if, if, if enough of the population, I mean, the estimates I've seen, we don't even need everybody to do it, which is good because that's unrealistic, right? Mm-hmm. But if, if we get like 70, 75%, you know, compliance, uh, and, you know, we start getting a lot more tests in here, uh, you know, and, and, and we keep it, you know, we keep it locked down for long enough, you know, we, we could beat this and come out on the other side and, uh, and you know maybe uh, and maybe learn our lesson, and when we can go outside and politically organize again, we can get Medicare for all. Right, right. Professor Ben Burgess is author of "Give Them an Argument: Logic for the Left." He is a columnist for Jacobin. You can watch him once a week on the Michael Brooks Show, doing the debunk. Follow him on Twitter, Ben Burgess. What's your next column for Jacobin going to be? Uh, it's going to be about Cuba's response to the coronavirus. Really? Because I had Dr. Harriet Fraud on the show last week, and we were talking about Cuba and their healthcare system. I would assume they're doing a good job. Uh, yeah, they they are, and they're also, um, you know, and, and of course uh, they're also doing a lot to uh, to help other countries. Even I mean, that's one of the remarkable things about Cuba. Uh, that you know that it's it's a it's a small poor country that provides tremendous amounts of medical aid uh, around the world. Um, so so really uh, really striking factoid. Uh, and with this is that uh, uh, Bolsonaro, the the um, uh, right wing demagogue president of Brazil, uh, when he first came to power, he kicked out all of the uh, Cuban doctors who had been working in the country. Um, and, you know, just as a, you know, just as a political gesture, uh, and now he's inviting them back. Ah, that's interesting. Well, but it's, Cuba's an authoritarian regime. Who has more prisoners per capita, America or Cuba? Uh, America does. But Cuba's an authoritarian regime. You're not praising yeah. their literacy program, are you, Professor? <laughs> Uh, yeah, I, 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 I actually, I actually have the the position that you can, um, that you can simultaneously acknowledge uh, that um, that they 
um, that it's it's that it's an authoritarian regime. That there are things about it that should certainly be criticized, um, uh, but but also that they they aren't. Um, it's not Mordor, you know. They mm-hmm. they're like you know like they they do actually they do actually uh, do some things right, and um, and maybe we could actually praise them for it or even learn from it. Yep. Stay on the line, Professor Ben Burgess. Thank you, Professor. Thank you, comedian. You're listening to The David Feldman Show, you happy, self-actualized hump. Let's go to Palm Beach, Florida, where James Zirin is standing by. James Zirin is a leading litigator, having served as an assistant United States attorney for the Southern District of New York in the criminal division. He's written multiple books. His latest is Plaintiff in Chief, a portrait of Donald Trump in 3,500 lawsuits. Thank you for doing this, James. Delighted to be with you, David. We had you on the Ralph Nader Radio Hour, and uh, you were kind enough to agree to come on this show. I want to talk about your book. You pretty much say that Donald Trump's expertise, what he brings to the White House, is litigation. That uh, well, I was being, I was being perhaps uh, sarcastic because uh, he's uh, uh, not a lawyer, and uh, he has expertise in litigation only because he has a lot of experience in litigation and in what I call asymmetrical warfare in litigation, which he's been practicing for 40 years without anyone really calling him out on it. And that's what I tried to do in the book. Without anybody calling him out on it. So I just went through a divorce. One of the things I learned during my divorce was that Donald Trump knew something I didn't know until I was done with my divorce. And that is he who has the most power in our court system wins. Now, I don't know. I don't want to get into criminal litigation, but I'm talking about in a civil lawsuit. This was my impression. Nobody's looking out for anyone or anything other than money. That all that matters in civil litigation, and that's what a divorce is, is money. And the lawyers don't care about justice. They don't care about fairness. It's just money. And coming out of that, as Donald Trump was president, I realized, well, he got that early on, that this is all about who has the most money. And bills are something that don't have to be paid because sue me. You'll lose. And that requires money. Yeah. And and so uh, I agree with you. I knew someone. He was a very prominent entertainment lawyer and he hurt his back and he had a uh, cocktail party and he greeted his guests uh, on lying down on a uh, a chaise long. And um, I came over to, uh, I guess, to kiss the ring. And um, he said, you know, Jim, I've been thinking about my life since I hurt my back. And it's all about money. 
And what isn't about money, that's about money, too. So, <laughs> that is not only our legal system, it's our uh, commercial system, of course, and it's uh, actually uh, has a great deal to do with um, our medical system because doctors are competing with one another for uh, uh, positions in hospitals and um, so that they can draw... Uh, larger uh, fees, greater compensation, um, and it's all politicking and jockeying for position. And because you get a doctor who is, for example, a chief of service, doesn't mean you necessarily get the best doctor or the most experienced doctor in uh, whatever the service is. It's regrettable. Yeah, in your book, Plaintiff in Chief, A Portrait of Donald Trump in 3,500 Lawsuits, you started writing this when he was running for president, I believe, and you've documented, you went through all his lawsuits. There may be more, right? 3,500 is conservative, right? USA Today said 3,500, and the American Bar Association said 4,000. I took the more conservative figure. I didn't count them all. I don't think anyone has counted them all. It's an estimate. Um, and I didn't um, go into uh, 3,500 lawsuits. Uh, I went into the types of lawsuits he seemed to be involved in. He had lawsuits with partners. He had lawsuits with creditors. He had lawsuits with contractors. Uh, he was the target of uh, federal and state investigations, money laundering and other things. He was, uh, of course, he went into bankruptcy five times in Atlantic City, where he sought the protection of the bankruptcy court. Uh, so he was uh, steeped in litigation. He was up to his ears in litigation. I start the story with the, uh, the tale of the um, discrimination in housing case that was brought against him and his father by the Nixon Justice Department, where he was represented by the infamous Roy Cohn, a this, lawyer who... Yeah, this was the New York City Human Rights Commission that brought... Well, no, it. it was the Federal Department of Justice uh, brought the case uh, seeking to enjoin him from race discrimination in housing. Right. I don't know whether the New York City Urban... I think the New York City Urban League was helping... Uh, the I, I think it was the, I think it was the New, New York City Human Rights Commission that turned it over to the Justice Department. Well, quite possibly, but yeah. they had him dead to rights. Uh, there were testers uh, who went to the uh, rental units applying for uh, a um, an apartment, and uh, the black testers were turned away, and the white testers were shown apartments. So the discrimination was very very clear. Uh, Cone uh, before he met Cone. Uh, other lawyers advised Trump to settle the case, but Cohn said fight, and that's where he learned uh, the tools of asymmetrical warfare, of weaponizing the law. He learned them from Roy Cohn, and there were a number of tools. One is uh, always counterattack. In the case of the race discrimination case, they counterclaimed against the government for $100 million. That was speedily dismissed, but it had the, the tactical advantage of setting the government back on its heels. Uh, they tried to undermine the lawyers from the Department of Justice who had brought the case. Uh, so that's the second rule, which is try to attack your adversary, not by saying that uh, anything to do with the merits of the case, but attack your adversary personally, attack your adversary uh, for the way that he's conducted the investigation, the process that was involved. Uh, and um, another is to work the press. Uh, he did it in the race discrimination case. There was a press release 
immediately after uh, they, uh, Roy Cohn came into the case. Um, and uh, through Cohn, Trump developed many contacts in the media who were always interested in uh, stories, even false stories, uh, that um, he wanted to spread around about his enemies. Well, he uh, what what happened with the Justice Department on Trump Village? They had a settlement, and Trump beat the Justice Department to the press and said, "We won." When in fact it was a settlement. Yes. So, and in fact, uh, he lost. It was the the biggest uh, the, uh, discrimination in housing case that the. Nixon, as it happened, Justice Department had ever brought, and um, the uh, result of it was they, uh, the Trumps agreed not to discriminate anymore. They agreed to take an ad in the paper saying they were equal opportunity landlords, and um, they uh, uh, settled the case without admitting or denying the allegations. So Trump said, well, I didn't admit anything, so therefore I won the case. That, of course, was false. And um, some of the neighborhood newspapers in New York, like El Diario and others, uh, said uh, that Trump, of course, had lost the case, which he had. Right. And there was a fine. Did he ever end up paying it? No, there was uh, there was no fine. There was some he, there was cost involved in taking the ads of the paper. And um, Trump was haggling over the size of the type. He said it costs more money if it's in large type. <laughs> uh, the government said, well, we need it to be large enough so people will see it. And uh, eventually they reached uh, an agreement on that score. Actually, after the case was over, uh, the Trumps continued to discriminate in housing and the government brought them back to court. And that was again settled. So it just shows his litigious nature, uh, which had nothing to do with the truth had nothing to do with justice. It had nothing to do with doing business in an efficient way. With Lots of companies have litigation. They settle the litigation or they try the case if they think that's what's indicated, and then they move on. But uh, Trump wanted to litigate, litigate, litigate everything to death. Where's my Roy Cohn, he shouted. Where's my Roy Cohn? Who was that's Roy a- Cohn? And most importantly, what did Roy Cohn's father do for a living? He was a judge. Right. Um, the whole saga of Roy Cohn is told in a documentary film, actually, in which I'm one of the talking heads called Where's My Roy Cohn? It's on Netflix. And you can trace the career of Roy Cohn from his childhood in the Bronx, uh, from uh, how his mother's family money bought political inf- uh, influence, put his father on the bench, uh, and uh, he really came from a despicable kind of background where politics was not something uh, that was an extension of uh, people, of issues that uh, people were interested in. Politics was the pursuit of power mm-hmm. and well, believing in power. Uh, he uh, got himself appointed an assistant U.S. attorney and was one of the prosecutors of the Rosenberg case. They, of course, were executed. Uh, Cone bragged, if I could have, I'd have pulled the switch myself. Uh, both husband and wife were both executed. And uh, from there, on the backs of the Rosenbergs, he became chief counsel to Senator McCarthy, uh, where, of course, he uh, specialized in smearing people in the State Department and the government or elsewhere who were accused of being communists or having communist associations. Little known is the fact 
that he also um, conducted something called the Lavender Investigation, uh, which was an investigation designed to ferret gaze. Uh, in those days, everyone was closeted to ferret gaze uh, out of the government. Uh, what was not known at the time, but became quite apparent later, was that Roy Cohn himself was a closeted gay. Mm-hmm. Frank, uh, many people think that Senator McCarthy was a closeted gay. And um, so it was totally hypocritical for him to try to uh, go after gays in the government. But he did it anyway. Later on, when he was in New York and he was quite a political power, and these are in the days where he represented Donald Trump, uh, he, through his political influence, was able to get tabled a bill in the city council which would have given gays uh, equal um, access to uh, uh, public places, restaurants, hotels, and prevent discrimination based on sexual orientation. And that was tabled for many years because of the uh, insidious influence of Roy Cohn. Joe McCarthy was destroyed after the Army McCarthy hearings, which stemmed from Roy Cohn's crush on, I think the guy's name was David Shine. Is that? The, You're quite correct. And they were, they were traveling throughout Europe on taxpayers' dime, examining State Department libraries. But it was really, some say, Roy Cohn just trying to spend time with David Shine. How come Roy Cohn survived the Army McCarthy hearings and Joe McCarthy didn't? What, what did Roy Cohn know and or learn Well, I think he learned that um, if you push things too far, uh, you can go down in flames, and that's what happened to McCarthy. Of course, but why didn't he uh, go down in flames, though? Because he was not a, a public official. He was a lawyer. He went back to New York to practice law, and he had a tremendous amount of political influence. He knew all the polls. He knew business people. He knew everyone in the media. He threw a birthday party every year at which everyone attended, including mobsters. Uh, Joey Adams uh, quipped about the birthday party. Uh, if you're indicted, you're invited. <laughs> and uh, he uh, uh, had people, he represented the Archdiocese of New York. He was very close to Cardinal Spellman. Now, what was uh, what were the rumors about Cardinal Spellman? Well, there were rumors of, that persist that Cardinal Spellman was gay. This is all part of the gay underworld. Because remember, Roy Cohn was a lawyer, and in the, the world of the 1970s and 1980s, uh, lawyers generally uh, who were gay were not out of the closet. And to the very end, Cohn denied his homosexuality. Uh, he said it would be inconsistent with the kind of tough uh, persona that he wanted to cultivate for his clients. And... Um, he uh, eventually was afflicted with AIDS, which he denied, uh, said he had liver cancer, then said he was cancer-free, which was true. <laughs> and uh, it was uh, kind of a, uh, a half-truth. And he uh, died of AIDS, and uh, shortly after, three weeks after he was disbarred. After he died? No, no, he was disbarred first, and then he died three weeks later. Three weeks. It took took that long to disbar him. Did it took he that pay- long. The disbarment proceedings against him were really pretty, uh, the misconduct was pretty glaring. He stole money from a client. Uh, he made false statements to the Washington Bar to get admission to the bar. Uh, he uh, went into a hospital room where 
um, uh, Louis Rosensteel was dying and got him to sign a codicil that was Will. Uh, Rosensteel was a multimillionaire, naming Roy Cohn as the executor so he could get executive's commissions. Well, of course, the signature on the codicil was hardly legible, and, um, the, uh, and of course, was disallowed by the court, uh, but uh, the Bar Association thought that was, of course, um, uh, terribly unethical conduct. We're and it was based on, on, on that that uh, Kung, and other things, perhaps, that Kung was disbarred. Uh, we're talking with James Zirin, author of the book Plaintiff in Chief, A Portrait of Donald Trump in 3,500 Lawsuits. I don't mean to harp on Roy Cohn, but I'm doing this to make a larger point, actually. Did he pay taxes, Roy Cohn? Did he ever? No, actually, the, the, the IRS had a, a $6 million judgment against him when he died, and uh, he pretty much died penniless. He had no children, obviously, and he had no relatives and uh, whom he wanted to uh, favor. And, of course, he had no estate because he um, the money that he earned from fees was quickly spent uh, on uh, the high living that he liked to engage in. So the question I have for you is Donald Trump a product of our system? He is he the problem, or is it a system that he just learned from the master how to master? Well, I think it's the combination of both, because I think he was ready, willing, and able to work the system for everything that's that it was worth. Remember, Roy Cohn was indicted three times, and he was acquitted three times. He knew how to beat the system, and that was very attractive to Donald Trump, and Donald Trump was so enamored of him, he had a photograph, framed photograph of uh, Roy Cohn in his desk. And when someone would come asking for money, a creditor uh, uh, or somebody else, he were a contractor, uh, he would reach into his desk drawer, take out the picture of Roy Cohn and said, do you want to face him in court? Right. And the guy would run away with his tail between his legs. So in part, it was the fear that um, Trump was able, which in uh, Cohn was the same way, the fear he was able to instill in people if they uh, crossed him or took any action against him. You know, so the IRS, the IRS went after Scientology because it's tax free. It's a religion. And the head of the IRS paid a serious price for going after Scientology. They They did everything they could to destroy his personal life. Uh, Roy Cohen didn't pay his taxes. He owed the government money when he died. Three weeks, you say, before his death, he was finally disparred by the, uh, the, 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 the appellate, bar? The, the division, the appellate division, uh, which is a division of the Supreme Court in uh, New York State. And uh, it was the same court on which his father had sat as a judge, quite ironically. And that file, that disbarment file, was gathering dust in uh, the uh, offices uh, and files of the Bar Association until it was activated by uh, a friend of mine, uh, Marty London, uh, who uh, activated the case and uh, made sure there was a trial. Now, Donald Trump uh, testified as a character witness at the disbarment. Uh, he swore under oath that uh, Cohn had a, a reputation for honesty, integrity, truth, and veracity, 
And in fact, um, uh, Khan had a reputation that was just the opposite. His reputation was as a shady, crooked lawyer. So what does it take to get a lawyer disbarred? Because I went through five divorce attorneys, one of whom was so despicable, he actually mm. said to me, oh, and by the way, don't bother reporting me to the to the bar. I am the bar. I handle the disbarments. So the problem is uh, there's a problem with our legal profession, isn't there? There's a, um, an endemic problem uh, with the disciplinary system. It's very easy to get a um, storefront lawyer disbarred who steals $500 from a client. It's very hard to get a lawyer on Wall Street disbarred or a Roy Cohn who has many powerful friends. Uh, and, and who is political. And so uh, no one has a great appetite for taking on people like this because there could be all sorts of reprisals. Yeah, people I mean, there's are, money. Now, you served as assistant United States attorney for the Southern District of New York in the criminal division. That would be a uh, federal post? Yes, it's a federal post. Yeah, so you were with the Justice Department. In the criminal division, there is political power, there's financial power, and then there's the power of raw power, the mafia. And I believe Rudy Giuliani served in the Southern District of New York in the criminal division. Is that correct? That's correct. And, and he took on the mafia. Yes, he did. Were did you there marvelous, when he was? No, I'd left by then, but he did a marvelous job in um, prosecuting the five families uh, that uh, ran organized crime in New York. Mm -hmm. He did a he did a magnificent job, you say? Yes. Yeah. That's what he made his reputation on. But like Roy Cohn, he was quick with a press conference and quick to claim credit for. Well, I think first place is a legitimate place for uh, the press and public prosecutions because you want to deter like conduct. Uh, you uh, want to uh, impress the public that uh, uh, the uh, that law enforcement is being vindicated uh, and that you're going after crooks. So in uh, high profile cases, U.S. attorneys district attorneys, uh, police commissioners, all get on a podium and um, announce that they have uh, indicted uh, some um, mafia figure or some bank robber or uh, some drug conspiracy or some mobster, and the public uh, is entitled to know that, and it really strengthens the hand of law enforcement. So I don't denounce uh, the use of the press in... Um, public prosecutions. Okay, so you have Rudy Giuliani, who was United States Attorney for the Southern District of New York, prosecuting the five families. Now he is Donald Trump's lawyer. Donald Trump, it's safe to assume, has, to put it mildly, mob connections. Certainly Roy Cohn introduced him, I think, to the Gambino family in order to pour cement. Well, he certainly, yes, introduced him to, and they were members of the Gambino family, Paul Castellano, who was eventually um, uh, rubbed out in front of um, a Sparks restaurant in New York uh, by John Gotti. 
uh, and um, uh, Fat Tony Salerno, who uh, both of whom controlled the poured concrete business. It was a cartel in New York at that time. And um, uh, it is said that um, uh, by uh, David K. Johnson, the journalist, that uh, Salerno and um, uh, Trump met in Cohn's office. Cohn used to invite uh, mafia figures to uh, come to his office and uh, plot their uh, wicked plans in his conference room because he was confident that the Justice Department uh, would not be uh, uh, bugging a lawyer's conference room. And he was correct. Okay. <laughs> and that's why Trump Tower is made out of concrete and not steel. And not structural steel, exactly. So when Rudy Giuliani serves as Donald Trump's lawyer and Donald Trump is dealing with Russian mobsters, Ukrainian mobsters, what is Rudy Giuliani's obligation as a former United States attorney? Well, he has, he's a lawyer and he has no greater obligation because he was a former U.S. attorney. Um, but uh, is there a problem? Let me ask you a question. Is there, you know, we talk about the revolving door in the Pentagon. A general leaves and goes and works as a procurement officer. Uh, works A procurement officer over at the Pentagon leaves and then gets a job with Boeing. That, that whole sweetheart deal. There's a problem uh, with, I think, People who work as prosecutors learn how the government works and then join a white shoe law firm and use their expertise, what they learned from the other side. Well, they are. Why, they why are, is that? Why is that allowed? Because they're entitled to take their experience with them when they go from one side of the aisle, if you will, to the other. Who says so? Not- who says so? Well, our whole system is based on that. I mean, for example, I could go uh, work for uh, Delta Airlines and learn a lot about how to run an airline. Now, um, when I can't take customer lists and trade secrets with me if I go work for American, but all the experience that I uh, have at Delta is relevant to uh, what uh, I might be doing it American. That's why they hire me for my experience and expertise. But wouldn't, wouldn't we be better served? Wouldn't the country be better served if there were guardrails? And, you know, if you are a prosecutor, you cannot leave and take a job defending corporations or criminals. You have to stay a prosecutor. I don't think that would work. In fact, I think that would be unconstitutional. Um, he would, uh, Giuliani's entitled to practice law. He's entitled to have clients, and he's entitled to have clients. He can't be on the other side of a case he was involved in as a prosecutor. But by, isn't the, isn't isn't the isn't the Southern District of New York isn't their criminal division entitled to trade secrets as well? Well, these aren't trade secrets. I mean, they may be um, uh, uh, lore as to uh, as to how you do it. Uh, it may uh, give you certain intuitions about how uh, prosecutions work, but they're entitled to take all that with them. Who sa- but who says they're entitled? 
I think the rules of ethics that uh, that govern lawyers. But and, isn't uh, isn't the book Plaintiff in Chief a portrait of Donald Trump in thirty five hundred lawsuits? Haven't we learned that there are no ethics? No, I think we've there are norms. There are norms. There are norms, and we've learned that Trump violated norms. We're violating them to this very day. We learned that Roy Cohn, rogue lawyers. Uh, violate norms, rogue presidents violate norms, and the legal system should uh, be able to deal with that. It hasn't. Uh, but um, it is the norm that a, a defense lawyer can become a prosecutor. This is what happens in England, too, and that a prosecutor can eventually become a defense lawyer. In England, for example, uh, a, a barrister who is an independent contractor, if you will, uh, can take a brief uh, for the Crown prosecuting a case, even though there's a Crown prosecution service, or can um, take a brief for someone who's accused of a crime. Okay. So they're not required to be either prosecutors or defense lawyers, and they can cross over back and forth. Not in the same case, but they can take cases that uh, where the, they may be arguing just the opposite. Uh, let me put you in my hot seat, Okay. I'd love to be in your hot seat. Okay, you ready? Because now, now it gets hot. Okay. We're talking with James Iron, author of the book Plaintiff-in-Chief, A Portrait of Donald Trump in 3,500 Lawsuits. And okay, David, it gets too hot. May I just get a drink of water because my throat is dry talking to you? Okay, so I, I can be good cop and bad cop with you, so it's up to you. We can do this the easy way or the, <laughs> or the hard way, James. Can you hear me? Oh, he's getting uh, a glass of glass of water. Okay, we will. Uh, we're talking with James Zirin, author of the book "Plaintiff in Chief: A Portrait of Donald Trump in 3,500 Lawsuits." And okay, are you here back? I, am. I was just I was just plugging your book. Okay, well, well, I welcome that. Okay, go ahead. Okay, so. Uh, I have a, a problem with never Trumpers. I, I think you might be a never. You're in the hot seat now, okay? All right. Okay. This is going to get really uncomfortable. I could, I can see the beads of sweat, and we're doing this through audio. You're a never Trumper. Is that fair to say? Um, I don't know what a never Trumper is. Well, it's so a cer I'm it's a certain breed of Republican because you are a Republican. Is that correct, sir? I am a Republican, and I fault Trump for the way he's conducted himself in office. I fault Trump for the way he conducted himself before he took office. It's an, I'm critical of his character. Mm -hmm. And um, now, uh, as to the policies he's put in place, uh, they all seem to be working pretty well until the recent uh, pandemic. Uh, but the, pretty much his policies, certainly his economic policies, were working. The stock market yeah. was soaring. Um, the economy was growing. Unemployment was at an all-time low. Uh, he accomplished a great deal. He was, um, he, he, you could criticize some of the things he did in foreign policy, but uh, as Henry Kissinger said, um, he has been a considerable president. He will go down in history as very much a mixed bag, <laughs> a, a, person, a person of uh, low character and a person who accomplished some things and got rid of uh, of certain um, practices that had uh, existed in, in our government for some time. And uh, 
when he said he would drain the swamp in many ways he did drain the swamp and and that was um uh that was something that was worthwhile so if that's a never trumper um i don't think so right, but, hang uh, on i'm turning the heat up on your seat up. i'm turning it up and i think you're baiting me quite frankly <laughs> <laughs> I think you're baiting me. I don't think you mean what you just said. No, I, I mean what I just said. I'm I, critical of his ethics. I'm critical of his morals. I'm critical of his leadership of the country. Um, and uh, But um, to the extent uh, that um, he's accomplished anything, we don't say everything he did was bad. Uh, but um, I would not, um, if you're asking me how I would vote in the next election, I would not choose him as my candidate uh, but never trump him I'm, I'm not really sure what that means at least okay a, there, there let me let me tell you what a never trumper is a, a never trumper is somebody like david frum who was a speechwriter for george w bush he coined the phrase axis of evil a never trumper would be bill crystal from PNAC and the Weekly Standard who invented the invasion of iraq who killed hillary care he hates trump there are a lot of Republicans who are grossed out by the aesthetics of Donald Trump. I put myself in their camp in many ways. I'm a great admirer of David Frum and also of Bill Crystal and, and David, David Brooks and David Brooks. Okay, but and, you're but you're unhappy and uh, uh, the heat on the, the it's I, if I were you, I would get ready. Here's here's, here's the tough question. You don't like Donald Trump's morals. How do you separate his policy from his morality? Well, he, well excuse me for one I, second. Uh, you're still in the hot seat here. You want to mop your brow because it's you can't separate somebody's criminal behavior from their their policy. No, I think they should be prosecuted for their criminal behavior. But while they're awaiting prosecution, if you will, uh, or removal by the electorate, which is certainly what uh, Crystal and uh, Frum would like, uh, while they're waiting uh, for uh, their comeuppance, if they free a uh, prisoner in, uh, from Iran or from uh, North Korea uh, by interceding, I think that's a good thing. Yeah, but, now, but, but, that that's, that's but don't you think immorality, don't you think criminal behavior bleeds into everything you do not just not just your 3500 lawsuits but also yes, right. how you view the world it's how he views the world which is immoral he has a criminal foreign policy a criminal domestic policy it's immoral amoral the people he surrounds himself with so how do I, you how do you I think you can be critical of all those things uh I um I think I agree with you that character is destiny I say that in the book my book, and um, I think uh, he is a person of low character and of low uh, standards and of abnormal behavior, and all that counts in the mix. So I think all of that is disqualifying, but I think you have to recognize he's done some good things. I mean, Mussolini made the trains run on time, so uh, I guess you have to leave it at that. Well, so... You're not willing to address the systemic problems that created Donald Trump and that allow him to thrive. I think I have, 
I have in the book created the systemic problems because uh, what is absolutely astounding to me as a lawyer is that he was able to get away with what he got away with for uh, 40 years uh, without ever receiving his comeuppance. Even Roy Cohn eventually got his comeuppance um, uh, three weeks before he died of AIDS. And um, but most- but do, but do you, do you believe in a muscular regulatory side of our federal government? Do you believe that the SEC should be regulating corporations, and the the Justice Department should be keeping a closer eye on corporations? And isn't it the responsibility of the federal government to rein in people like Roy Cohn? I would suspect you don't believe that. Uh, well, not necessarily the federal government. It's the responsibility of the Bar Association, and uh, it was the responsibility of the federal government. And um, Robert M. Morgenthau indicted Roy Cohn three times, and three but he, times he, he was wasn't he through. wasn't Robert Mor- he was state, not the federal government. Morgan. No, he was federal and state, but he right. was federal when he indicted Roy Cohn, and he was my boss when I was a federal prosecutor. So I knew him very well. Uh, I admired so much his independence from political pressure, either from the right or the left. He played it right down the line uh, based on the facts. Do, do you favor and, do you favor uh, increasing the budget for the IRS? You know, the the IRS is outnumbered by corporations. Would you favor a bigger, a more robust internal revenue service? I, I'm not a member of Congress and I can't evaluate uh, the needs of the IRS. I mean, in principle, I think that, uh, you know, we should have taxing authorities and taxing enforcers are equal to the task. Uh, right. But, but, but you do know that they've, that you know, you do know that the, that the IRS has been stripped of its finances. They're, they have the same amount of, uh, IRS agents as they had something like 30 years ago, even though the population has been growing, that they're complaining that they're understaffed, underpaid, and overworked. They're aided by technology. They're also aided by the private sector. But you have to... They're uh, aided by the private sector. Getting way down into the weeds. and uh, uh, the hot seat. I really would would have to... (laughs) That's not the hot seat. I would have to study all these issues. I mean, is there enough securities regulation? That's something I would really have to study. Um, principle, I believe, there has to be securities regulation. That's our law, and we haven't receded from that. So, is it? Uh, so, let me let me just ask you a question. Let me let me just. You said it's something you have to. It's something you have to study, but something as simple as reading the Wall Street Journal would tell you that the IRS is more likely to audit a poor person who is taking advantage of the earned income tax credit than a multimillionaire. I'm not sure that that's a fair statement because the IRS has agents, for example, in the offices of General Motors every day, or the offices of of Microsoft or IBM or Google every single day. So uh, the, um, and they're aided tremendously by technology and they're aided by the private sector because uh, all of these companies like you and me have outside accountants um, and tax accountants who basically assist the IRS in doing their job. I yeah. mean, um, and um, is that why Amazon paid zero taxes? Why Microsoft 
Well, repatriate its money. I mean, so the problem I had, here's the problem, and I'll let you go. Repatriating its money in the case of Microsoft is not uh, an IRS problem. Uh, that Amazon paid zero taxes, I would have to look at their returns and see whether they properly uh, claimed the benefit of the law. And um, if they had deductions that sheltered their income, they're entitled to that. Everyone's entitled to avoid taxes. You try to avoid taxes, too. You said you were uh, undergoing a divorce. If you have to pay alimony, you uh, have a tax shelter. So, so then how uh, can you complain about Roy Cohn ever paying taxes? I mean, here, here's the point. If there's no guardrails to prevent somebody, you know, why is it bad that Donald Trump won't release his tax returns? I think it is bad. I it, think is bad. bad. it is bad. It is bad. Yeah, right. Terrible. And but, I think it's, it's even worse is uh, that the Supreme Court is sitting on the case and not deciding it because uh, the entitlement of the congressional committees and the District Attorney Cy Vance to uh, his tax returns is really undisputable under the law. And they're giving Trump the benefit of a presidential immunity that's nowhere in the Constitution. You don't see the disconnect. You don't see the disconnect where, where I'm asking you, you don't like the fact that Donald Trump won't release his taxes. We've learned that his what what little we know from David K. Johnson about Donald Trump's taxes is that He's been avoiding them since he was a kid. Uh, you find that offensive, but then you say, but everybody tries to avoid taxes, and you don't seem too concerned about the IRS not being armed to take on the billionaire class. So I it's a systemic it, problem that, that I think, I'll let you get the last word. Look, you're, but, you're a guest but, on my show, and I'm, I'm going to turn but, the heat but, off. But, the but, Democrats controlled Congress at a time when uh, they could have increased the budget for the IRS. Uh, the when? House and Means Committee considers this issue. So does the Senate Finance Committee. Uh, and uh, they came up with an answer. Now, in a democracy, David, uh, there are lots of answers that you and I might disagree with. But this is the price we pay for democracy. I mean, what is unfortunate about Trump is the whole idea of democracy is the majority rule. And Hillary Clinton got three million more votes than Donald Trump in 2016. And Donald Trump became the president. Right. And what's interesting, further interesting, is that in 2016 in the hotel, when Trump knew he'd won the election, he turned to Cindy Adams in my interview to a columnist, a great friend of Roy Cohn as well. Uh, and he, he said, uh, Cindy, if Roy were here, he never would have believed it. Now, that was 13 years after Cohn died. And then in the White House in 2017, uh, when McGahn uh, refused to um, uh, fire, McGahn, the White House counsel, refused to fire Sessions um, for um, or persuade him not to recuse himself, he said, uh, he lamented, Trump lamented, where's my Roy Cohn, which is the title of the movie I discussed with you right, earlier. So. Right. Uh, Cohn was central. Um, um, after his disbar, Trump tried to distance himself from Cohn. Uh, when uh, there was a memorial service for Cohn, Trump was not asked to speak, and he stood in the background and um, uh, at the back of the room. Are you and, comfortable? Uh, are you comfortable with Donald Trump declaring an emergency, state of emergency, and all the the powers uh, that come with it? I am comfortable because uh, the uh, statutes of Congress entitled them to declare an emergency. Now, we'll have to, so far, 
he's not misused those powers. He's used them uh, studiously in connection with the pandemic, which at first he denied existed, and then he said he knew about all along. But if he were to use those powers to uh, freeze bank accounts, for example, to influence law enforcement, uh, to um, uh, do things that infringed on civil liberties, uh, or to quarantine people with no basis for it, uh, that would upset me greatly. Were so, you upset by the Patriot Act? The problem, the problem is... Were you upset by the Patriot uh, Act? Well, I thought the Patriot Act uh, had many uh, features that were extremely important and uh, protected us in a time of... Uh, uh, of, of great difficulty. And, uh, do you think I Donald think, Trump should have been removed from office last month? Yes, I do. I think he uh, abused uh, his power as president of the United States. Okay. Uh, very interesting. Thank you. Uh, we've been talking with James Zyron, author of the book Plaintiff-in-Chief, A Portrait of Donald Trump in 3,500 Lawsuits. I'm going to say something. I'll give you the last word, James. I hope you come back. And your son. Your son is amazing. Well, I'll call him up and ask him. I think he's amazing, too. Yeah, he writes for the nation. He covers sports for the yeah. nation. Brilliant writer. Does he share your politics? No, he's uh, far to the, I believe he's far to the left of uh, where I am. But I'm approaching it a little differently. I'm approaching it as a lawyer. And he's approaching it maybe the way you're approaching it, uh, with your, uh, somehow a feeling in your gut. Uh, that uh, Trump, for example, is an autocrat, and for that reason, everything he does is bad and, uh, and obnoxious. I think and, too many. I think we have too many lawyers in Washington. That's the problem. Well, I, I like. I support lawyers. I mean, uh, I support the law. It's supported me all my life. So uh, why shouldn't I support the law? But, but I, I'm all for the law. I'm not for lawyers. I think lawyers pervert. The law. Well, they could be no. Well, they may uh, pervert, or they may enforce the law, or they may um, give us the benefit of the law. Well, this country wouldn't be what it it is without the independence of the American bar. Uh, something which I think is. Uh, I, I agree with you that it wouldn't be what it is. I, I wish it weren't what it is, and I do agree with well, you that I the think, American bar I, is responsible think, for that. And the issue that I have with lawyers is they lack a moral compass. Well, I'm not saying know, we don't need lawyers. I'm not saying we don't need lawyers. What I'm saying is, like the police, they should be suspect, that lawyers should be suspect because they are trained to argue both sides of a case. And that's well, fine. Well, that's fine. But there, at some point, we have to stop understanding evil. And that's why I think we're in trouble in Washington, D.C. It, it's, you know, uh, it's a uh, it's almost a prerequisite prerequisite in order to get elected to office that you're a lawyer. If you say, oh, he's a lawyer. We should. He not. Well, that suggests to me that you're able to see both sides of an argument. Well, you know, Bernie Sanders has come quite close. He's not a lawyer. Uh, AOC is not a lawyer. Uh uh, Nancy Pelosi is not a lawyer. It's not a it's not a prerequisite uh, by any means. Uh, and um, I just disagree with you. I think lawyers have always been an unpopular profession. Uh, we inherited our adversary system from the English because it's a much better system 
with all its flaws from the system in, that exists in Germany and in France. Where the judge is more of the interrogator. It's the more of a, the Grand Inquisitor. What's wrong with the Grand Inquisitor instead of... Then we back to Torquemada, if there's a Grand Inquisitor. The English, coming from Magna Carta, came to the conclusion that the best way to get at the truth is to have two people on opposite sides of the issue arguing. These are professional advocates, and professionals can take... Uh, different sides of, the, of an issue. So you have lawyers like Chris Cuomo. You you have uh, Kellyanne Conway, who's a lawyer. She can take any side of any issue and argue Uh-oh. argue lies. I mean, the the uh, idea that the adversarial debate to arrive at the truth. Are we arriving at a truth by arguing? Well, that's in the court proceeding. Chris Cuomo is taking a, is not acting as a lawyer. He's a partisan uh, political commentator. But you're you're Kelly speaking Ann up for the adver- you're speaking up for the Kelly adversarial Ann system Ann of our courts, Ann and I'm Ann saying Ann that it bleeds into our politics and our journalism. And I don't think well, that's healthy. I don't think I don't think I don't, there are two sides to every story. I don't think you need a prosecutor and a defense attorney. I think you perhaps should take a page from the Germans or the French and and use a grand inquisitor who asks pointed questions because you end up with the Kellyanne Conways and these false equivalencies. And what we're ending up now with, there's no such thing as the truth anymore. Kellyanne Conway, I'm not sure she's a lawyer. Her husband's a lawyer. She's a lawyer. And he condemns Trump. She's never purported to be a lawyer. She was in uh, media, uh, right-wing media uh, publications or being a publicist before uh, Trump took her on. She's a, uh, she's a lawyer. And, and uh, so even if she's a lawyer, she's not acting as a lawyer in court, as an advocate. She's not advising a client. She's a media person. Uh, and Chris Cuomo is not acting as a lawyer either. His brother who's a lawyer, is doing a marvelous job, I think, in this crisis as uh, governor of the state of New York. I is mean, Lindsay, of, but, you know, they are lawyers. They have legal minds. Yeah, and, well, and it's I, a faux, it's faux intellectualism. It's, it's this, not I, faux intellectualism because the law, dear David, uh, are the rules by which we all play. You said no one should have a defense counsel. Uh, that's guaranteed by the Constitution. I'm, so not saying get rid, I'm not saying get rid of lawyers. I'm saying that the adversarial system that you sing praises of, you say that helps us arrive at a truth. And I'm saying it doesn't help us arrive at truths when it bleeds into politics and journalism. And uh, there should be more guardrails. Well, maybe there should be more ethics. You know, the journalists don't have a canon of ethics the way lawyers do. Um, and uh, it bleeds into uh, Politics, politicians have no canon of ethics. They have the federal election law. Look how cavalier Trump has been about the federal election law and about accepting and welcoming aid from a a foreign power. Uh, The Trump Tower meeting, which was well known as part of the Mueller investigation, Mueller gave him a pass on it, but it clearly violated the election law. So um, we have uh, uh, also uh, you have uh, the United States Senate which gave Trump uh, a pass on what were clearly impeachable offenses. And uh, I don't like it. 
uh, and in a democracy, there are many decisions we can disagree with. As Americans, we love to disagree uh, with jury verdicts. Did he really do it? Uh, was uh, the evidence somehow uh, twisted and um, uh, and argued improperly, or was it uh, um, engendered by passion and prejudice? Uh, and we love to do that, and we're entitled to do it. And that's part of free speech. And what you're expressing now is also part of free speech. Right. Very right. valuable. I just happen to disagree with you. Okay. Ralph Nader, who is the greatest American ever, uh, said that they should call it lawless school. I saw one of his lectures, and he said that law schools train lawyers to be lawless, not to uphold the law, but to help people circumvent it. What do you say to that? I disagree with him. Okay. I think law schools train um, lawyers, and they train lawyers by uh, teaching them uh, what the law is, how to interpret the law, how to argue uh, rationally and logically from rules of law and from fundamental principles, and uh, that um, uh, and to uh, reach conclusions which make sense uh, for society. If it weren't for lawyers, if it weren't for the law, we'd all be at one another's throats. We are at everybody's throats. Look at look at this. I I came. I invited you on my show. A friendly conversation, and I put you in the hot seat. Oh no! Well, that's that's just that's just a convention. But uh, if it weren't for the law, you wouldn't be divorced, and uh, that would be a bad thing. So uh, you're not actually, if if it weren't for the law, it would divorces could be settled in a much simpler way. Less well, that's simpler. another that's another question uh, we could get into yep. at some time as to whether there should be more mediation and less right. litigation and family disputes and. Um, uh, I think that's certainly an open issue. There are many open issues in society. I don't claim the law has cured all the ills of society. Uh, and um, Have you uh, ever met a divorce lawyer you didn't want to drown? Well, uh, uh, quite apart from that, I think uh, you uh, taking me back to Hamlet uh, and the graveyard scene uh, where uh, um, Hamlet holds up the skull of, of a lawyer, and he says uh, to Horatio, are these a lawyer's bones? Where is he now? His quiddities and his quillets and his tricks. Mm. And or you look at uh, later on when um, he does his to be and not to be a soliloquy, one of the things he condemns in life is the law's delay. Now, that's 1616, and I don't know that it's gotten much better now. You're putting your finger on some of the same issues that Shakespeare was writing about. Uh, and um, the, uh, you know, Sandberg, why does the hearse horse snicker when the lawyer cashes in? Uh, <laughs> we, don't, we don't like lawyers, David. And um, I'm glad you're the comedian that made you laugh. But uh, <laughs> we, uh, we don't like lawyers. And the reason we don't like lawyers is because we think they're ministers of what are often unjust results. And we think they're doing it for money. And I think that uh, in many ways, those are, that's a fair criticism. And in many ways, it's an unfair criticism. So you, as lawyers would say, you have to take it on a case-by-case basis. James Zirin is author of the book Plaintiff-in-Chief, A Portrait of Donald Trump in 3,500 Lawsuits. 
go buy this book. Thank you very much, James. Stay on the line for one quick second. Do you have a Twitter account or is there anything you want to plug? I do. Yeah, it's, um, I think it's at Jim Zyron. Great, great. Stay on the line for one second. Well, it's the end of the week, possibly the world, and that can only mean one thing. Leah McEnany joins us to answer listener questions. You've got questions. We've got answers. Go to DavidFeldmanShow.com. Hit the Ask Me Anything button, and Liam and I will answer all your questions. We have a backlog. and I'll say you do. Oh, th- stop it. I've got a hotline number, and some of the calls are backed up. I'm thinking, Liam, of playing the calls on Monday without you, just to clear them. Just play them one after another. Do it. Huh? Do it. I mean, I I have a feeling that after Tuesday's show, it's going to be about me, but feel free to play them without me. Well, yes, you lost a debate with Jim (laughs) Earl. I wouldn't say I lost it, but it happened. I moderated a debate over. I would. I don't know if I'd call him moderating. <laughs> I would say you stood on the sidelines and handed each of us a bat. I, I, in the rich tradition of Justice John Roberts, Chief Justice John Roberts, <laughs> I kept an open mind. Uh-huh. Are you? What are you eating? You're on my 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 podcast. Why are you eating? I'm sorry. I'm eating a Ritz Ritz crackers with cheese. I had to throat punch a 90 year old Indonesian man to get these, David. Mm. Shit's getting real in Hollywood. <laughs> By the way, did you see Tulsi Gabbard dropped out? Yeah, yeah. So she yeah, endorsed Bernie. Me- did she endorse Bernie? <laughs> no, she endorsed Joe Biden. Really? Because Bernie's the peace candidate. Yeah, it's 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 weird. It's weird that she would. Uh, I don't know. She's got a transition team that's helping her move from obscurity to oblivion now. So yeah, obscurity to oblivion. Yes, I believe that was Fred Allen's book. That was. Oh my God, dude, that was. I have a I have an autographed copy. I was, Treadmill I was to, to say, oblivion. I was about to say I took it from a 1984 Carson monologue. But his book, but Fred Allen's book was called Treadmill to Oblivion. Right, but the joke is obscurity to oblivion. It's a good joke, David. You have to give it up for a good joke when you hear one. Okay. All right. Hey, I have an idea. Speaking of Tulsi Gabbard. Uh Uh-huh. Okay. You know how aloha means hello and goodbye? Yes. And, And shalom means hello and goodbye? Yes. So I have an idea. First of all, uh-huh. you say shalom, I say shalom, shalom, shalom. I don't know why you say shalom, I say shalom. I, I, I didn't know you were writing for Alan Sherman. Congratulations. Why, was that an Alan Sherman song? No, but it, no, but it might as well be. So I it think... From, a, it's from his time period. Okay, I think to be if you're more... you're listening, he's the hello mudda, hello fada guy. Yeah. I think to be more efficient <laughs> to say, you know, we, we have to. Cons- that joke is in a high risk category. For- 
of the coronavirus. It's so old. Hang on. I, I think in, in times of a <laughs> pandemic, we need to conserve our energy, conserve what uh, we've got, conserve words. And I think it's inefficient. How to- about this coronavirus? What? Pretty scary time, Senator. Did you know Maine hey, ran out of toilet paper? Why am I? Really? Uh, 20 years that? ago. <laughs> wow, it's all you. Okay, sorry. All right. Sorry about that, folks. I think Don't worry, we're going we're gonna to edit this no, setup down to a half hour. I think we need to be more efficient, and there's no need for a word that means hello and another word that means goodbye. If aloha can mean hello and goodbye, and shalom could mean hello and goodbye, we should just have hello uh, mean hello and goodbye. What do you think? What? Let's try it, okay? Okay. All okay. right. Hello, Liam. Hello to this bit. Hey, well, why why do you want to end the bit? Because it's terrible. Come on, come on. Hello, Liam. <laughs> oh, hello, David. Why do you want to say hello to me? We just started. Uh, it's your body odor. I'm saying hello to your body odor more than anything. Uh, come on, give me a chance. What? I'm saying hello. Okay. Hello, hello, David. Hello, your body odor. You're okay, I, but. We should we you should sm- continue. You shouldn't end this by saying hello. You smell like fragrance. You smell great. Okay. I'm saying hello. Well, no, we just started. Why would you say hello? My God. <laughs> All right. Hello, Liam. But my but my obscurity to oblivion joke is no good. Okay. Hello, Liam. Hi, David. <laughs> you bastard. I hate you. greetings. Bienvenido, cabin amigo. feeder, babe. cabin feeder, cabin feed. You're eating. You're a cat. You you've got cabin feeder. I'm I've got cabin I'm cabin sh- theater. I have not been outside for five months. You, can I tell you something? I, I just went to the ninety nine cents mega store in my neighborhood to see if they had cheap hand sanitizer. Hmm. Uh, and uh, it's actually they have a lot. A they have a lot of stuff. Like a lot more, they're they're like better stock than some supermarkets. And B, it's actually the calmest supermarket I've been in because I think they I, honestly, I think it's because like they the worst die? thing that can happen. Yeah, the worst thing that can happen to you in this town has already happened to everybody in that store. <laughs> so they're just like, oh, now I'm going to get sick and die. All right, well, guess what? You know, guess what? I live. I live on food from the ninety nine cent store. Death, where is thy sting? <laughs> There's a 98 cent store. Did you know that? <laughs> yeah, that's where I got my first wife. At the 98 cent store. At the 98 cent store. Yeah, I will not shop at the 98 cent store. And I don't mean to sound like a snob, but I'm willing to pay that extra penny for the service that you get at the 99 cent <laughs> store. All right, Bernie Ho Baby Cat. Uh, has a question or comment. I'm sure she does. All right. Uh, Bernie Hill Baby Cat, her zodiac, zodiac sign is Micro Sievert. Dearest, I don't get Dearest dented head douchebag. <laughs> Boy, the dent thing is really taken off. This is from the CDC website, and I highly encourage you to read it. 
and have the irritable immunologist break down what it means in layman's terms for the other 10 members of your loyal audience. <laughs> oh, she sent me a clip. By the way, this is sort of coulda, shoulda, woulda. The first time I heard Howie Klein claimed that chlorhexidine antiseptic was effective against this virus, I went ballistic. I wanted to shoot off an angry YouTube comment. <laughs> she, like she has a, an assistant. Marge, take a YouTube comment. Come here. Uh, but I was indisposed at the time. Later on, tried to briefly skim through some reliable medical data, databases, sources including PubMed, to verify or nullify Howie's claim and was unable to find anything that said it was useful for this particular virus. Talking about HepiCleans. However, I only right. had limited time to research, and because the situation is so new and fluid, <clears throat> I didn't want to pile uh, on to the disinformation being disseminated. Jesus Christ, three people have died since you started reading this email. Right, yeah. I'm sorry, keep coming. All right. Here comes the morgue truck for the, for the joke at the end of this Jesus. fucking monologue she wrote. All right. All right. So I'm sorry. So I interrupted. We're this. moving on. Really? Yeah. I, I've got a lot here. John. By the way, you've got some. Can I just say you've got some great comments on the on the iTunes page? Really? Oh, yeah. Dude, I'm actually serious. Uh, uh, all five star reviews. Uh, Connor Bone. You remember Connor Bone? Mm hmm. Message to S Senator Collins. Put your pussy on the phone, Bob. I don't get that. But uh, here's, the, here's the one I like from Josh Johns. David entertaining never Trumpers, parentheses, D-E-N-T. Is that That's dent, the headline? D-E-N-T? D-E-N-T, Dent. Oh, Dent. David, entertain, David entertaining never Trumpers. Oh, that's an acronym. Dent means David entertaining right. never Trumpers. I see. Dent. I like mm. it. It says a well-balanced podcast. Oh, no, for you those Dent. <laughs> I, I dense never vote for Trump. No, 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 but I, a well-balanced podcast for those who want a mix of comedy, politics, animal science, finance, and brief clips of communications from the Apollo 13 mission control room. <laughs> Guests range from well-respected professors and comedians to Liam McEnany. <laughs> Listen to this podcast to stay informed and entertained. And then asterisk... Liam McEnany is a great comedian, and his segments with David are entertaining, only poking fun, because he seems to be the only person who reads these reviews. <laughs> <laughs> no, these reviews, um, you know, we need good reviews. Um, and just, Bernie Ho Baby Cat says, a man so insufferable, the COVID-19 virus sheds him. <laughs> okay. John from Brunswick, Maine. Okay, I'm sorry. All right, let's do it. Let's do it. I'm ready. Hi, David. I go just a little nuts when I hear you talk about inflation and modern monetary theory, as if you can implement the latter without causing the former. The classic definition of inflation is the increase of the supply of money and credit. Inflation is not higher prices. Higher prices are the result of inflation. The government's calculation of price inflation are heavily manipulated. Adjustments for seasonality, hedonics, that's a great one, look it up, hedonics, substitution, etc. 
and should not be trusted. The real price inflation rate, as it used to be more honestly calculated, is currently running between 6 and 10 percent. And let's remember that the result of monetary inflation is not just rising consumer prices. It's also keeping prices from going down and finding their true market value, such as housing, health care, insurance premiums, tuition, food, and the mother of them all, the stock market. If you wonder why the gap between the rich and the middle class and poor keeps getting obscenely wider, look no further than monetary inflation. All right. I mean, that's that. I mean, look, I'll be the first to admit I know nothing about economics. Uh, I do know that hedonics uh, is a theory of ethics dealing with or based on the relation of duty to pleasure. And he's absolutely correct on that. Is this a Danny Thomas thing? <laughs> it is. It's it's a, it's a branch of economics dealing directly with glass tables. St. Jude's uh, but, Hospital, they don't turn anybody away. St. Jude's Hospital, give to St. Jude's <laughs> Hospital. All their operating tables are glassed. No, 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 no. Seriously, you have to give to St. Jude's. It was vetted by somebody I know very well. It is, they don't turn anybody away. St. Jude's Hospital, give money to St. Jude's Hospital. Go ahead. They 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 did turn Michael Jackson away, but only because he was just there to watch. All right. Okay. I, he, but anyway, my point is just I'm worried if we're just going to start giving money to Americans, it's going to pump up inflation. But again, I know nothing about economics. But you're worried about it, though. I'm tremendous. It's the first thing I thought when I read that was like uh, you can't prevent a depression by <laughs> artificially stimulating inflation. I, I believe uh, that's called Keynesian economics. And, yeah, I, uh-huh. and that when you give the 99% some money, they spend it, right. and it's the multiplier effect, that one dollar. Are you talking about, about trickle-down economics, David? No, that would be the supply-side economics that encourages the richest 1% to have all the money, and then right. it, tri- it trickles down to us. But Keynesian right. economics is infrastructure, spending, Fiscal right. stimulus. Pumped. You're talking about like, the WPA, the Works Projects Administration, which pumped money into the infrastructure by hiring American workers and paying them directly. I mean, that I get. But just blanket sending people checks, I don't know if that's a responsible economic model. Actually, Keynes said you could do infrastructure or just pay people to dig holes and then pay other people to cover up the holes with the dirt they just right. removed. It's putting money into the economy when people have money to spend. Uh-huh. They spend it. Well, I mean, let's just be honest, though. A thousand dollars is not really going to go far for rent or mortgages. Well, but 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 do you really have a problem with giving people a thousand dollars, two thousand dollars? I just remember how well that worked when George W. Bush did it uh, with the with the tax giveaways. He just gave away a uh, surplus, and and it, it led us into a, a big recession. Are you talking about giving us? Did he mail us money? Yeah, the IRS. Yeah, people got mailed their checks. I remember I worked at a call center. Everyone talked about what they were going to do, what they were going to spend their tax like a rebate check on. And you think that's what caused the recession? I think it was part of it. Really? Yeah. That giving people money causes a recession. 
Absolutely. Hmm. You're talking about 2008, that recession. No, I'm talking about <laughs> the rest of the Bush administration. Well, there, there, that was when the recession. The economy was in a slump before 9/11 even hit. Correct. Like the, like the stock Bush market, was, the stock market collapsed. There was a there was the uh, dot com bust. There was a lot of things going on, and it happened under uh, Bush's stewardship. No, it happened. Under, it happened under Clinton, actually. The dot com bust yeah. happened under Clinton, and then Cheney and Bush ran by kind of talking down the economy and talking about how bad things are getting. Well, I remember they were talking about how it was all Clinton's fault for six years, if that's what you mean. But you, 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 so the financial crisis happened in 2008, and you're saying that it was caused by giving people uh, money. Yeah. Oh, okay. That's and it was caused by giving corporations money and investment banks money. Government just started handing out money. Really? No. <laughs> You're just making shit. You're just baiting me, right? I am baiting you. Sorry. Okay. All right. All right. I, I am. Uh, I learned. I learned this. Our, all our listeners learned this week. I am a red baiter. You're a red baiter. And I'm working my way up to being a master baiter. <laughs> then no, no, Jim. Jim called me a red baiter. But you lost that argument, my friend. I didn't. Oh, I lost that argument. Okay. You lost it so badly that right. I, as the moderator, took Jim's right. side before it even began. That's how bad a debater you are. Before that debate even started, you had lost. That's how horrible you are. No, no, no. I knew. <laughs> as soon as you invited me on to be with Jim, I knew exactly what's going to happen. All right. We have to answer a list of emails. Anyway, uh, I'm worried about him. I'm worried about runaway inflation. Okay. Uh, this is from, uh, you know what, David, I yeah. guess we'll, we'll find out, uh, if everyone's living in cardboard TV boxes or if everyone's living in cardboard food boxes, who was right. Okay. This one comes to us, uh, from, he doesn't want our name, his name, uh, to be read on the air. His uh, Zodiac sign is Bernie Ho Aquario Cat. Oh, <laughs> I love when your listeners turn on each other. Yeah. Uh, what information about yourself can David share on the show? He may not share any videos of me masturbating to Tulsi Gabbard speeches. <laughs> All right. And his, here's his comment. Since I'm sitting here on a coronavirus lockdown, I thought I would ask the Feldo crew a question. The virus is screwing us all. Our grandparents thought... They were so tough because they were called on to survive a depression and fight a world war. We have to sit home and watch Nicolas Cage movies on Netflix. I'd rather fight Nazis. I understand Trump directed his coronavirus response team to spend the entire weekend coming up with ways to blame the virus on Obama. Anyway, Joe Biden had a good debate. His eyeball didn't explode. His teeth didn't fall out. He didn't forget which office he was running for. Biden said he would commit to picking a woman as his vice presidential pick. When asked which woman Biden would pick as his VP running mate, he said, I don't know, maybe the cute girl I debated back in 08. Sure will be somebody qualified who doesn't mind having her hair constantly sniffed. If Joe wins, who do you think he should pick? Conversely, if Bernie pulls out a miracle, who should he pick? You guys stay safe, keep up the good work, and best regards to the dog puppet. 
Who should he pick? Uh, as, as his VP? Yeah. Isn't, isn't the, here's the thing. He's, he kind of painted himself in a corner. He has to pick a woman. Yeah. Isn't the governor of Michigan a woman? I mean, like, uh, I feel like if he picked a, a governor, like the governor, if I think, she, God damn, I'm going to look it up right. I mean, I'm going to search my memory banks right now. Uh, because I feel like if he can get a, uh, Gretchen Whitmer, that's her name. I feel like if he gets someone like Gretchen Whitmer, uh, from a big Midwest state that's purple, it'd really help in the, help, uh, kind of de- deter Trump voters or people who are tempted to vote for Trump. Okay. Uh, at this point, I don't really care about Joe Biden. I'll vote for him. But, uh, whatever. But, I mean, Bernie might pull it out, man. Bernie hasn't, Bernie hasn't. Suspended his campaign. <laughs> when you say pull it out, what do you mean? <laughs> I, I mean from your mouth. <laughs> You've been blowing that guy for six years. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, he might. <laughs> That's pretty funny, man. I also don't talk to many people anymore. Um, no, 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 but it. You might get this delegates from North Dakota. All right, this next question comes from Montana. What did you say those sirens are? Uh, they're the, the more they're the more the, they're, they're, they're the up. morgue wagon coming with that joke. <laughs> the morgue wagon. Yeah, it was dead on around. The Reverend Bartholomew J. Cubbins, Esquire. He's an Ublek. That's his zodiac sign. What's an Ublek? He's a- uh, Ublek is from Dr. Seuss. Oh, my God. I can't oh. believe I actually knew that. Oh, okay. Uh, Bartholomew and the Ublek. It was a book by Dr. Seuss, and it's about uh, – it's one of his, like, uh, you know, commie, lefto, pinko environmentalist books. Right. And we should about mention we- that, that Liam, although he's a full-grown adult – he does consider Dr. Seuss foreplay. <laughs> he likes to read well, it to the... To the yeah? No, I'm not going to... Oh, but my Michael Jackson joke was in poor taste. Okay, I see. Thanks for trying to explain to the Reverend, or whatever he is, why Dubby's cheerleader speech at the 9-11 site was one of the lowest moments in our recent history. Also, Thank his dependence you. on Wall Street investments is too bad because oh, the Reverend has some money in Wall Street. Uh, it's bad that he's investing in Wall Street because he will always be forced to side with the bank bailouts over serious New Deal responses to the boom-bust capitalist cycles. I agree with that. His mm-hmm. I like Bernie but stance is pathetic. Why at this critical <laughs> juncture... People want to follow a has-been leader down the center lane of the road to nowhere while we are facing real existential problems is nothing less than discouraging. I'm going to have to go out and grab a few million bucks so I can build a germ-proof bomb shelter and stock up on assault rifles and flamethrowers. Good luck, David. It's a funny letter. You know, who would have thought those religious nuts who are preparing for end times were the right ones? Yeah. How bad is it? I mean, uh, 
Well, we're approaching 250,000 cases worldwide. New York City, New York State is on track for 5,000 by the time people listen to this. 10,000 deaths worldwide by the time you hear this podcast. That's just from people killing themselves from hearing <laughs> your your jokes. That's your entire listenership, and I apologize. Uh, your entire listenership times 10. Uh, it's going to get really bad. Uh, it turns I out. I don't think so. I, I think, you know, here's what I think. I think it's going to get really bad. I think deaths will reach 20,000 when all is said and done. I think we'll probably have a million people infected when all is said and done. And at that point, uh, I think things will take a turn and get better. But I think it'll take nothing is ever going to be the same ever again, starting right now. And I think the world as we know it, in terms of our society, will be forever changed I for the good and better. You I, think so? You yeah. think, you think people a, are going to go back? I'm an optimist. I'm, I'm an optimist. I, I think in, in about three weeks, we're going to go, whoa, can't believe, what was that? <laughs> Did we actually buy that? Wow, that was crazy. Whoa. That was we crazy. had all those piles of corpses we were burning. That was crazy. Whoa. Whoa. My parents are dead. Whoa. This comes to us from Larry. In case I Whoa, die. My parents, my parents died because some asshole wanted to go to a concert instead of staying home for a week. Uh, Post Malone? Did, was he, who's the one who didn't can't Kid Rock? One of them didn't cancel a concert. Motherfucker. Yeah. Dude, I, there is an open mic venue in L.A., and I'm only not naming it. Uh, just for the sake of, uh, not like brigading the guy who runs it, but it's still open and people are still doing open mics all day there. And I could not be any angrier at everybody doing what's, open what, mics. What's the phone number? Let's call them right now. <laughs> I mean, if you're really motivated, you can Google it. Or I mean, I'll tell you after we turn off the mics, but why it's don't like, I call? why don't you call <laughs> and see if I can get a spot <laughs> on my lung right now. Gay. This is from Larry. In case I die, it was great not knowing you. Fantastic show. I have new insight. Maybe I will reveal in time. We'll see. Leave Liam alone. Thank you. Bernie didn't win because although he was fighting for the 99%, he wasn't able to express it in a way that the 99% could understand. Did you see this week a reporter asked him a question and he told the reporter to get the fuck away from him? Yeah. He used the word fuck. I know. Uh, this is from <laughs> Timmy. Dude, if it wasn't for the fact that Biden was going to be the presidential candidate, I'd be very tickled. Instead, I'm just quietly furious at everybody in the world right now. This is from Timmy. He's like, I'm so mad. I can't. I'm laughing because I'm so mad. There's like literally nobody I'm not mad at right now. This, this, and I'm indoors all day just thinking about shit. Yeah. What we need to do for Monday's show or Tuesday's uh -huh. show. Tuesday's show. We need people who are isolated <laughs> to come on. Like I, I should have you on with somebody else. Who's Dude, all, get Eddie Pepitone on. Call Eddie Pep, but, he, but he's uh, he's married. Guys who are alone. Oh, guys who are alone to have cabin, what about a woman have cabin fever with. Like you need to be able to say to somebody, "I'm getting really fucking sick of your face." You know that? Why, are you going to keep chewing that way? 
<laughs> Apparently, uh, domestic violence is uh, quite popular right now. Wow, I can't believe women keep mouthing off like that. Well, there, you see? You see? Right. Uh, you know, I apologize for that joke. That was a terrible joke. Now, the ones who were offended by it weren't listening anyway. Don't listen. <laughs> You know, if a woman was president, we would never have war. We'd never have a moment's peace, but we'd never have Wait, war. What are you doing my act now? <laughs> oh, wait a second. I, I get like a victory lap for speed. On that. <laughs> that was pretty funny, what I said. Well, you're building off my joke, but yeah, that was pretty good. I, I, I deserve something. Hang on, let me give myself. You know, I'm always giving this to other people. <laughs> oh, boy. We are the funniest act of 1982. We are. Okay, this is from... Nobody in 2020 should have said what we just said. Why don't, <laughs> why don't we hook you up on a Tuesday show with somebody else who's all alone? And the two uh, of you can just share a little cabin fever fight. Uh, well, you know, I have a I have a friend. She's she's been working from home for the last week. I bet she would be up for that. Okay, she's kind of mean too. So it's oh, perfect. good, good. I, I suspect every woman you know is kind of mean to you. Yeah, actually, <laughs> it's a well. That's a whole subject for another time. My dating history. How's your love life? You know what? It's like this podcast, moving slowly and no end in sight. <laughs> All right. Timmy is from scenic Syracuse, New York. He's been plant-based for five years. Plant-based for five years, I would assume. Be, huh? can, I, can, I, can I be like Karnak and make a guess? This is going to be an email talking about how the whole entire coronavirus is caused by people eating meat. And if everybody went vegan then uh, then uh, this would have never happened. That's going to be my guess. He writes, you risk your life to get an impossible burger. Yeah, I walked outside the other day to buy some uh, impossible burgers. Did you get a Coke, fries, and Oreos too? Oreos are vegan. That's an inside joke. Did you know Oreos are vegan? Yeah, that's more of a fact than an inside joke, but okay. You are a dirty, filthy meat eater in denial, and you need help. <laughs> you need the McDougal program stat, or at least have him or Dr. Lim on the show. Uh -huh. Who's Dr. Lim? Dr. Lim. Wait, are you... Uh, It'd be funny if he was... Wouldn't it be great if Dr. Lim... Was like a leg doctor, Doctor Lim. Are they, talking about, are, they, are they talking about Doctor Eduardo Lim, a hematologist in Los Angeles? I don't know. Doctor Bun Lim, a gastroenterologist in Los Angeles. This next question comes from some Carol. She's Doctor Yenny Lim. <laughs> this next question comes to us from Carol. She's a Sagittarius living in Minneapolis. Is anybody else getting emails asking if they would vote for a Joe Biden, Michelle Obama ticket, or is that a sick joke? Well, I, I would suspect that Liam McEnany is stupid enough to suggest that Michelle Obama would make a great running mate. I, Here's think, I think you're an ignoramus. I think you're dumb <laughs> enough to buy into that. 
Here's the thing. <laughs> I would vote for any Democratic presidential ticket this year. I would vote for Joe Biden if his vice presidential candidate was a bowl of jello, and that is the truth. Would you vote for Joe Biden if his vice presidential candidate was Donald Trump? Ah, I gotcha. <laughs> huh? Wow, it's wow. Yeah. You certainly. No, here's the thing. I uh, if you saw Michelle Obama for you know four years ago at the DNC uh, when she gave her speech, she gives a good speech. And, you know, she certainly knows enough players in Washington that uh, there are dumber choices out there. I don't know if she would be my first or even my 10th choice. Uh, but if you want if you want black people to turn out in droves to vote for Joe Biden, it's kind of not the worst idea. Uh, boy, condescending, patriot, patronizing. And borderline, what? and borderline what race, and borderline sexist and borderline racist. racist. What are yeah. you talking about? It implies that black people are easily manipulated. No, I'm saying uh, people have very fond memories of the Obama administration right now. How about Smokey yeah. Robinson? But here's the thing: they didn't. Why, turn why, what about making Smokey Robinson his vice here's president? The thing. Everybody loves Smokey. They weren't motivated to vote for Hillary Clinton. Who are who are they going to be motivated? You know, it's like you have to. You have to play to your base, David. Right. And, you and you're that. implying that black people don't pay attention to politics. And the only That's black politician they know of is Michelle Obama or Oprah. First of all, she's she's not a politician. She's the wife of a politician. But she also, uh, dude, honestly, her work as first lady, she did a lot of work with uh, with people around the world. OK. All right. I'm going to say this. I like Michelle Obama. W- and it wouldn't hurt that, and, and, and I hope this doesn't sound condescending or patriarchal. If it does, I sound, I apologize in advance. It wouldn't hurt to have a vice president who's easy on the eyes. That's all I'm going to say. Okay. I, I, I don't like Michelle Obama. And I don't like. Why don't you like Michelle Obama? I'm done with them. That's crazy that you don't like Michelle. Like, if you were like, I don't like Barack Obama because he didn't close Guantanamo Bay like he promised for eight years. Uh, or I don't like Barack Obama because he bailed out the banks and didn't hold them accountable in any way. Uh, yeah, that would be one thing. But Michelle Obama, it's like not liking sunshine or rainbows. She's hey, great. Hey, hey, no pussy for you. <laughs> well, that, that, but it, what that's I'm saying. retroactive. No, <laughs> what I'm saying months. is there's a lot of power uh-huh. in, the, in the first lady. And yeah. not a single bankster goes to prison. No That's pus- not her fault. No, no, no pussy for you. That's condescending and patriarchal. Holy shit. I'm saying that there's a lot of power that the first lady has. So, oh boy, this uh, I, I have a feeling this uh, this uh, this episode is not going to be approved by Gloria Steinem. No, or the NOW, National Organization for Women. Yeah. Okay. This is from Kelly. She's a Libra. Hey, hi, Kelly. She listens to us in Sebastopol, California. Beautiful, beautiful Sebastopol, California. Friday's show was a little disconcerting in that it departed from the usual political and comedic discussions and veered into an extended public service announcement regarding the current pandemic hysteria. It felt like a six-hour slog through a thick syrup of fear, dread, 
anxiety and paranoia. But in the right. end, it was worth it just to hear you call Liam a fucking idiot. <laughs> I was going to say, uh, luckily, this segment is not at all responsible <laughs> or dedicated to informing the public in any way. Laughter is indeed the best medicine, and you are doing very important work. You're not just a comedy writer. You are a spiritual warrior. And uh -huh. I don't think you're going to give up until you've achieved enlightenment, not just for yourself, but for all of us as well. Namaste and keep up the great work. Ah, that's so sweet that you... And I'm your to you too. It's so sweet that she loves that I call uh, you a fucking idiot. Did you know uh, Sebastopol was the last town in Northern California to get a railroad station? Who's the fucking idiot now, yep. Kelly? Ooh, you're going to like this. Gus is... Ooh, you're going to love this, Liam. Okay, I guess. Uh, his Zodiac saying... Is, By the way, and I just want to make it clear to your listeners, I have told David not to hide any mean emails or voicemails from me. So if you have something negative to say, I am 100% about it. We're not censoring anybody. Right, this, is, this is an attack on me. Oh, no. This is good. That I will not stand. His Zodiac sign is Corona Bat. <laughs> Dave. He's writing from San Francisco. Dave, congratulations on admitting it was a mistake to let Howie Klein play antiviral expert on your show. And thanks for having... <laughs> And thanks for having and thanks for having a real immunologist set the record straight. Seriously, Howie, uh, I love Howie. I, some of his, <laughs> he had some opinions on. Anyway, of course, I would be I would be remiss not to point out that no sooner did your interview with the immunologist end than you had the Reverend Barry Lynn come on the show and play. Financial advisor. <laughs> <laughs> yes, who better to get financial advice from than a than a reverend? I have lots of reverence for the reverend when it comes to matters of church and state. On dividend stocks, not so much. <laughs> <laughs> and you probably owe thousands of dollars to anyone who followed your advice, David Feldman, to buy shares of a Vanguard S&P 500 index fund last week. A growing, I'll address that in a second. A growing body of research is beginning to shed light on the harmful effects of personal finance gurus telling everyone to buy index funds. One effect is that it inflates the value of large cap stocks, making them more susceptible to corrections and reducing their dividend yields. Meanwhile, the prices of value oriented small and mid cap stocks remain artificially depressed due to lack of demand. Uh, well, yes, uh, <clears throat> the index, the 500 index fund, uh -huh. uh, a growing body of research is beginning to shed light on the harmful effects of personal finance gurus telling everyone to buy index funds. I, I beg to differ. There's a growing body of research that's attacking index funds and it's being financed by the multi-trillion dollar mutual fund industry 
that is being decimated by companies like Vanguard, passive investing, buying the index and just letting it ride, that's putting stock pickers out of work. So that growing body of research is being paid for by mutual funds who don't like people being passive investors and putting what little money they have in in the Vanguard index fund. Wow. Uh, and, and as to whether or not they're artificially inflating mm-hmm. the, the stock market, I mm-hmm. again, I'm not a financial personal mm-hmm. finance guru, so I'll speak to mm-hmm. you. So I, so, mm-hmm. so I should speak. Mm-hmm. I just don't mm-hmm. buy it. I, I don't mm-hmm. buy it. Mm-hmm. Well, anyway, thanks for uh, thanks for that. It gave me time to read your subreddit. Uh, How are we doing? I got some good comments this week. Yeah, a guy named Dent Feldman said, "Theory: David's lack of taking a sip of his coffee before a joke lately has hurt his effectiveness." Well, this is definitely true. I secretly just want the sterilization properties of the hot steam running over me. Right, and I think I responded to that. You did. Good point. Hang on. Let me take it on your head. And then someone else posted a meme of Homer Simpson strangling part. Oh, that's the over- Jim Earl, de- Jim Earl yeah. debating Liam McEnany, I believe. Yeah, and like Jim Earl is Homer and I'm Liam. And uh, this guy wrote, the segment felt like quite felt, I like this comment, the segment felt quite like backstabbing of Liam but what should he do with an ignoramus that asks how you should pay for Medicare for all when what you pay now is 50 percent? The insurance companies that has the sole job of denying you health care when you don't see that part of the equation, you don't deserve better. All right. This next question comes to us from Mike. He lives in Newburgh, New York. I guess you don't care about the Redditors. I do. How, right, what are we up to? I, I do. I check Reddit every day. There are two Reddit, yeah. two subreddits, right? Yeah, it was on David Feldman's show, and that has 600 views this week. 600 views? Yeah. What does that mean? It means people have logged into Reddit and then gone, navigated to that page 600 times in the last week. Wow. And how many uh, members do we have? Oh, I, I'm already looking at the Doctor Who subreddit. Hold on one second. You don't have a Doctor Who podcast, David? Who? The- <laughs> Oh, about the is he from the World Health Organization? This is the one. It has 108 members now. Wow! Holy shit! Good for you, man. So you do a Doctor Who podcast where you have doctors from the World Health Organization on? No, no, it's about the British TV show Doctor Who. Oh, they have Uh, they have a show on Great Britain that features doctors from the World Health Organization talking about the global pandemic. That's good. No, it's about it's about a science fiction show for children about the time traveling guy in a blue box. Uh, a show for children oh, okay. uh, that I've been obsessed with since I was very little. Right. Uh, but I, I feel like I should plug it because I never do. Mm-hmm. Me and my friend Kat Your recorded friend named three. Cat, Cat, K A T, Cat Moore, and uh, she and I recorded three months worth of episodes for it, and they just started releasing it a couple weeks ago, and it's called Two on Who, and I don't know where to find it yet. It's for a production company called uh, – I don't even remember the name of the production company. I have to look it up. I, you know, this is a terrible plug. Forget it. Intelligence, look for two on who's a podcast. This is great from ProPublica. <laughs> this is great. Soon after he offered public assurances that the government was ready to battle the coronavirus, the powerful chairman of the Senate Intelligence Committee, 
Richard Burr, Republican, sold off a significant percentage of his stocks, unloading between $582,000 and $1.56 million of his holdings on February 13 in 29 separate transactions. That's from ProPublica. Wow. And I'm pretty sure that that is no longer legal. Pretty sure. At one time it was legal. I'm pretty sure it isn't anymore. This next question comes to us from... What, insider trading? I'm pretty sure insider trading has never been legal. Uh, According... No. It's legal for members of Congress to trade on... It was legal for them to trade on information. Now it's illegal, but they can tell their kids to trade, as I recall. Is it? I'm thinking about buying into the stock market. How's that... Yeah, you know, I was thinking of buying into the stock market. I, just one little problem. You don't have any money. This next question comes to us from Mike. He's a Libra, Newburgh, New York. He hates Trump. His question is, who makes you more depressed, Harvey J.K. or Ben Burgess? Both of them, they remind me how stupid I am. They're brilliant. Yeah. You know? Okay. This next one is from Penelope. She's a, a Virgo. Well, look, don't worry, Penelope. You'll meet the right man someday. Oh, maybe she, maybe she doesn't want to meet a man. Oh, that's to explain why she's still a Virgo. <laughs> she's located in Connecticut. Mm-hmm. Okay. The irritable immunologist. Money. The Money. Ir- that's what that means. The irritable immunologist is fantastic. He is knowledgeable and funny. Consider having him on a semi-regular basis. Love your show. Oh, that's sweet. You know what I love about that? They didn't mention Liam. <laughs> Let's see. Who's next? Uh, Mike. Libra. Lifelong Democrat. Says, the good news is Amazon kicked my sister's church off its portal program because it wasn't bringing in enough money. (laughs) So now I'm using your Amazon portal. That's good. That's great news in every way. A church getting kicked off Amazon. That's hilarious. Uh, Let's see. The the other stuff I'll respond to privately. Let's see. Oh, Grass Putin is back. I don't remember Grass Putin. He writes to us from Shady Oaks Assisted Living Facility. <laughs> is that where, uh, what's her name, put her parents? Janice Ian. Uh, that's, a Jan- that's a reference to a Janice Ian song. Holy okay. shit, I deserve... Dude, I deserve so much credit for knowing that. <laughs> Uh, Grass Putin says... Oh, it's Shady Acres. Fuck. Forget it. Uh, anyway, keep going. I've been pretty sick. I'm dying to hear this email. I've been pretty sick the last few weeks. Got the coronavirus confirmed in my county. Send some... Oh, come on. Oh, that's terrible. Yeah. Um, maybe just fund our goddamn health care. I think we should have a tier system like Liam 
wacko ninny advocates for, those dirty pores would just waste their coronavirus <laughs> vaccines by testing their luck with the pot needle. The pot That's not needle. what I said. Or even trying to get cross-faded <laughs> with Tide Pods. And That's not what I said. Vaccine. Listen here, Jack. They'd be able to afford it if they stopped buying all these dang iPhones. Yeah. Again, that's not what I said. Spending half their money on rent. Why, when I was a boy, you could buy a three-bedroom house and a blowjob for three nickels and a hay penny. Wow, okay. Damn kids, all right. Well, anyway, go to Joe30330.com. And another thing, I don't know why Liam is so insistent on a tier system being present, since we all know he's on Medicaid what with his 20-cent royalty checks from his book that he plugs on the show constantly. My book? I tried to be even less coherent for you guys, this time in solidarity, and my good friend Joe Biden, whose mind is also slipping. Thoughts and prayers that people wake the fuck up to who he actually is. Yeah, I agree. You voting for uh, Joe Biden? By the way, if you go to Joe30330.com, uh, comes up a website, Josh for America. Oh, okay. And it's just some dude who is uh, announcing he's running for uh, some kind of office, but he won't say what it is. Uh, and it's, I guess it's like a joke site, but it's also who cares. This next one comes to us from Neoliberal. Dr. Neo. Okay. Lib- oh, I'm sorry. Dr. Neoliberal. Okay. His uh, zodiac sign is the dollar sign. And he writes to us from Memorial Hall. Dude, that's pretty funny. The dollar sign. That's good. Yeah. And he writes to us from Memorial Hall at Harvard University. Ooh. So this is a Harvard douchebag. His question. You love those guys. Being luminaries of the entertainment industry, I would like to ask Liam and David to pitch my screenplay for me. The title is the following. Weekend at Bernie's 4. This time it's Joe. Actually a good Weekend at Bernie's sequel would be if Bernie was a candidate and his his candidacy was dead but somehow people still kept propping it up and acting like it was still going. Okay. This comes to us from H. He's a that 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 unamused chuckle said it all. Uh-huh. He, he's in Texas. Hey, Faldo. Hey, Liam. You love, are the best audience, David. <laughs> love the show. Parts of it. Uh-huh. Parts of it. Anyway, started listening because I saw your picture and thought you were the old man from Return of the Living Dead. I love that <laughs> character. He too has a dent in his head. Well, I didn't think much of it. Months went by and I forgot about the dent, at least until Liam McKenzie mentioned the dent. Huh? No, no, okay. So a listener mentioned the dent. No, you did. Liam McKenzie. A listener did, and I I went on iTunes and confirmed it was there. You, he says, he says, Liam McKenzie, you. (laughs) Okay. Call me Spuds. At least until Liam McKenzie mentioned the dent and reminded me why I started listening. And, well, I Googled you, David Feldman, and after a couple of pages, I gave up and searched for the character's name in Return of the Living Dead. Well, I'm just saying I'm a little bummed, and even though you're not James Karen, rest in peace, 
I'll still listen sometimes. I don't. I thought he was talking about. I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, go ahead. I was going to say I thought he was talking about Bub the Zombie. Senor Brainwash has a question for for Liam. Let me guess. It starts off uh, like a serious policy question and then ends a flippant question. No, but you've got a good memory. Screw, marry, screw. Tom from Portland, Bernie Hill, baby cat, James Carville. Screw, marry, Ooh. screw. Okay, I would screw Bernie Ho baby cat. Uh, but out of what? <laughs> then you have to either marry or screw Tom from Portland or James Carville. I would screw Tom from Portland, and I would marry James Carville because he's rich. Good, good call. I agree with you. Uh, this comes to us from Ron. Uh-huh. His zodiac sign is we don't rent pigs, and he listens to us in Twin Cities, Minnesota. Uh, oh, this is uh, about his dog and a cat. <clears throat> Oh, oh my God! Is that no, no? That's not the trailer people in Texas. No, we haven't heard from them. Um, Renee, her name's Renee, and I've been dying to hear. Renee, if you're still listening, please, please send an update. Okay. Well, we got through most of the questions. Wait, what was the question about the dogs in the Minnesota? It's it's, it's really long, and I'd rather give it to somebody who knows what they're talking about. Uh oh. Okay. Anybody but you. Gavin Newsom just announced that uh, probably 56% of Californians will be infected with coronavirus over the next two months. Really? Yep. So, anyway, tell your listeners to be nice to me now. I may not be here forever. Yay! Uh, all right. Well, anyway, uh, uh, I'm never what? leaving my apartment again. <laughs> I already seriously regret going to the 99 cent store. Like I left, I pureled my hands immediately. I came home, I stripped, I fucking uh, put Lysol on everything I touched, and I took a long hot shower. Hmm. So you know, like a normal post date procedure. Right. Right. Or, you know, like after I've been with your mom. I have uh, my mom. Which ironically also takes place the 99. Oh, I'm sorry, what were you going to say? You're, what, you're, oh, how dare you. I, I have tape of uh, your mom at the 99 cent store. <laughs> All right. I, I made the mistake of just <laughs> looking at the internet. Yeah. Don't do that. This is... I'm telling you, it can't be this bad. It can't be. Dude, you and Trump live on the same planet right now. It's already this bad. Like, there's there's literally no going back right now. When our government takes less care of its citizens than South Korea, that's a problem. That, that's been going on for years. <sighs> hmm. God, I'm just looking <laughs> at the internet. Did you this see this is a nightmare? Or- this is like this is like wait, I want hang on, hang on. It can't be 
<laughs> Wake up. What? What? Boris Johnson. Yeah. Uh, Boris Johnson. You you saw the whole thing with herd immunity, right? In the UK. Yeah, 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 yeah. We have to wrap it up. What? All right. Well, we'll talk about it some other time. Very quickly. Gives a shit. Anyway, herd Boris immunity. Johnson. What? Boris Johnson just fucking constantly looks like he was just dragged out of his trip club at two in the morning. Not a fan of that guy. Not a fan of that guy. Let's not end this bad, David. Let's end it on an up note. Which is, which is what I said to your mom as I threw a $5 bill in her face. Are you putting off getting life insurance because you think it's complex? Is, all right. This is not... This is... I'm getting... Sorry, folks. I'm just reading. Uh, anyway, we'll be back. But on the good... Yeah. On the good news, uh, I wrote a script that is a quarter finalist in a big contest. I just yeah. found out today. Good. Good. All right. Liam McEnany hosts Tell Your Friends. So, yeah. Which is great news because as soon as the pandemic's over, the, all the writers are going on strike. So there'll be no work anyway. Uh, Liam McEnany. <laughs> Working class. Fancy is the name of you this. know what I'm going to be doing in three months. What? Secondhand rose, they call me second. Uh, tell your friends is the name of the podcast. Uh, Working class fancy is the name of his comedy album. Hey, it's Liam is how you contact him on Twitter, and uh, it cannot be this bad. It cannot be this bad. I refuse to accept that it's this bad. I'm buying a I'm buying a second fridge from Home Depot this week so yeah. I can order from uh, Costco and just stock up just in case. Well, Costco provides sick leave to its workers. It does? Yeah. Well, that's good. Uh, oh, Alex Brazil. Yeah. Should I call him? Yeah, let's, let's do that. I'm going to call him right now. Bastard, Mr. Hollywood. Yeah. Oh, you're actually calling. I'm calling. Oh, my God. You're on the show with Liam. No, I'm Alex, not. Yes, you are. Yeah. Oh, no. Yeah. Do I have to sign like an NDA or something? <laughs> How are you? You're, you're on well, the most popular This is an ambush job. Every, everybody job. Speak. This is an ambush job. Everybody speak, at, <laughs> everybody speak at once. This is Alex Brazil. He runs Hollywood right now. He is, you know, sort of to the ground. Sometimes my producer, sometimes he's my manager, sometimes he's my rent boy, depending on what time. And he's, how are you, sir? I'm doing good. Is this real? Am I still? Am I really on? on? You're on the show. Oh my god, dude! you (laughs) You sound like you just won a contest that somebody else entered you in. What do I do? I get to win. What, what's my prize? To listen to a 12-hour podcast tomorrow <laughs> for free? Hey, I have an idea. Can you get yeah. Can you get me Eddie Pepitone and Scott Rogowski, and we'll do a conference call? I have to go to their PR team first. Oh. Seriously? No. Oh. <laughs> That's oh. what we say, though. Oh, yeah, no. Uh, Eddie, I guarantee you Eddie's doing nothing right now. 
No, he's doing uh, Sven the Clown videos right now. <laughs> They're hysterical. <laughs> They're so He's good. sitting at home. Eddie, <laughs> you know, Eddie's got to be happy because the outside of the world is as panicked and crazy as the inside of his head. <laughs> I know. We've all become the inside of Eddie Pepitone's mind. I saw his one-man show last year, completely brilliant, and also completely about what's happening right now. Oh, I know. Hey, can we do a uh, mystery guest with Andy Kindler, Frank Conniff, and Eddie Pepitone? Yeah, oh my but God. I can't I do it actually... right now. I have to, like, you know, give me a beat. I got to, you know, organize it first. All right, let's do mystery guest with yeah. Frank Conniff, Eddie Pepitone, and Andy Kindler will be the mystery guest, okay? Dude, okay. if you did that, I would actually listen to the show. <laughs> Did you hear Liam debate yeah. uh, Jim Earl? <laughs> oh my God! I thought I thought Liam lost. <laughs> Liam, have you spoken about our night at the Jimmy Dore show? Yeah, you know what? I did, but I didn't use his name because I didn't want oh, to start beef. What going after Jimmy? Yeah, I didn't. I didn't want it to sound like uh, I was uh, taking swings at Jimmy or his listenership because I know they overlap with yours. Yeah. All right. And, so uh, but, I texted. I texted Alex this morning to say I want to listen to his next episode now. Now that Tulsi is has resigned and gone for Biden. Nobody admits they're wrong. Nobody ever admits <laughs> they're wrong. Including you. Yeah. Well, yeah. No, no, no. We'll, we'll hear that in a week when Bernie suspends his campaign. You know, there was only one person who admitted they were wrong, and that was my first wife. <laughs> <laughs> I'm serious. I've never met anybody who said, you know what? I made I made a mistake, except my first wife. Wait, where did you meet her, David? Uh, where did you meet the first the, wife? 98 cents. Stop it. No, no, no. That's no, a callback no, to no, joke. I, hey, 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 guys. Uh, I, I'm out of the woods. Let's keep it that way. Let's <laughs> keep Well, not, not really, because isn't your mom's basement in the woods? So. Oh, yeah. 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 <laughs> so, uh, what's the mood in Hollywood? It's not this bad, right? It's an over, it's hype, right? You're from Hollywood. You know all about hype. No, I mean, you know, everybody is paralyzed and they don't know what, no, I'm kidding. They're, they're trying to leverage this in any way they possibly can. So that means that. May know, I make a suggestion that you run? Yeah. Here's my pitch. Yeah. And this is how Hollywood can, can save the world. If you want to make the, the coronavirus disappear, tell CAA to sign it. <laughs> <laughs> Can you make that happen? <clears throat> you know what? This is, I'm, I'm going to try and do your joke, but I'm going to butcher it about during pilot season, we've never had so many actors testing for Corona. <laughs> <laughs> testing. All right. I got to wrap it up. Uh, okay. Anything I need to know, Alex? Nothing you need to know. I'm going to, you know, I'm going to... Uh, What's it called? Make my magic happen, and we're going to get some guests on your show for later. Thank you, thank you. Okay, stay tuned, everybody. Alex Brazil, how do people follow you on? Oh, he's hung up.
<laughs> I knew he'd come crawling back to us. Oh, it was good to hear from him. Yeah. For, I should give him a call. For three minutes. Off the air and hear, hear the real truth about what people are doing in Hollywood. <laughs> Did you see the video that circulated? Gal Gadot organized a bunch of celebrities to sing Imagine together? No. My God. It's the worst. <laughs> she did a worse thing than John Lennon than fuck. I can't remember the guy's name. Mark Mark David Chapman. Mark David. God damn it! That was such a good joke. Was it Mark oh, David Chapman oh. or did he? Mark David Chapman. Who was the guy who shot uh, Hinkley? Hinkley. Chapman. Hinkley shot. Hinkley shot Reagan. Reagan. It was the worst thing. <laughs> Never yeah. mind. God damn it! Oh, fuck. I'm madder about this than any political thing Jim and I discuss on All right. I love you, Liam. I love you too, and th- dude, seriously, thank you. This this uh this actually brightened my day. Should we just I don't know. I, People are saying I should go to five days a week. Uh I wouldn't do that. Uh so Monday wait, so No, Tuesday, to my psychiatrist, not the oh, show. Yeah. No, no. So Tuesday, you're going to do voicemails alone. No, no, I just thought I'd run voicemails. Let you me give run voicemails. Number. Yeah, without you responding to it, because it's just I might as well just they're they're piling up, and I don't know what to do because right. a, I don't know if you know that there's a maybe maybe select the good ones, like a handful of. Good I can't. Ones. I just like to hear them instead of instead of playing them all. Like maybe, maybe uh, you know, exercise some editorial discretion. Like your mother. No, no, no. She. Uh... I don't know what that. I'm so tired. I'm so Listen. broken. I'm so broken. All right, ask me anything. Go to davidfeldmanshow.com. There's an ask me anything button, Liam, and I will answer all your questions. Leave us a voicemail at two zero two six seven zero twenty seven fifty two two zero. Two six seven zero twenty seven fifty two. Liam McEnany, I will talk to you and our listeners. On By the Tuesday. way, I just want to mention I had a I nice wrap up there, and you stepped. I'm at heyitsliam.com. Heyitsliam.com. You can tweet me at heyitsliam, and you can find me on Instagram at radio liam. You can email me at liam at heyitsliam.com. And uh, if you want, David, I'll find someone to fight with me on t- on Tuesday show. Find somebody. We'll do a remote cabin fever segment. We'll do it. Because if you're living by yourself, it must be difficult. Nobody to turn on. Oh, no, no. I call my parents every day. Oh, I see. Okay. Thank you, Liam. Stand the line for All one right. quick second. Be well. I love you, and I love your listeners. Thank you. Be well. Be well. Stand the line. Well, let's see uh, my voicemail here. Your serious attention. Ignoring this will be an intentional second attempt to avoid... Let's start this from the beginning. Here we go. Intending your serious attention. Ignoring this will be an intentional second attempt to avoid initial appearance before a magistrate judge or a grand jury for a federal criminal offense. This is the final attempt to reach you. To speak to an agent, call back on our direct line number. The number is... Four two five four five eight seven eight two one. I repeat four two five four five eight 
seven eight two one. Thank you. Well, we have to call that. I don't want to go before a magistrate. Let's see. Social Security Investigation Department. Oh, hi. You. Hi. 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 Yep. How can I help you, sir? This is the Social Security Department? Yeah, it is the Social Security Investigation Department. Oh, boy. Oh, boy. Oh, no. Uh, why are you... I got your message. Why are you... What happened? Can you help me out? When do you receive the call so I can check your details? Well, I mean... Like at I, what time? I, I'm, I'm terrified because I didn't think you would find out. Sir, can you please, uh, like, let me know when you got the call so I can give you more information if you're calling here for that? You're, this is the Social Security... Is this, Ameri is this the Social Security Department? It is, I told you, Social Security Investigation Department. So you work for the... So you found out about my grandmother dying. What do you mean, Mr. David? Are you Mr. David Feldman? Yes. Yeah, we're looking for that person. You, you found out that my grandmother died? But the checks... What were, do you mean? Well, the checks were already issued. So I cashed them. We are calling you because... Sir, we're calling you because we have found someone using your information from the state of Texas yes. for an illegal activity. Yes. How did you find that, though? How did you find it? You know, do you know that you're dealing with the government? Yes. Not with you. Yep. Yeah, you're dealing with the government. We didn't know that. Government organization. But the checks were already issued. She had passed away. So we, we, we cashed the checks to pay for some of the medical bills but we didn't know i mean what were, were we supposed to send these checks back to the social security department did i ever talk about the cat check sir did you yeah. ever talk about the check the checks and there were five there were five checks the check. there were five checks totally I'm talking about listen mr david i'm talking about someone using your information are you stupid I'm, don't talk to me that way. I, I'm, I'm trying to cooperate with the federal government. You're not able to take your call right now. Goodbye. Let's call them back. That was, that was fun. Ah. <laughs> oh, that is so much fun. Hang on. Let's do that again. One more time. Somebody left a message. Everybody should call 425-458-7821. Social Security Administration. Your call has been directly connected to Elena Jasper. How can I assist you today? Hi, I, I got the call, uh, and I want to take care of it before this escalates. Hello? Yes, I'm with you. Yes, I, I, I want to make sure that I don't get into any trouble. Yes, sir. You keep going in and out. I, and believe, I believe you can hear me. Yeah, but you're going in and out. Oh, I, and okay. I don't want to get into I, I don't want to get into any trouble because my my grandfather is very sick and and if you found out about this I just want to I just want to just clear what am I supposed to do? Just tell okay. me what to do and I'll so, do it. Uh, I believe I'm speaking to David. Yes. Yes. 
All right. Did you speak to anybody else before? Yes, I did. And he called. He 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 hung up on me, and I'm worried that he's gonna they're gonna knock on my door and arrest me. Okay. Am I gonna get arrested by the by the social security police? No, no, no. Are you sure? Because you you know I we didn't know we were doing anything wrong. Yes, I got my, I got your point. You do not have to worry. You will oh, not get arrested. You seem again. like a very nice lady. Thank you. The other guy was kind of mean to me. Oh, I'm sorry for that. Oh, yeah. I, I kind of stained. I stained. Yeah. Okay. I, I, I don't want to stain. It's, it's my grandfather's chair, and I stained it. Okay. Yeah, so what do I do? Just tell me what to do. I don't want the Social Security police coming for me. Do I go to Social Security yeah, prison? I'm not going to Social Security prison, am I? No, 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 no. You are not going. Okay, and I'm because, I'm not uh, 65 yet. You're not going to turn me into an old person. I read that that's what Medicare for All is, where they they turn they you, they make all of us over the age of 65. That's what Bernie Sanders wants to do by giving us all Medicare for All. Every American is over the age of 65. I I want to live. I'm staining. Tell me what to do. Tell me what to do. You do not have to do anything, okay? I'll be sending you a paperwork, so you just need to be honest and innocent in whatever you say, okay? And you can write back to us, okay? Okay, yes. And so, and do I send you the money? No. I don't send you the money? No, no, no. Who do I send the money to? You do not have to send money to anybody. Why you do you want gonna, to send money? Am I going to be put in a labor camp? No. No? Okay. No. Okay. You seem like a very sweet lady. Thank you. You're very sweet. What part of the Philippines do you live in? I'm not from the Philippines. Yes, you okay. are. Yes, you are. Yes, you are. No, no. I put a trace on this. No. This is this is the real Social Security police, young lady. Expect a knock on your door. You've been okay. Yep, Can we're, we're, we're coming you for you. This Can is you, I'm a Social Security. Can, I am the general of the Social Security Can Department. Can you drag me down? Can you drag me down? I can track you down, and and we're coming for right. you. Fast, we're coming fast. for you. The Social yeah, Security fast. Police. This was you a sting operation. We know who you are. Yes, you have to, uh, we're yes. coming for you. I want you to be. I want you to be really fast. Okay. Yes. Come and track me down. Okay. Right. Thank you. We are not able to take your call right now. Goodbye. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's four two five four five eight seven eight two one. Give them a call. Good people. Good peeps.